Welcome to Savvy Sab's podcast on call-in. This is episode 68, Tim Pool Reparations. Tim Pool recently tweeted support for reparations. Meanwhile, Benedict Cumberbatch's family is facing a reparations fight. Is Tim Pool being genuine? Should Benedict's family pay up? And again, if you tuned in for the live stream earlier tonight, feel free to talk about any of the other topics we discussed tonight as well. And so it appears we already have people lined up. So let's go ahead and bring in uh, Brent. You are on the mic. You just have to unmute. Hi, Sabi. And I have to make sure that my volume is turned on. I don't know. Why. Can you hear me? I think I would get better. Ah, yeah, yeah. One second, Brent. Hello. Okay, I can hear you now. What's going on, Brent? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi. So, um, I think it was on your previous show. You talking about ballot initiatives in California, and I know Roger Meadows likes to talk about. Ballot initiatives are in California. It's called propositions. Because when, when Roger first mentioned ballot initiatives, I thought this was like a new idea. But in California, they're called propositions. And every election cycle, people vote. There's like a, on the back of like the ballot, there's like propositions people vote on. And um, he mentioned something about um, California setting example for um, ballot initiatives for healthcare. And I just wanted to dispute that because um, in California for the past I, I would say four years, um, there have been propositions for kidney dialysis. Um, Proposition 8 um, capped profits, I believe, at 115%. So if a, if a kidney dialysis center made uh, more than 150% on each patient, they have to refund the rest to the patient. And that ballot initiative was striked down, was rejected. And then in 2020, um, Proposition 23 was basically the same proposition as Proposition 29. Um, basically, with that proposition, um, there has to be a physician or a physician assistant, nurse, or a doctor present for at each dialysis center, and um, you can't discriminate based on um, the form of payment each patient gives. So you have to, you would have to accept each patient regardless of how they pay. And that was rejected in 2020. And then the most recent proposition, Proposition 29, um, it was basically the same thing as Proposition 23, was also rejected. And I feel like um, that was rejected because there was a, a really manipulative um, ad that was released. I'll put it in the chat where they had dialysis patients saying that if um, if the dialysis centers, if the proposition was passed the, and that's very misleading because um, while that might be true, if they kept the current budget, they make so much money that they, they would be easily be able to uh, have a nurse, physician assistant or doctor present. So um, I feel like um, California is not a very does not give hope for um, passing any sort of universal healthcare system, even at the local level. So I don't know if Roger Meadows is in the chat or if he's listening. I just wanted to respond with that. So, hey, thank yeah. you for letting me know that, Brent, because uh, that was one of the questions I did have about that particular 
uh, initiative, I was curious, like, why that did not pass, the one in reference to dialysis, um, the healthcare one. I was curious about that. But if you do have that link about that ad, okay, I think you did put it. Okay. Yeah, I definitely need to look at that because that one to me, I felt like was a no brainer. Like, I was like, of course, people are going to support this, but not so much. So I was kind of surprised by that. It is because the the healthcare lobby is very prominent, like blue she- like the the industry as a whole, the insurance, everything. It's very. Um, I be- I strongly believe that the healthcare lobby is funding these ads to have my like patients not of all races in these ads to um, to strike down these propositions and um, the the people that support these propositions don't, simply don't have the money to dispute those, dispute those claims. So they just have to, those ads just keep running and running and um, people just manipulate. They, they run on people's emotions because they, people think, Oh, if the patients, if they, if they need the healthcare, if they open, we should vote no. But I find it funny that they only care about patients uh, not having care when it's used to manipulate people to get to vote a certain way, but they don't care if people don't have health care otherwise. So I don't know if Rogers, if Rogers here, because she, she keep, Roger keeps on saying like, oh, there was not enough. I, I saw your video. I think it was yesterday. There was not enough time to get support for these propositions. And I'm like, no, they've been doing it for four years. They've been trying to improve kidney dialysis, but it, it, it'll never pass because the healthcare lobby is just too strong. So don't look to California. You look elsewhere. That's basically what I'm trying to say. That's really interesting to note too, especially since if we want to go back to uh, cow care, I think is a good example that a lot of people keep referring back to because when we talk about like pushing for like healthcare and like Rokana, this was another thing that Bree caught Rokana on when she explained it to him in one of her interviews was that, Well, you can't necessarily say that just because you have support for something that it's going to pass because a perfect example of that, cow care and that cow care, they had the votes, they had the, the numbers and then big money came in and they still refused to bring it to the floor for a vote. So I think that was a good example to point to. Right, right. And something's passed in California. I think some edgy, like I hear about the problem all the time. Like they're, they're not really, I mean, s- significant in terms of the impact, like some education things passed, which is great, but the education lobby isn't, there's no money to be made in education as much as healthcare. So those things are basically, um, I don't want to say virtue signaling, but it's kind of like um, a, a bone that people throw to pretend that, democracy is at work but it's not it's not at work um the healthcare lobby is very strong and the only way to fix it is not through ballot initiatives it's through educating the public because i feel like people are manipulated manipulated by eloquent speakers like um they speak well and basically they say all the the good speeches but they trick people into voting against their interests and i feel like channels like yours are the best chance to combat that and not through ballot initiative it's through informing the the people that are voting against their interests to 
vote for their interests. So. <laughs> yeah, those ads can be pretty deceiving and tricky, too, if people aren't really paying attention to them, I would say, because same thing happened here with ranked choice voting. Like the ad was the ads were very much against ranked choice voting and that didn't help. And then also the question that was on the ballot was very confusing for people who are just not as tuned into politics the way that the rest of us are. They just didn't understand it. And so they were just like, I'm voting no, because I don't even understand what this question is asking me. And I believe sometimes that's also done on purpose, you know? Right. Right. And I feel like the, the people in these ads, um, they're being bought. Those patients, I, I hate to say that because I know that when people are going to hit analysis, they need legitimate, they're bought. They're being paid by, same with doctors and nurse physicians that are against the proposition. They're all bots. I hate to say it, we're all, we have a capitalistic mindset in the United States. I feel like people were in positions of power. A lot of them Uh-oh. I think you cut out for a second, Brent. You were hitting on something good there, and then it cut out. <laughs> this seems to be the, a trend. People start saying something really powerful, and then it cuts out. And I'm like, ah, shoot. Um, Yeah, I think that happened. Let me go ahead and see if I can. I'm going to invite you as a speaker. Sometimes that fixes it. So let me see. Invite to speak. And then I'm going to go ahead and bring in um, Scotty. So I invited you to speak, Brent, and I'm going to make Scotty the next call. What's up, Scotty? Hey, good evening, Sammy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Uh, so as far as uh, Tim Pool is concerned, um, I've been known about Tim Pool since uh, he was actually a fixture at Occupy Wall Street where, like, uh, he first got, like, some recognition because it was around the time where live streaming started to really pop off like it was Ustream um I think YouTube was still like like back in his heyday and he was like one of the main people a part of that uh Occupy Wall Street media uh uh, uh media camp and so he got to start doing that. Then he gets hired, like, later on down the road, he gets hired by Vice TV, and he uh, he, he covers the Ferguson progress, uh, protest. And then he falls down, like, the um, typical, you know, former leftist turns alt-right rabbit hole and starts uh, grifting off that. And so... I think like this is maybe just him just trying to get some attention. So I mean I'm not <laughs> I can't be uh, too sure uh, nowadays. So maybe I don't know if he's that really serious about um, reparations. Of, like maybe he is just trying to get a rise out of people. Also um, to um, Demar Hamlin, um, I haven't watched the NFL uh, since. Uh, what they they exiled Colin Kaepernick, but it was everywhere on Facebook and Twitter. So, like I seen uh, the play happen. Um, it's a it's a scary thing to watch. Like it's a scary thing. Like it still uh, like gives you the sober feeling of 
what the game of football can do to you or to do to the the, uh, the people that uh, play the game. And you do, like, there is, you do kind of get the feeling of why certain players kind of have this, like, standoffish attitudes towards the you know, fans and uh, sports analysts because, like, they have just, like, they dehumanize them to the point where they don't see them as human. They see them as part of, like, the bread and circus. And, like, you would think that we had learned after them from COVID. Like, we couldn't even go through COVID without, uh, without sports. Like, <laughs> just look at how college football and how the NBA handled the idea of having sports like instead of just like taking time off, they had it <laughs> without the fans. So like what Skip Bayless said, what's crazy about that is, is that what he said, if it wasn't that night, wouldn't be too bad because of the 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 reality is the game it did have playoff implications right but it's the fact that you mentioned that on the night that he's going through that it just seemed really callous it's like and then instead of just instead of just apologizing like the next day he like he kind of like doesn't double down, but he doesn't seem to have like the humility in which you see Shannon Sharp doesn't even show up. So, uh, you you still there, Chad? Yeah, I was just gonna say, um, I'll comment on both things you said. Uh, in reference to the sports situation, I just do want to explain to people who are listening that may not be aware there was a football player, um named Damar. He's a player for the Buffalo uh, Bills. Uh, during the game um, earlier the other night, he collapsed on the field. Um, so they're saying that he went into cardiac uh, arrest and he's only like 24 years old. So it's, it's causing a lot of like stir and controversy. Some people are saying they think maybe it's because of the, the, the jab and all this kind of stuff. So, um, but to Scotty's point, uh, there is a sports commentator named Skip Bayless, and he's kind of been known sometimes to make some pretty insensitive remarks. That's not the first time. Um, he just kind of had this mindset of, well, the game has to go on. This has playoff implications. And, you know, this guy right now is in ICU fighting for his life. And so where the concern and focus at that point in time should have been, oh God, is DeMar going to be okay? But Skip Bayless' concern was we have to keep the game going. This has playoff implications. And that's where a lot of people started to push back on Skip Bayless. So that's what uh, Scotty is referring to there. So I just wanted to point that out for people who are not aware. And in reference to the Tim Pool comment, thank you so much for explaining that to people because some people listening may not be aware of who Tim Pool is or they may only know about him because of his his recent podcast where he's had like Con, uh, Kanye West on the show making some pretty obviously egregious remarks there. 
Um, he's also had Joe Rogan on and Alex Jones on, but he's also had people on like Kim Iverson. So it's not always a controversial uh, figure, so to speak. But thank you for mentioning to people that Tim Pool was a part of Occupy. See, a lot of people don't know that, that that's actually how he got his start. He was out there gathering footage during the Occupy Wall Street movement. So thank you for saying that, uh, Scotty. But yeah, like for me, I was just like, for the people who were cheering um, Tim Pool on, for me, I was just kind of like, do you guys think he's actually being genuine or is this just for attention? Like, I agree with what he said, but I question the motive of it. Like, I don't even know if it's genuine or not, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I guess it helps to be an older millennial if you know some of these people. Uh, uh, but yeah, um, I, I don't, I don't really trust them as far as I can throw them. So I don't see him as, as that important um, in, in that regard. But um, uh, as far as like, you know, what uh, last night reminded me of. And this is for all you wrestling uh, fans that grew up in the 90s. Uh, Over the Edge, 1999, Owen Hart. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's um, Owen Hart was a professional wrestler. He's part of this like historic wrestling family, the Hart family. Like his brother, Brett, it, it was WWE champion. And he's GOAT, like he's at a pay-per-view. And he does, like, they have him do this stunt, and he dies in the middle of the ring, falls from the Raptors. They, WWE, goes on with the show. Not only that, they have Jim Ross and Jerry the King Lawler announce his death on television, on pay-per-view. Right? They have this going on. And I'm sitting there thinking last night, like, are they actually, or is the NFL actually waiting to have that happen? Like, they, were they really thinking about, like, okay, we might have to tell the people that this guy is dead? Anything like, for ratings nowadays, Scotty. I'm just, I'm just really sitting there thinking to myself, I'm so glad that the players and the coaches told them to kick rocks last night and, and just walk off the field which I wish the NBA players would have did with Obama during, uh, during 2020. But, like, I'm, I'm guessing after, like, you know, that whole scenario, I don't think the NFL would have been able to do that last night after how that whole thing un- unfolded. Right. It's and I like feel a, the same. I feel the yeah. same way. It just people have to understand it's a business. Mm-hmm. For us, it's a pastime. It's a chance for us to hang out with our friends and have hors d'oeuvres or appetizers and wings and people make chili and all that kind of stuff and cheer on our favorite team. But for the NFL, it's a business. This is all about profit, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not entertainment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Well, uh, you have it happening here. Hopefully uh, we get some updates on Hamlin soon, but you have a good night. I'll be listening. Scotty. Thanks so much. Scotty, uh, don't forget also he how he screwed over his brother uh, Brett, if you remember that. Are you talking? Oh, about I Owen? guess you have to watch. 
Yeah, Hello? yeah, he, he screwed Vince. Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Uh, Montreal, the Montreal screw job. Oh, that's what they call it? Okay. Yeah, they call <laughs> it the, the Montreal. For anybody who doesn't know, um, before, uh, Red Hart uh, had a, uh, was engaged uh, in a rivalry with a, a wrestler named Shawn Michaels, and Vince McMahon wanted him to drop the belt before he left to the competitor at the time, WCW. And and so he didn't want to drop the belt to Sean or he, you know, this whole like convoluted thing. And so anyway, this man loses a plan to take the belt off of Bret Hart before he leaves to, the, uh, to WCW. And so like, interestingly enough, like um, his, uh, the family uh, part of the Hart uh, Foundation Davy Boy, uh, his brother-in-law, uh, Anvil uh, Nightheart, um, I believe. Rest Brian, in peace. Uh, yeah, Brian Pillman had already passed away. I think a month before this happened, right? Uh, and so, like all the they they left, and the only one that was still there was Owen Hart, and he wanted to leave, but this man wasn't going to allow him to, uh, everybody to leave in that situation. So he, like, he was still there. And so, yeah, man. Thank you. Capitalism. All right. And, um, CR, let me go ahead and bring CR in. And Brent, if you can, if your mic is working, I know you didn't get a chance to finish what you were saying. You just have to unmute. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I don't know where I got caught off, but um, I was basically saying that I don't think um, California uh, to pass the significant health care um, things that we need. I don't think California should be an example. And um, at least four years, they've been trying to pass reforms for kidney dialysis and not one of them passed. So if they can't even pass things for kidney dialysis, how is, how is California going to be an example for universal health care nationwide? I, I don't just I just don't think it's possible. We have to get rid of the money and we have to inform the public because the pu I feel the public is easily manipulated by eloquent speaking and um, manipulative ads. So I just want to say that. Thank you so much for that, Brent. Um, CR, what's your take on all of this? Hey, Savvy, how's it going? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Good to hear from you in 2023. Um, just a little quick quick uh, comment on the, the wrestling thing. Not a giant fan. Right? I said I want to fan the flames. Kill <laughs> me. The pun. Um, is uh, uh, it's I, I, I wrestled. I wrestled uh, elementary school, middle school, into high school. And then when I, when I stopped or whatever, uh, actual wrestling. And uh, when you compare actual wrestling, even, you know, football or many other uh, boxing, other contact sports, this uh, the fake pro wrestling actually is far more dangerous, far more lethal uh, than any. So we call, uh, you know, the, the, the WWF or WWE or whatever the hell it's called, fake. But the consequences are quite fucking real. They're actually more real than they are for professional sports. 
So that's always kind of something to keep. I'm not a huge fan of that kind of stuff, but just something I always respect about those guys yes. is that they they're they're putting their bodies on the line far more so than any of these other sports. The amount of uh, uh, premature death and suicide and, right. and, and painkiller addiction—it's off through the roof. And yeah, because that because Vince McMahon is a it's a fucking piece of shit, just like Dana White in charge of the fucking UFC is a fucking piece of shit. He uses other people's bodies, often people of color's bodies, to make his fucking money. And he can afford not to care about them because in his heart he doesn't care about them. But that's a whole other set thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I was just going to say, like, when I was a kid, like, people used to tell me it was fake, too. And I was like, okay, it's scripted. They're still jumping on the ropes. They still end up in the hospital. They're still breaking limbs. They're still having heart attacks. They're still ODing. They're yep. still mainly ODing on painkillers to deal with the uh, the job. So it's not mm-hmm. just like, oh, these guys are a bunch of junkies. It's like, no, usually they get into it because they love the, the theater of it. They love, you know, the theatrics of it, the quote unquote sport. And then they uh, get hooked just like many, many, most the vast majority of most Americans that get hooked on painkillers. Is mainly because they were working themselves too hard, whether it be construction or, or, or you know, whatever, being just a, tr- a you know a trash person or whatever, you know, any of that kind of thing. And you're working really hard. You get hurt. You got a family to take care of. So you go to Doc. You're like, Doc, you know, patch me up real quick. I got to get back to work. Well, here's some Vicodin. Here's some Percocet. Here's some here's some Oxycontin, you know. And, and, and then they realize that they rely on it for too long and then they get hooked. Not because that they were junkies, not because they were bad people, you know what I mean. So that 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 kind of a lot of suicide. Yeah, and a lot of suicide because suicide. they realize that the the you know all the glitters ain't fucking gold, you know, and and and, and it's 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 so temporary, it's so fleeting. And once they're done with your body, once you're out of your prime, uh, 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 they don't got no more fucking use for you. Just the same way that that like that with the football thing that we're talking about earlier, the way that they could continue the game. How, how in your right fucking conscious, supposedly Western Christian, you know, uh, a bind, could you fucking continue a game when you don't know if this motherfucker's about to die or not? You know what I mean? Mm. Like, obviously that that's, if you, even if you're just a, even if you're just a pure cold capitalist, soulless bastard and I own the team, I would go, well, you know what? Even though I don't give a shit about that motherfucker, I'm going to cancel the game just because I want to look good. And I know that, you know, when we reschedule the game, we're going to sell out that rescheduled game too. And we're going to get all this great press. You know what I mean? So there's, there's so fucking short sighted, fucking maniacal, evil little capitalist bitches that they don't see that you would get so much out of the PR if they right there, as soon as the dude collapsed and you, like, you carted him off to go to the hospital, they walked out of meeting and said, Hey, you know, the rest of the guys want to keep the game going, but in our hearts, we can't do that. So we're going to cancel the game because we're all concerned about our friend. And that, even if they didn't believe it, even if they didn't believe it in their heart and they just did it for the, the PR purposes, would win them so much more PR than just saying, all right, you motherfuckers, get back out there. Get out there, you colored boys, and keep fucking throwing your bodies in the line so us white boys can make a lot of fucking money. You know what I mean? Because as the RBN was saying earlier today, where the fuck would the NFL be without black bodies? Where would it be? Or the NBA. I was or, thinking or the same. Of that shit. Yeah, then that shit would fucking exist. And you know damn good and well, who's the people that are buying the tickets? Who's buying the floor seats? Who's buying the jerseys? Who's buying the season tickets? 
It's fucking white America. Just like with fucking rap music, white suburban kids were propping that shit up. But at the same time, they want to turn around and act like, oh, no, no, you know, keep it at arm's length. It's like, motherfucker, you guys are all profiting off of this. That's all. That's all you care about at the end of the day. You don't care about individuals, their message, their humanity, any of that kind of stuff. So that's the thing that really kind of bummed me out about this whole football thing is it just doesn't matter even if you're not a person who gives a flying shit, your capitalist position should have been to immediately cancel the game. It's interesting. You mentioned uh, like the rap music and suburban uh, culture. It's very true. I've been to a number of concerts because I I love live music. I have actually never been to a rap concert, but my white friends have. And this is what people do. This is really interesting. Like, They've been to Snoop. They've been to Ice Cube. Like they've seen like Dr. Dre. They've seen like they saw DMX when DMX was in his heyday. Uh, And I look back on it and I'm like, I've never been to any of those concerts. I really haven't. So it's true that like hip hop, I mean, hip hop is popular globally across the globe. But it is true that it is really propped up a lot in white suburban culture. That is true. Well, I just to me, it was like I, I, I was recently watching, uh, uh, rewatching Boardwalk Empire. I don't know if you guys remember that that good show, which yep. is about the the, the 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 20s. And what's the thing when 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 and Chalky White is like the only uh, 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 basically black protagonist in the whole series uh, gets to finally get his own nightclub on the boardwalk, on the boardwalk, right on the boardwalk. He still is not allowed to sit with the patrons on the floor in his own club because the black people can perform on the stage and be in the kitchen, but they can't sit in the venue and actually enjoy the stuff. You know what I'm saying? So to me, I kind of find that kind of interesting how we've, we've, we haven't really departed so far from that a hundred years later where we, we, we've kind of pushed it to the periphery where the, the, the people in the suburbs and the people sitting at home, having their, 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 their football parties at their houses can continue to enjoy the labor of the black individual while they can keep them at arm's length. You notice how that, that hasn't changed very much when we're talking about the vaudeville from back then to now we're talking about pro football. And this am I crazy to make, am I crazy to make that one? Am I crazy to make that distinction? Am I just stoned? Is that, no, because decision? this speaks to the reparations conversation as well, because and the reason why I'm, I'm going to bring this up is that even here in Boston, for people who are not aware, did you guys know that decades ago, it was actually Italian Americans, uh, Italian American lounge and club owners that actually helped out the African American community to get their own lounge and bars in their community? Did you guys know that they actually helped them because black people had such a difficult time and it's gotten better here in Boston, but this was even an issue years ago when Ayanna Presley was our city councilor. That's why she brought, she brought this forward. Black people have had such a difficult time trying to get the license that you need for a bar, for a lounge here in Boston. Like that was still a problem like 10 years ago, you guys, I'm not even exaggerating. And so what Ayanna Presley did was, she pushed the city to change the law about not issuing new licenses for like the alcohol, because there's different licenses that you have to have. You have to have a certain one for alcohol. You have to have a certain one to serve alcohol certain times of the day to serve hard liquor. It's and it's expensive. 
So she was the one, she's actually the reason why black bar owners and lounge owners and nightclub owners in Boston are now are able to sell alcohol after certain times, new businesses, because the city was deciding they're not going to give out any new licenses. So if you wanted to create a new business, you are not going to be eligible for that license. Ayanna Presley was the one who changed that. She pushed forth for that. See, a lot of people don't know that. That's something if I was Ayanna Presley, I would brag about that. But to your point, CR, what people have to understand is that it wasn't like like after or during like reconstruction, it wasn't like black people were told you're not allowed to have businesses or anything. They were allowed to have them. But once those businesses became more successful than white businesses, they were burned to the ground. Totally. That's so where, I'm sure you're referring to like the Tulsa massacre and that, that kind of thing. And the thing is, is it's not just Tulsa. There were multiple yeah. black Wall Streets in the United States. One of them was in North Carolina, in Durham, North Carolina. So I think that speaks to the point of reparations. Every time that black people got to that point in the United States where they had their own communities that were thriving and that were doing well, and the dollar was 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 turning constantly in the black community, Every time they got a leg up, their communities were burned to the ground. Yeah, so it's, 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 funny, it's funny because we think that we live in a meritocracy, right? And that's the kind of the, the ethos of those individuals that will tell you, like, well, why do you want a government handout? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, of course, any of us would be willing to entertain their kind of uh, premise if, if we lived in a meritocracy. And I think that, 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 that's the fundamental thing that is always ignored, especially in reparations, right? Is that when they say like, well, I didn't own slaves and da, 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 so why should I have to pay and da, 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 and all this right. kind of stuff, you know what I mean? And, 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 and again, it's assuming that you're on the same level. And of course, if me and you were on the same level, you know, a white guy uh, uh, about to be 40 and, and you, you, you know, you're a black lady, if we were on the exact same level, you know what I mean? In terms of perception and in, 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 in this country and, the, you know, and whatnot, then, yeah, maybe I would get a little bit mad. I'd be like, well, what the fuck? Why, why is she getting money? And I'm not getting money. But if you then entered, like you said, just basically entertain for just a second, like, is it not slanted? And then you will say, well, yeah, it's a little slanted. OK, well, hasn't it been slanted for hundreds of years? Uh, yeah. OK. So that's the thing is, it's like even the most ardent individual that would kind of be very vehemently against reparations, they will give you those concessions most often. If you pin them down and say, like, you have to admit it's not a fair justice system, right? The justice system right. is skewed. They're like, okay, yeah, you're right. The justice system's a little skewed. You're like, okay, you have to admit bank loans and housing loans is not fair. And redlining was a real thing. They go, yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah. But, but still I didn't do that. My family didn't do that. So you can nail down even most of these people that are very ardently against this and they still will appreciate the premise for which your uh, thing is built upon. Right. So I don't know how to get over that last hump, but I do know having talked to these people and having lived in, in, in out in the country in, in rural Oregon for a number of years that, 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 that the most of the time, if you sit them down and specifically describe these type of discrepancies in the system, they will tend to agree with you. So the thing that I'm missing is how do we get that to go to the next step where they accept the premise of our argument, but they just don't 
uh, accept our uh, uh, prescription? That's a really good question, CR. And Roger, feel free to chime in here um, as well. I think one of the things that we really have to debunk is when people say, why are we supposed to give people money based on the color of their skin? It's not based on the color of their skin. Black people don't come in one shade. We come in various shades. <laughs> yeah, right. We come in various shades. It's based, on it, it's based on, and this is the point, um, Roger, I want you to chime in on. It's supposed to be based on lineage, and there's a reason for that. Go ahead, Roger. Um, so I've been following the, um, the, the, the people who have been um, focusing on this more uh, significantly. So I'm just gain, getting my knowledge from him, whether it's uh, Marcel Dixon or uh, Naheem and uh, Kamala Moore. Um, now, one of the things I was looking, I was looking for it. This was, so the Brookings Institute one is from, um, what do you call it? Uh, 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 uh. They, they're missing something on there. And the one thing that they're missing is the Freedmen's Bureau. Okay. So first, let me just say, Anyone? Oh, Roger, I think you're breaking up the term written okay. into the congressional record. Oh, you're fine now. What about what about now? You're fine. Hello. <laughs> what about? Now? Oh, okay. yeah, we can hear you. It was it, okay. So I, I don't know what the last thing anyone heard me say was, but Friedman's bureau. Um, Oh yeah, the Freedmen's Yeah. So the the Freedmen's Bureau, in case anybody doesn't know, was a bank that was set up for um uh 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 black soldiers who fought in the Civil War. Okay? For them to put their military stipends or whatever the case was. Um and of course when Andrew Johnson became president you know, who was old, old Dixie Pratt pretty much, even though I know he was Lincoln's vice president. Um, he was very hostile to freedmen. So by the way, the term freedmen comes from, we were, you know, the opposite of, it, of enslaved. So freedmen is written into the congressional record and has been written into the congressional record since the end of the civil war, because we were no longer slaves. We were freed men. Um, and it was a you know patriarchal society, so they weren't saying freed men and women. Um, however, the Freedmen Bank, the Freedmen Bureau, which was supposed to be a bank for um, uh, 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 you know uh, black people who fought in the Civil War, was pretty much ransacked and wasn't ran by us, but it was ran by you know the the capitalists of their day, and they just ran it into the ground. Okay, so. I was looking at some of the, um, I was looking at some of the, uh, so the, that's one of the things that the, the liberal Roosevelt Institute did not mention. So I follow them, um, you know, I, I follow, you know, whether it's Marcel Dixon or, um, or not, not Nas the rapper, but a person who calls himself Nas and uh, Naheem and Kamala Moore. And they had, I made sure to, get a list of things that they're looking for. 
Now, I'm pretty sure some of one of the things on here for this progressive audience, people might kind of shy away from. Okay, but I'm just going to read it real quick. Uh, Black U.S. Freedmen political priorities, reparations, which is payments, protections, programs specific to our lineage, restoration of the Freedmen Bureau. And mass immigration that keeps black Americans out of the workforce, black business grants specific to the freedmen lineage, anti-black American hate crime bill giving us protected status, Dis disaggregation of our lineage on all government paperwork and programs. So what I think that part, and the last one is work guarantee quota that is tied to our lineage, not to African American, because like all these other terms are not like official terms in in con the congressional record what's official term in a congressional record is freedmen so the part where it says disaggregation of our lineage on all government paperwork and programs this has to do with the census so this way like you talk about reparations and trying to figure out who is um who's owed it who's entitled or who it who says delineate between like when it says race yeah you say black but then they're trying to make um it an ethnicity you see what i'm saying so you so like someone else might put black and haitian american or jamaican american or trini american or whatever the case is they're trying to what they're trying to do is put on on a census um freedmen Okay, as because that's one of the things you have to before reparations goes out and so on and so forth, you have to um, delineate. Okay, you know, identify pretty much. Um, you see, so um, you know that, that's that's one of the things. I'm going to try to find the uh, link to put in the in the chat because I would rather get in, instead of using the the Brookings Institute, which is you know pretty much you know a white liberal organization. It's always best to kind of get it from the source's mouth in terms of, you know, instead of it having kind of like usurping and having someone else be our voice, it's better that the voice comes from the community. Right. So as soon as I find it, I'm going to yeah. Right. And it's it's really important, too, because, you know, the lineage thing had to be explained to me because when I first heard about reparations, I was like, oh, for all like black people in the U.S., but Roger had explained this to me, and I read some of the work from Yvette Carnell, as well as Dr. Sandy uh, Darity, and they explain why it has to be lineage-based. And, like, what we have to remember is that we have a 14th Amendment, because here's the argument that a lot of people will bring up. And actually, Kyle Kalinske brought this argument up one time when Marianne Williamson was running for a president in 2020. Mar uh, Kyle Kalinske said that he understood the need for it, but he said he was against reparations because he said how are you going to decide who to give it to like what if someone is half black or whatever da 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 that's why the lineage piece is so important because if you don't have that lineage tying you back to african slavery then you would not qualify for reparations and why is that key as well in reference to uh illegal legal matters we have to remember we have a 14th amendment and so if we just say give reparations to everyone who is is black that's in this country, well, the problem you're going to run into is that the government actually can say, well, no, this is against the 14th Amendment. 
That's why you have to base it on uh, lineage. That's really important. So, so this is where some people will disagree. Like some people who, and I have friends who live here in the Boston area, they're Jamaican, they're first generation. So like their parents immigrated here, but they were born here. They will disagree and say that they think they should get it too. But technically you have to go back and look at the history with Jamaica and the Bahamas and Barbados and look at the European countries that colonized those countries. Because like we were talking about with with, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Barbados is asking his family for reparations. Okay. Where is Benedict from? He's from, you know, England. So technically England would be the one I believe that would pay reparations to Barbados. It's, it's, it, it's. I don't want to say it's tricky, but there's a lot that goes into this, and it's really important that you follow, you follow the details because if we want to talk about a country like Haiti, well, Haiti technically should get reparations from France, I would think, but it, it's it's a lot that goes into it, and so some people will say like, how do you decide which black person gets it? That's how you stop that argument that you take it back to lineage. So that's important for people to hear. It, it is. It is really important. And here's the little thing that I would bring up with that, that I think you can actually find some solidarity with the right. Tell me if I'm crazy. They refer to it as the death tax. We refer to it as the estate tax. Now, how often have you just been like, uh, like your head just kind of like, oh, my head's starting to hurt. When you see some motherfucker in a solid red state making $30,000 a year, Going, ah, I'm against the death tax. It's like, motherfucker, this has absolutely nothing to do with you. But you will, the Republicans have been able to, you know, get their uh, uh, constituents that have no effect with the, with the estate tax whatsoever, which they call the death tax. Sounds like it affects everybody. Uh, <laughs> to rail against something that has absolutely no effect on them whatsoever, right? So we understand that the people on that side of the political spectrum do understand the concept of lineage and inheritance and money, and they will vehemently block it, even if it has no effect on them. Am I right or am I wrong? Most of Republicans that I've spoken to about this are against reparations. Most, but they are, the, but they're, but they're against the state tax, though, right? Right. Same thing. But the thing is, Uh, what I want to point out to people, it's not a party issue. It's not a partisan issue. And I say that because I was very surprised to see how many people who call themselves, quote unquote, progressive that were against reparations as well. And one of them that includes AOC, by the way, she's in an article stating this. She doesn't support reparations either. So it's just. Bernie Sanders, I've told you guys this multiple times that Bernie Sanders was against reparations for African-Americans, but he signed off on legislation for reparations for his people. So what's really going on there? Exactly. That's that's my point here. So, so at, 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 what I hear, what I see from a meta analysis situation is that the yes, the, yes the, 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 the people will say, no, you have to do Germany has to continue to pay reparations to the state of Israel. No, no, this person has to continue to, you know, affirmative action here. Where, you know, people will find that they know I'm against the estate tax here, right? Oh, I'm for, so you, you notice that Jews in one corner, blacks in another corner, you know, uh, Americans that are against reparations in another corner, all kind of hiding in their corners, accusing the other people of trying to exploit the system and, 
and get something that they're not deserved while they can turn around and say something very similar. So I see this, I see this across all the things. And then what I realize is that, well, yeah, sure. Should Germany, I don't, I, I, we can argue about whether or not Germany should still continue to be giving shit to to Israel. That's a whole separate argument, but would there be a decent argument to say like, yeah, maybe Germany should, you know, help out the Jewish community after the Holocaust. Totally legitimate fucking argument. Should the, 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 you know, the uh, United States do something to try to protect the native people's, you know, rights and land and stuff like that? Of course, totally. So then why not reparations? Why, you know what I mean? To me, like, I, I don't, that's the part that kind of like, people will understand all these other things, which often, uh, you know, are the, they in, involve their own self-interests, of course, right? But they, they rarely are able to extend that understanding beyond their own self-interest. Right. So, That's you right. Know what I mean? so, but to me, I, I see us all asking for a similar thing. We're saying we, we've been fucked by a system here that has never really been in our interest, especially in this country and in the inception of this country, which I keep trying to, you know, I've always, I still argue with my family members that are you know, more uh, center right leaning. It's just like this country was never about freedom, was never about like, you know, wanting to be free or any of that shit. It was white landowners that wanted to be the only people that can vote, the only ones who could own land. And then they got sick of paying fucking taxes. That's right. Sounds pretty fucking like a story old as time, right? And what people have to understand, it's not just about slavery. Like I hear that term used a lot in reference to reparations. This also includes Jim Crow laws. It includes redlining 100%. and all the way up to the 1990s with Joe Biden's crime crime bills. So it's mm-hmm. it's been this has been going on for <laughs> past slavery. It has it continued through the 90s. So it's like I understand that there are individuals that have been able to beat the system. I totally get that. But not everyone is a Jay-Z. Not everyone <laughs> is a LeBron James. You know, totally. they now have wealth and they can build generational wealth for their families. But when you look at the black community as a whole, the majority of us do not have generational wealth. And it was because of the systemic issues that were put in place that prevented us from getting it. That's a big part of the problem. And I think that yes. when you explain it to people that way, you have to point out those policies that have really devastated the black community and how long it's taken us from getting out. And you guys have seen me show this video on my show before. It's the cartoon video or animated video where there's a white guy, there's a race, and then there's the white guy running against the black girl and the black girl constantly gets all these obstacles thrown in her way during the race as to why it what she has to go through just to get to the finish line and she barely gets to the finish line because of all the obstacles that she has to overcome that have been thrown at black people and i highly recommend everybody should have shown that tonight everybody like take i want you to know that a teacher was reprimanded for showing that video to her class because that's the stuff that's not in your history books that people really need to see and need to hear about. You need to hear about all these other policies that have been in place that have held black people back in this country and continue to hold black people back in this country. So their way of like kind of fixing this, at least the United States government was, okay, let's implement affirmative action. That way they can get equal opportunity. Then what happens is then you get this type of uh, stigma attached to yourself as to 
maybe that person didn't actually earn it. They just got this position or they got into the school because of the color of their skin. And I've seen that oftentimes having worked at MIT, Boston University, uh, Harvard University. There is that stigma. When people see the black kids on campus, they automatically assume they weren't as smart as me. They got in because they're black and people don't like that stigma and people don't want it. Go ahead, Roger. Meanwhile, those same people saying that got in because they knew someone. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they got in, if not for their skin color, for being white, then they got in because um, their, their parent went to this school. You know, they, they got connections, <laughs> but they would never see, see it that way. You know what I mean? That's exactly um, what I'm saying. That's the estate tax versus reparations, is they don't see... Yeah that they're fundamentally saying the same thing at the heart of a human being looking at a system and saying, this system doesn't feel right to me. I would argue that the estate tax thinks is a stupid fucking thing to look at that way, but they do though. So I'm willing to entertain that that's the way that they look at it. Right. So that's the thing that I feel like, how do we get over that hump? This is a question that's more of just like not looking for an answer, but something that we need to ponder. It's a philosophical question that we have to figure out how to bridge that gap because there's enough people out there that I think understand that when you explain to them, the system has been rigged against me, brother, since the fucking beginning, you can dig, right? And they go, yeah, man, I can dig that. But then when you say, so give black people money for reparations and they go, no, fuck that shit. The motherfucker black people don't deserve shit. Right. You know what I mean? I worked hard. Again, so forgetting did we. it's not a fucking, not exactly. Forgetting so did it's we, not we never got paid for it. <laughs> I totally, that's why, that's why I agree with you, but I'm saying like, then we devolve yeah, yeah. into that fight and I just want to figure out a way to how, I, I know, I know nobody's going to be able to give me yeah. the, the well, answer that... to this, but this is the question that's in my heart right now, because I want to know how we get past that, because I see there's a bridge there where all that's... human beings looking at a system that doesn't seem fair and we need to be able to learn how to be more equitable to all of each other and accept that it's not a fucking meritocracy. It's not a level playing field. That's where the data comes in. And I think that's why it's important, like reading people like Yvette Carnell and Dr. Sandy Darity, because that is one thing that they really have on their side is they have the data. They've done the research. They have the studies. So the data is going to help you. And I'll be honest with you, CR, you might have a better chance at convincing white America as the need for reparations than I do. And I say this having interviewed Marianne Williamson, particularly about that topic, about reparations. And Marianne explained that when she first would present it to people, people would cross their arms and say, oh, why do they get money and we don't? But she, once she presents the data and the history, she was able to convince people in rural areas of my neighboring state, New Hampshire, which can be very standoffish to Black people, by the way. She was able to convince people there. And I think When the message sometimes is coming from someone who looks like you, some people may receive it a lot better than they would if it was coming from someone like me. So that's a benefit that you may have that I don't have. But also, I think the data is going to be very important. Like you need to have those charts, the graphs, the diagrams that explain to people how the wealth inequality happened. And example, that article I showed tonight, I told people about that study that Boston did years ago where they found out the net worth of black Bostonians was $8 and the net worth of white Bostonians was 250 K that right there should make anyone want to pull their hair out about that type of inequality that we have. 
but we have inequality, but we also, we have uh, equity issues as well. So I think one of the things, and, and I really do sometimes wish we could go back in time. And I really do wish that someone like a Bernie Sanders would have listened to Nina Turner and had reparations as a part of his platform because that would have brought this to a much larger discussion years ago. We're, we're getting there now because there's more organizations talking about it and things like that. There was a reparations rally in D.C. But could you imagine how the support behind reparations would have been on a national debate stage if Bernie Sanders would have said this is exactly why we need. Marianne said it, but a lot of people at that time didn't know who Marianne was. Everybody knew that the front runners were Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. So if Bernie Sanders would have had that as a part of his platform, that would have brought this to a larger discussion, to a larger audience back then. And I think we could have convinced more people to get on board for it. But like I said, Bernie Sanders, he wanted reparations for his people, but he didn't want reparations for black people. And that right there, right there, let me know as being a part of the progressive movement that the progressive movement at the end of the day was not really a movement technically for black people. It was mainly a movement for white people that had some economic policies that was supposed to benefit everyone. But at the same time, yeah, you're going to try to benefit everyone through these economic policies, which I agree with giving everybody health care. I agree with universal pre-K. I agree with all that shit. But at the end of the day, you're not putting everyone on an equal footing because the people who are black in this country are already behind. So even yeah. when you do those economic policies, that doesn't fix the racism issue that we have in this country you know, wealthy black people still get pulled over by the police. Just ask Stephen A. Smith from First Take. He gets pulled by the police. Will Smith has been pulled by the police. So I think that doesn't solve that issue. And it still does not put black people on equal footing with white Americans in this country just by doing those universal basic programs. And that's something that I had to come to realize myself. And it was not easy to accept. But after I've seen the data, that is what opened my eyes up to it. It yeah. reminds me of that. Reminds me of that Chris Rock joke, which I know I shouldn't even repeat, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Where he says, "Man, even with all my money and my fame, when I come walking down the street and the cops see me, they say N word, N word, N word, N word. Oh shit, that's Chris Rock. He's like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta be within at least ten feet before my fucking fame kicks in because I'm black." Yep. You know, you know I just, it's a good show. I, yep. I almost said, I almost went said, I was like, I'll spare everybody. Oh, also, up. also, we need to dispel this whole thing about letting Republicans use our pain to score political points against Democrats. What I mean by that is this. How many times have you seen Oh, whether it's from PragerU or whoever saying, who, uh, what was the party that started the Ku Klux Klan? And it was like, oh, it was Democrats. Uh, they're the Dixiecrats. And they do all of this stuff, right? And pretty much they're trying to say, you should vote for us black people. I think now when I was a Democrat, I used to make the argument, which is a true argument. Well, there was a switch. <laughs> in the sixties, like yeah, oh, yes. yeah, you guys, they did, they you did were the flip, party. Yeah. You were the party of the abolitionists, okay. But but since I'm no longer Democrat, I don't use that 
argument anymore. My new argument is, okay, well, if you want us to vote for you, are you going to be for reparations? If not, go that way. Okay, stop trying to score political points with me by showing, look, you ain't got to convince me. I'm not a Democrat. Democrats are terrible. So stop trying to tell me that they're the party that started the KKK and Republicans were the party of the abolitionists. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know all that already. And, and, you know, they showed the whole thing with the 1932 DNC uh, convention when they had all the all the white hoods up in there and, and angry and whatnot. And all these Ku Klux Klan people walking through Washington, D.C. at the opposing Democratic integration, Washington. opposing integration. Right, right. All that Those were Democratic politicians that were trying to stop schools from being immigrated. Right, right, right. So I'm like, okay, yeah, that's all fine. I, are you going to give me reparations, Mr. Republican, Mr. Ronnie the righty or Connie the conservative? Okay, if, if not, then stop talking to me about how terrible Democrats are. You ain't got to convince me. You said yeah, that. I want to say one, I wanna say one thing. <laughs> right? I just want to say one quick thing, get out of the way, because I've been, here, been on here for too long. But I, 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 I was kind of asking a little bit of leading questions there earlier because I was looking for the answer. Uh, it, unfortunately, and I know this is this is hard. This doesn't sound like the right thing, but I still, in my heart, kind of feel like this might be the way to inch more towards progress. Is that we, we're going to have to, even though, like I said, I agree with everything that we've been talking about, and you guys know that. But I still feel like the arguing at it from a position of like black, white, this kind of stuff, like isn't going to be anywhere near as potent as the class argument at the end of the day, where we have to tell other poor white working folk that you got no fucking interest in voting for Republicans and voting against the estate tax, any of that kind of other shit. And that you want to live in a meritocracy as much as I want to live in a meritocracy. You want things to be fair as much as I wanted things to be fair. And I know that in the minds of a lot of, especially black activists, sounds like that I'm negating those kind of issues, which I'm not. You guys know that I'm on that side. But to me, I, I, I still feel that the mo- more potent argument at the end of the day is going to be a more class-generated one where we're going to have to get some of these people that actually might fucking hate us, you know, because I'm, I'm half Mexican, you know what I mean? I think you're going to so, have to do – I think you're going to have to do both. That's why I said both, tonight, yeah. like, when people come to me with that question, what about poor, you know, white people and working-class white people – my advice to them is, listen, this is why that argument that Andrew Yang had about universal basic income, that shit was spot on. Because mm-hmm. think about how many people that would have helped after the pandemic started if we had a universal basic income. You knew you had that check coming regardless if you lost your job because the business that you work for had to close. This is why you need to argue for that as well. And I think that some people, you know, some people don't support UBI, but I just want to tell you again. Alaska, which is a red state, has universal. Hey, hey, yes, income. yes. Exactly. So yes, it's just exactly. so come on, people. Let's stop letting mainstream media, both liberal and conservative mainstream media, drive this idea that this is socialism and we're going to be like Cuba and Venezuela. Bullshit. When oh, they tell you shit. that, point your finger back at them and say, What about Alaska? Your red and state. I'll- I may not be for UBI, but I'm for you. Universal, baby. And I think that's the thing right now is that all of this kind of stuff, when the reparation package comes, it's, I, I hate to say it's going to have to be paired with some other, some, you know, veterans benefits, 
you know, housing for, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's just the nature of the fucking beast in this fucking country. I hate to say it. I don't personally think this way, but if I were to judge the landscape, it's going to have to be paired in some way with something else where people can see a balance in it. They go, okay, well, it doesn't just help black people. It also helps white people. It also helps Mexicans. You know, I I agree. I agree. That's not the way to think about it. I know that's not the right way to think about it, but for my, for the life of me, I, I know that the more universal programs are, you don't mean test it. No fucking means testing it. Everybody gets health there. Everybody gets the universal basic income. But those are the things wait, that are going to help. But, but one second, Noel, before you chime in. Um, thanks so much, CR. I want to make sure I bring in Lana because she's been waiting for a minute. So let me bring her in. Love you guys. Thanks Happy so much. All right, Lana, what's going on? And then, uh, Noel, I'll pivot to you next. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Um, for what's going on, I'm just chilling, um, being very poor as a student. And I say that because as I was listening to you guys talk just now to jump off from like what you just were talking about, I think, I think, okay. Uh, I'm still working on this thought. This is a live thought, so work with me here. But I feel like the same sort of vibe or attitude that people get towards reparations is the same exact argument that people were using against student debt forgiveness. And I feel like if we could, like, crack that, particular psychosis we might be closer to like finding out how to successfully organize this movement that's a really good point there lana uh noel i want to bring you in because i know you were starting to speak as well just have to unmute there you go okay um there's a lot to discuss but Just to tail back to what CR was talking about at the end when he said um, reparations would need to be rolled out in tandem with some type of universal benefit um, speaks to how deeply racist this nation really is. And we can't have nothing shit. I beg your pardon? Uh, just I was just commenting like yeah I agree like it's like damn we can't have nothing we can't even start here but but here's the thing this is not just a we thing when it comes to reparations reparations fundamentally is a justice issue when you go back to the emancipation of the slaves that was at the end of several hundred years of forced servitude in a country that is organized around capital. How can anyone in good conscience set those people free and give them nothing? As (laughs) Frederick Douglass said, they were free to inherit the wind and the rain. And then when they managed to build community out of the skill sets that they had, those communities were systematically and consistently burned to 
the ground. And so I say to you, when we go back to the earliest conceptualizations of this country, we see an embrace of race as a means to not only operationalize capital, but in so doing, you organize the entire society around capital and race. So if you look at the entire society and say, okay, if everyone was white, the society would have been stratified by capital. And so it would have been landowners versus labor. And so the major divide in this country would have been economic wherewithal. But when you introduce race as a means of segregating labor, you created a mechanism to further stratify the entire society based primarily first on wealth and land owning and secondarily by race. And so what we see today when CR says, well, why can't we get over this divide? When when Barack Obama says, what would the immigrants think if they were asked to pay reparations, this and that? (laughs) What we are really dealing with is through this nation's embrace and start with slavery, you not only stratified by wealth, but you created identity. And so when you deal with poor whites in the 21st century who may be no better off economically than poor blacks, they still have race. They are still non-white. So when we come to the issue of reparations this far away from the actual institution of slavery, it is difficult to get these conversations going because we're not just talking about upending the system in terms of economics. We're talking about upending the entire social strata. Several generations of Americans have been born with the understanding that the base of the social strata was a black person. And so when you talk reparations, it's not just the right thing to do because of the legal preponderance of the suffering and the accrued disadvantage that the descendants of slaves through the centuries have dealt with You're talking about changing people's identity within the system. And even the poorest white person understands that there is an intrinsic privilege to being not black. And Mm -hmm. so when we look at what's going on with policing, black people and white people generally see it differently because we're policed differently. And so even the poorest white person knows that if they commit a crime, just like Dylan Roof, when he shot the people in the church, he was taken alive and he was taken to get food. That says his white skin carried a capital that black skin doesn't. And so we juxtapose Dylan Roof, who was committing a crime to a Tamir Rice, who was playing with the gun or Trayvon Martin, who was walking through a community. So when we say the equalization of opportunity and closing of wealth gaps, that translates into a whole different thing with poor white America. And to CR's point, there is no solidarity, I think, that we can get too quickly because white people 
who would be considered below the upper class, what they're dealing with is um, if you do reparations, their gut instinct is, well, what I'm going to get as if you deserve something free. This is not a handout for the descendants of slaves. This is the payment of a debt. But you can't get poor white people to recognize that because what it means to their identity. You know, we can talk about, well, you know, white people suffered too. But white people did not suffer because they had been enslaved. And the Irish who came were not enslaved. That was indentured servitude. So there is this constant attempt to avoid what slavery really represented. And so, you know, it is a very difficult thing to negotiate. But in but in terms of the education, we have to start with the fact that this is a justice claim. And the best opportunity this nation had to deal with this situation was right after the end of the Civil War. If the North had simply held its guns when it came to reconstruction, because you had an entire demographic, entire geographic segment of this nation that was reeling because they saw their property walking around feeling free. But that was the time to break the ideology around what it meant to be black. And when those, you know, one of the most treacherous things about the, um, the, the massacres is that when those things happened, not only did you have black families who were traumatized for generations, you had white working class and poor people who did it and got away with it, Scott, free. That says something about the capital that even poor white people had in simply being white. So our failure as a nation to address this situation timely has only complicated it. And now when you look at our politics, when Savvy talks about, oh, Bernie Sanders was fine with getting, you know, doing things to ensure reparations for the descendants of the Holocaust, but he was not willing to say that in terms of what's due the descendants of slaves. It is because the entirety of American politics on the Democrat side and the Republican side embraces a type of fealty to poor white America. There you go. Bingo. And so you have Democrats catering to that divide just as well as Republicans. And when Donald Trump says, I see you, the forgotten man, he knew exactly what was going on in the psyche of poor white America, who, by the way, whose jobs and livelihoods had been sent overseas as a means of capitalism. But you allow that misunderstanding to feed and support the racial divide. So it's going to take a lot of um, education, you know, to get white Americans who are not rich and who have suffered. It's going to take a lot to get them to understand the legal basis for reparations and that reparations does not represent a simple handout 
to people who have not been diminished and suffered the disadvantages, or as Yvette Carnell would say, the accrued disadvantages of Jim Crow and everything else. Right. Yeah, go ahead, Lana. I, uh, hot take. I think even poor white people are complicit. So so maybe they do owe reparations too. And maybe, so, so there's two prongs from that. One, I think we should maybe consider that they're guilty too, right? And then two, um, uh, I mean, guilty too, as in their descendants. And then two, the, the they owe us too? I think that sounded better in my head. I kind of lost how I was going to like. It's okay. Sandwich that, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's okay, Lana. And and I I like the fact that you brought up the student loan cancellation and the reaction and the backlash that we got from people about that. Um, the thing I, I make the connection there between those two issues because when everybody was like losing their shit about canceling, by the way, a small portion of student loan debt, <laughs> ten thousand to 20,000, depending on if you had the Pell Grant or not, that was very small. I know people that are, you know, over $100,000 in student loan debt, okay? Especially if you- I'm a second year law student. This year is costing me 65K. Exactly. Especially for those who went to grad school, law school, that went to uh, med school. So like, I, I, I want people to understand that was a very small amount. But what was funny to me is that some of the same people who- were coming to me saying, hell no, you took out that debt, pay back those student loans. Well, those same people would say that I needed to pay it back because it was a debt that was owed, but those same people don't want us to have reparations, which is also a debt that's owed. So which yeah. one of the debts? Like, how do we get this? Pa- Come on, people. Like, let's think about this. So are they the gatekeeper of debt forgiveness? What is that real? And why is it middle class and white poor people? Like, I notice when rich people do it, uh, the arguments against both, they're like, well, I just don't think they should have the money, right? But then, like, the the vindication behind the middle and then, and, um, low income is like, they think they're, it's it's almost okay. I, I'm like trying to think about this from my education too, because like they think that they're entitled um, to 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 keeping us in a sort of underclass, because um, they just have to be better than us. I really should have thought this out more. I hope you see what I'm trying to say. There always has to be somebody at the bottom. And let me say this, in terms of the student loan debt, student loan debt does, no matter how you slice it, it represents personal debt that individuals have taken out. Okay, that's fine. You take out this debt to go to school and it turns out that the interest rates are so exorbitant, if you don't pay it all off, you end up owing more than the original loan was in the beginning. But I say to you, In terms of student loan debt, 
the descendants of slaves have been waiting to be repaired since before student debt was even a concept. Now, how do you justify the fact that student loan debt and to be granted some relief has taken center stage in less than a decade? And you have had the descendants of slaves yeah. fighting for reparations for centuries, but yeah. student loan debt runs to the head of the class. And then the, when you break down student loan debt and what the relief means, it means that people in this society who have gained education and advanced education, which puts them far and above the people who have not gotten education. And so we're going to relieve you from a debt so that you can go ahead and live an even greater life than the high salaries that some of these people will get. And I'm not against the relief of student loan debt, but I say to you, how do you justify dealing with that as an issue ahead of reparations, which is a national debt that this nation owes a particular segment of the population? And for them to conflate um, student loan debt relief with a closure of the racial wealth gap is simply ludicrous. But it's a way to make it seem palatable to black people. Oh, black people will be gaining relief in this and that. But get this, like Savvy said earlier, most black people don't even go to college. And so whereas yeah. reparations would cut across the, the line based on lineage, student loan debt relief is appealing to a specific segment of the black population that is already ahead because of the degree to which it has been educated. That's right. So and something just, I want to um, mention really quick about student loan debt. This is why I was so frustrated when Nina Turner and Ayanna Presley, both of them went on to CNN and said, canceling student loan debt, this is lowering, um, decreasing the, the, the racial wealth gap. I was so furious with both of them. Both of them are black women. They know damn well that that does not close the racial wealth gap because the majority of African-Americans don't have student loan debt. What about all the black people who don't go to college, who simply right after high school, they have a job. That's what most people are doing. Most of my family members did not go to college, you guys. If I go back to Baltimore and I go back to visit my family members, they didn't go to school. They worked. They've been working since they were in high school. So that is the reality. When I say, when we talk about the class issue and the working class, a lot of black people are a part of the working class. So this idea that Ayanna Presley and Nina Turner tried to send to people on CNN and say, look at what we're doing to close the racial wealth gap. It was a slap in the face and a disgrace, especially for Ayanna Presley knowing damn well what that Boston Globe article pointed out, how black people's net worth in Boston is $8 and white people's net worth is 250K. And she knows that. And that's why I was so frustrated. So I think the thing is, the research has been done by Dr. Sandy Darity, and he explained this very well that canceling student loan debt and even implementing baby bonds does not close the racial wealth gap. The only way that you can do that is through reparations. That's how far behind African-Americans, the African-American community is in this country when we talk about wealth. And even when we talk about student loan debt, 
black people, black students, we owe more than our white counterparts when it comes to student mm -hmm. loans. And that again goes back to the generational wealth. So we have to take out more student loans than our white friends. And people really need to understand that. So we are already way behind as a community. And that's yes. what people need to understand and need to get. For people who are also poor, for people who are also working class that are not African-American, this is the reason why I also think you need to advocate for some type of universal basic income because it is true that if you're still living with poverty too, you still got to deal with that issue. But how do you get out of that, right? You need to advocate for universal basic income. You got to do that. And the same way that people were willing to get on board with Andrew Yang, like he was the one that brought that to the light. It wasn't his idea. Martin Luther King also championed universal basic income and he championed reparations, which, by the way, is not going to be in your history books when you go to school. So you have to understand that both of those things should be done. However, that being said, to Noel's point, look at the legislation that is put pushed faster and the ones that are held up. Even when we talk about the anti-hate bill, moment Joe Biden was in office, he signs this anti-Asian hate bill. Okay, cool. But you also decide to give the police more money after what just happened with George Floyd and what the black community has been dealing with for decades in this country. Where's the anti-hate bill for African-Americans in this country? They couldn't even pass the anti-lynching bill. But look how quickly he moved to protect another group over black people. We are always at the bottom of the list, Lana. That is yeah. my frustration. Yes. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say also, um, the, uh, the Homestead Act, which gave reparations to slaveholders for um, losing their slaves at the end of the Civil War. It wasn't just one act. It was a bunch of acts that were passed from 1862 all the way to 1912, I think it was. So they got their reparations. Oklahoma, most of Say the again? people there, most of the people in like Oklahoma, Texas, and I forgot what's on the right of Oklahoma. Yeah, that whole region state. is like most of the white people there are homestead descendants. Yeah, yeah. That That's what Little House on the Prairie was based on. And you um, will also notice that with the Homestead Act, and Martin Luther King mentioned that in one of his yes. speeches, the mm -hmm. immigrants from Europe were able to take advantage and go out west and claim land as well. So yep. when he said you upbuild your poor peasants from Europe while you allow the descendants of slaves to inherit the wind and the rain, as Frederick Douglass <laughs> would say. And so mm -hmm. we're and, and this is a very important point, because when we look at the Homestead Act, the and various other pieces of legislation, the GI Bill, the Farm Bill, when we look at these things that had a disparate economic impact on the descendants of slaves, you see the federal government being involved in bestowing an advantage, a discrete economic advantage to its white population. So when we talk about reparation and we talk about how to repair this, it is a reversal. 
It is a reversal. Yeah. If you did things that held black people back and push white people forward, the only way you're going to balance or reverse that is to do things for the descendants of slaves and hold back what's going to white America, which is why I get so furious when people say, oh, a rising tide lifts all boats. Oh, if you're going to do reparations, you got to pair it with a universal basic income. Because what you're saying is when America did things specifically for white people and held black people at bay, it was OK. But the thought of doing something specifically for black mm -hmm. people and not doing things for white people mm -hmm. is somehow very disturbing to your core. But yes. And yes. when we did, when we did um, the, what was it in the 60s with the civil rights, affirmative action, when you included women as a category under Title VII, you opened the door for white women as a minority group to come in and take advantage of that legislation. So the whole idea that it would give us a level playing field with employment and other things, when you knew what was needed was repair, but then when you did the remedial action, you included white women, and white women have benefited more from affirmative action than any other group. That's right, so, because when you look at those leadership positions, even in the higher education system, I've been in corporate America and I've been in higher ed. When you look at the leadership positions, black women are usually at the bottom of the list. Those positions, even when they do say, oh, we're going to, you know, have diversify, we're going we're to do diversity. Most of the people in the leadership positions are men, usually white men. And then after that, it's white women. Exactly. You see, you see what I'm saying? Even black men will be put up in that leadership position before a black woman. We are usually at the bottom of the list. They don't want us to have yeah. anything. I feel like. Yeah. Well, here, here's, okay. here's the thing, though. It's not just white people that got stuff or, you know, whatever. There's other people of color that got things that were specifically for their group and they did not have to Japanese tie to Americans. anything. Japanese American, um, Native Americans got some things too. I'm not, I mean, uh, to not as much as what they had before. I mean, they got screwed a lot also, but things that were, um, that they got was specifically targeted toward them. Same thing with, 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 you know, uh, uh, all these other groups. But when it is something that is needed for us, then it has to be, you know, Joe Biden says, oh, I'll do this for black people if it's tied to Native Americans. Like, you understand what he's trying to do? They're trying to create division, just like the division that comes from the. Um, so when he was when when King was talking about immigration and they were undergirded, um, that was before the 1965 Immigration Act, right? So the 1924 Immigration Act um, put a ban on non-European, on immigrants from non-European countries from coming here because Congress blatantly said, we want to base the census on, we want to base this law on the 1890 census, okay? And they said, we have to keep our gene pool uh, uh, pure and and superior. The 1890 Chinese Exclusion Act. Who? 
Well, okay. Well, they they said that they wanted to uh, do the um, census where you know majority white. Okay, so they made sure to keep out um, immigrants from non-white countries, just European, because they was talking about keeping the American gene pool pure and white, and so on and so forth. Right. So just like King said, when they came here, they stepped over us and got all of these other things. But it also continued because the 1965 um, Immigration Act, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, lifted the ban. But then here is the division that came about. Once they saw that people from um, other countries, from countries that are non-white, were going to come here, they would tell them, including black immigrants, okay, and I've heard um, black immigrants say this also, they would purposely tell them, do not, uh, what's the word? It begins with a C, congregate or whatever it is with black Americans, okay? A lot of times they come here and they believe the stereotypes about freedmen. You see what I'm saying? I'm going to tell my uh, Jamaican friends you said that, Roger. (laughs) Oh, I have Jamaican friends also, but... (laughs) You, you know what I mean? But here's the thing. That's, I mean, you know, like there's, there is a looking down on freedmen from, uh, uh, from, from the black immigrant community as well. I mean, look, I'm in New York. So, you know, um, a lot of my first generation uh, Americans, I always remember I was friends with them, but I weren't friends with their parents. You see what I'm saying? So I was always looked at as the, as the bad influence you know, the bad American influence, you know, because, you know, because their parents was Haitian or Jamaican or whatever the case is. But I never really paid much attention to that because I wasn't friends with their parents. I was friends with them. So, you know, you hear words like Yankee and all that different type of stuff or whatever the case is. Right. But they do that to, to so that to keep the division going, because they I guess they saw that eventually this would be a minority white country. And the last thing they want is to be outnumbered. So it is to create division okay, mm. among black people and other people of color. You feel what I'm saying? Some people don't reckon. So this is how, how you get, I mean, we might say, oh, you know, white people are against reparations or whatever. But look, there is a huge com- uh, Hispanic community that's against that, that, that don't give a crap about black people. Okay. That's right. Huge. That is true. Okay, and I never really being in New York, I never really seen it that way because, you know, Puerto Ricans, we just kind of like all kind of, you know what I'm saying? It's just different when when you get out, when you get outside the Northeast or at least New York or whatever. A lot Mm -hmm. of them are heavily racist toward black people. Okay, they a lot of times they just as bad as whites or even worse. Okay, they do the whole black face and all that different type of stuff. Because Um, remember, every group still wants to have somebody at the bottom and look at so how they treat the afro latinos in their country you know yep. like I, I i hear i i like i like the shows that you and your brothers do from rbn do talking about um all these great things about cuba and so on and so forth but cuba is heavily racist against black cubans yes okay i mean they they are like egregiously i mean they come here and they're racist you know what I mean? You know, and a lot of them want want that status. You know, same thing. I've seen it. I've seen it with other uh, uh, people of color as well. But just going back to the, um, you also have speaking of the division, 
even in the reparations community, there is also a division between those who are of the Garvey movement, you know, the Pan-Africanism, right. where, you know, these would be people like um, Umar John, Dr. Umar Johnson, Rick Carr over but there. But didn't Dr. Uh, Martin. Go ahead. Didn't Dr. Umar Johnson say recently on, I have to go back and check, didn't he say recently on an interview that he didn't agree with reparations? He didn't agree yeah, with yeah, the yeah, check. Yeah. He said, no. See, see, that, see, that's what I'm saying. It's, there's, there is a different, there's two different reparations communities. There's one that is specifically for freedmen, okay? Uh, American descendants of slaves, formerly enslaved, that is talking about us specifically. And then you have a broader community, just like, remember when you had the Green Party lady on your show who was running for us? No, 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 she was a black woman. Uh, she was a Green Party lady running for, for some state, office Gloria, uh, Gloria Cabello she I know she was dark skin she had glasses I forgot she her was name from or Connecticut Michelle yeah 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 so you you would have people like her and you know what and, and even the Green Party they agree with reparations but they do it from a at the African this this diaspora yeah yes you see what I'm saying? Where but the Green Party is the only political party that we have true. in this country that actually true. has true. reparations on their platform. True. And this is another thing why I get frustrated with them about, too, because I feel like they should heavily be reaching out to the African community. I mean, it's a, to me, this don't make no sense. I'm, I'm like, why you guys? You guys have to reach out to people like, yes, I bring you on my show, mm -hmm. but you got to reach out to other people, too. You can't just sit back and just be like oh yeah by the way i'm running for an election because then it comes across as a social club yeah. if you really yeah. care about those issues and you really want to bring that to the masses why aren't you going to go to africa why aren't you going to african-american communities and letting them know that you have reparations platform on you do you this this drives me crazy because and i, I say this because with the exception of people who like watch us but watch independent media and let's be real because some of left independent media doesn't talk about the green party at all with the exception of those who watch us, most black people that I know had no idea that the Green Party had reparations on their platform. That's not a fault of the black community. That's a fault of the Green Party not delivering that message to the community. Because it's not their yeah. priority, like Noel was saying earlier. Yeah, let, let me like, just say you real can't quick. just talk about climate. Like, obviously, everyone knows that the Green Party is going to be for climate issues. That's why it's called Green Party. But you need to talk about those other issues that are on your platform that could really, I think, win a lot of people over. I mean, the Democratic Party doesn't have reparations on their platform, and neither does the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so with the um, I know I wanted I wanted to piggyback on what Noel Noel was talking about. Um, when she was talking about reconstruction. Um, I mean, some of us know and some of us don't know. Well, really but, quick, um, Roger, let me, um, oh, yeah, let okay. me say yeah, goodbye to Lana and bring in Brady. Yeah, so sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I just realized. Just Thank really you quick. so much. Great talk. Thanks for calling in, Lana. All right, Brady, you're on the mic. Let uh, Roger go ahead and finish with uh, what Noel oh, yeah. was saying, and then we'll bring in Brady. So, yeah, yeah. She was talking about reconstruction, right? And um, the Reconstruction was like the best chance we had those 12 years after um, slavery. And when I was talking about the Freedmen's Bureau, it ended at the 
at the Great Compromise of 1877. In case anybody don't know what it is, was this. So, like I said, Republicans originally were the abolitionists and for um, abolishing slavery and so on and so forth. So what happened was um, during the election, the presidential election, I believe uh, the Democrats took over the House. And then what happened was there was a split in the Electoral College, uh, an even split between Sam Tildare, the Democrat, Dixiecrat, and Rutherby Hayes, the Republican. So what they did was they made Rutherby, made Rutherby Hayes bend the knee and say, because it was going to be up to the House who was going to be president. So they got Rutherby Hayes in order for him, the Republican, to become president, that he had to agree to removing Union troops out the South, okay, because the um, the Union troops were acting as bodyguards for freedmen, as you know, because during that Reconstruction time, there were more black elected officials or that swept not just in the Congress but into the state capitals than there ever probably has been since. But they um, they couldn't touch them because the Union troops were, were pretty much being bodyguards and protecting them. So when Rutherby Hayes, they call it the Great Compromise of 1877 after the 1876 presidential election, when he agreed to, to doing that and the Union troops were called out, that's when the, the you know, Reconstruction ended they got to lynching us, raping us, beating us, all different types of inhumane things to us, pretty much. Um, the Freedmen Bank got driven into the ground and all of that. Now, when I think of, I want to compare, I want to compare this to BLM. So a lot of times when you hear, when we hear the word Black Lives Matter. We hear it differently than whites. When he, when we hear Black Lives Matter, we hear there is an implicit two that comes after it. Not the number two, but the word two, T-double-O. When they hear it, or, 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 we'll, or, we'll, or implicit also, but when they hear it, they hear an implicit only that comes after the word matter. So this is something that has always been in the psyche of of, of black of um, white America, being pro black empowerment does not mean being anti white. So every time we make a stay, make a case, and say, and we insert our um, authority or our will over our destiny to empower ourselves, what about me? How come I can't? Well, well, well what about uh, reparations for me? Or like, okay, fine, look. We're not saying that you or them or whoever, if you feel that you're do something, make a case. Okay? Make a case. That's my point. All right? Like, we're not, exactly. We're not trying to stop you. We're not trying to stop you, but you're trying to stop us. We're just making our case. If you feel that you got a case, make your case. Yeah. You see what I I'm saying? Like so, go ahead. My bad. Just to jump in here. I just said, uh, you know, I'm bringing s'mores and a fire to the party so i've got good news and some hard news for everyone the good news is i've come up with at least just one idea for a reparation equation and that is just doing the math and going back and looking at how many labor hours 
someone worked every day for their whole life and adding that up and uh, assigning a reasonable wage, uh, according to the times for that, adjusting that for inflation and distributing that evenly among the descendants of those workers, regardless of who they are, what color they are. This can apply to Asian workers, Irish indentured servants, whatever it wants to be. It can apply to anyone who's who's had that um, that slavery in their in their family history. Because, you know, I have like Nigerian clients that I work for. They're from Nigeria. They're very wealthy. They're Donald worshipers, you know, so they, they, I don't it doesn't make sense for them to qualify for this. And that would eliminate the racial aspect from it right out the bat. Now, plus they look the good down news. on black Americans. So what do you guys think about that equation? How, how does that work for y'all? What do you think? And, and you know, we have enough I, of this. We have enough of this Medicaid to waive student debt. We have enough to take care of all of these problems. We really do. If you cut back so, that bloated ass military industrial complex budget, you cut mm -hmm. back the defense budget. All of done. these, all of these things could be met. Listen, why are we in, in 2023? Why are we still having to plead the case for housing for everybody, for health care for everybody in this country? When you have other countries abroad that have these guaranteed rights for the people because they realize that the people need this as a necessity. Why are we still having to debate this and plead the case for this in 2023? Like this is absolutely ridiculous. If they were to decrease the defense budget, all of these things that we are asking for could be met. That budget is ridiculously bloated and it has increased over the years. And I showed this on my show, how over the decades, how much money they've added to the, the defense budget in our country, it's getting higher and higher and higher. And I understand it's going to escalate if we are at war, but we are not under attack. And right now the defense budget is over $800 billion. It doesn't make any sense anymore. So for the people who claim that they are advocates, like the people like Rokana, the people like AOC and all of them, what they should be advocating for is chopping that defense budget and meeting the needs of the American people, not voting along with the legislation that screws the American people in the back. And I 100% stand by that. And so my big thing is to a point like what you said, Brady, about meeting everyone's needs, we do have the money to get this done. The problem is the people who control the purse, which are not the politicians, the people who control the purse in the United States, these corporations, these billionaires, all of these people, they're the ones that are calling the shots. The politicians are just puppets and they're in there just trying to survive and keep their seat so they can make a name for themselves and write a damn book that most of us aren't going to read anyway. So I think we really have to... Platform. Yeah, under the platform of the People Party, we've got ways to take care of reparations, student debt, health care, housing, food, all that stuff. No problem. It can all be taken care of. Now, that's the good news. That this is an achievable goal, and we can do it. It's right at our fingertips. All we got to do is reach out there and grab it. The bad news. Here's the hard pill to swallow that I brought, and not everyone's going to like this, but is everyone familiar with the work of Siddhartha Kara? He wrote a book called Cobalt Red. It was recently on Joe Rogan talking about the modern day slave industry. And we need to have a real conversation about some modern day reparations to put an end to slavery because it's worse today than it ever was. And uh, anyone who owns an electric car, a, a cell phone, a computer, we're all slave masters. We're all guilty. We all got blood on our hands. Every single one of us. 
today. And the, I think the fastest thing we can do to tackle this problem is to put an end to planned or engineered obsolescence. This is like, you know, they invented a light bulb in the 1900s that burns forever. They instantly said, no, no, we got to put an end to this so that people have to buy light bulbs all year. They've applied the same model to our computers and cell phones, and they can be made modular and repairable. can be made modular and repairable. Roger, you have an echo. Brady. Yeah. But yeah, if we can if we can use modular technology for our cell phones, when our cell phones broke, if the camera broke, you get a new you get a new camera for it. Pop it right in. If you need a new hard drive, you get a new hard drive. When you need a new battery for your cell phone, you get a new battery. This technology could have been implemented and streamlined and made available a long time ago, but instead what we're getting is software updates that cause our hardware to go obsolete. It's the exact opposite of what we're doing. And what it is is greed on the backs of human labor, human slave labor. These There are women out there working with children on their backs right now to mine cobalt out of the ground. And there's a huge propaganda campaign against it, um, but we all got blood on our hands right now and we gotta do something to start well, washing that off. Well, Brady. Not to mention uh, crumbles, crumble cookies. I don't know if you guys you know, participate in their cookiedom, but Crumble Cookie just got, you know, I don't want to say convicted, but they were just outed for exploiting child labor law. Like they were, they were doing child labor, Crumble Cookie, the chain. So it's mm. just, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. Brady, so here's the thing. Um, I know you didn't mean it, by um what's the word uh i know you didn't i know your heart's in the right place but i am very, i'm probably the whitest person on calling at the same time so, so yeah you so, gotta forgive so, me <laughs> so, so listen listen to what i'm saying um when you said uh what about this suggestion or that suggestion i would say the best thing that you can do is not offer any suggestions just Go with what black people are saying in terms of we tell you what we need. And then you just respect, man, I don't care what color anyone is. I'm, no, I'm going to no, treat yeah, everyone the same. Like, no, no, no matter right. what color they are. Yeah, but you're we're not, all humans. We're all in the right, same family not, together. We're right, all earthlings at the hearing, end of the day. Right, right. But you're and not doing what I'm, I'm going to treat everyone with the same kind of respect that, that they deserve. I understand. Regardless I understand that, Brady. But I think what Roger is saying is that this particular discussion is about reparations for black people though and hey i the reparations fall on my shoulders right i'm the whitest guy here so like that means I, and I, I got slaves in my family history my, my great 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 grandfather again, you're, you're, you're owned two women it, oh my god so okay, this is I, my work yeah, i mean i have work to do the reparations are mine to make right so i i mean is there anything wrong with my idea like was there something that we could do to make it better like i I think what can go towards making it better, Roger is speaking to, is there are black intellects like Dr. Darity who has done tremendous work on this, the idea of reparations. And I find it offensive for you to say, oh, we can um, take all of the, collect all the hours, regulate all the hours that people did slave labor in a pair apply a fair labor rate to it and then just pay everybody without regard to race and this and that, that is very offensive to me because our blues are not the same across this nation. There was a group of Africans 
who were enslaved and their descendants were enslaved for over 200 years. And so when we talk about the women in other countries and the children in other countries who are being, you know, forced to do labor, I am against that as well. But let's not conflate all these issues. Let's deal with the issue of what this nation owes its descendants of slaves first. Because when we deal with those issues, we can do both at the same time. That is about foreign policy. And that is what we're really talking about. What we're really talking about, um, Grady, is the deconstruction of capitalism. Because once you look at what this country does in order to access resources in other countries, that has a lot to do with our imperialist and hegemonic profile in the rest of the world. Well, so, the and that directly relates to capitalism. The thing under socialism. socialism is guilty of the same sin. But that's why when we face how to reconstruct and deconstruct what's going on in this country, we need to deal with these things separately. Let's not roll it all together because what you do when you conflate no, those issues. At once. We can take care of everybody we, at once. No, There's no, no, no because the no, everybody has specificity. And when you aggregate these things, what happens is you flatten it out and make one person's narrative equal to the other. And that's not the case. And so you can deal with it under one big topic, but you have to break that topic down and say, this is the way we will approach this. And this is the way we will approach that. Then it's going to be Native Americans first. You would agree with that, right? And and you know what? Because wait a minute. Wait a minute, because Native Americans have already received some level of repair. And if exactly. you check the and if you check the history, you will find that there were Native Americans who participated in the institution of slavery as well. That's right. So, I want to add something really quick here. I want to add something really quick here when we talk about Native Americans. Um, I have had this conversation with Delilah multiple times on my show. Um, some of you are familiar with her. She ran as a Green Party candidate for governor in Texas uh, against Beto and Governor Abbott. And this is the way that Delilah has explained it to me. I've also had this conversation with Decolonized Buffalo uh, podcast as well. They are not asking for reparations. They have made that very clear to me, both groups, because they have treaties. We don't have that. They have actually received some form of repair. That is what Noel is speaking to now. There is still the push for some indigenous groups to ask for land back. I totally get that. I totally support that. And we've had this conversation on RBN and on my show as well. But again, they have made it very clear to me that they are not asking for reparations there are plenty who still feel, would like some reparations, though. That, that's what? One group, there are plenty of Native Americans who still could use some reparations and are still asking. I'm not for saying, them. listen, I'm not saying, I'm not, I, like I just said, they are also asking for land back. I'm not saying they got all of their needs met because they have not. But what I want you to understand, Brady, is that they made it very clear to me that they are not asking for reparations because they have treaties and they have certain things that are specific to their tribes. That is a different thing. Yeah. So I think to Noel's point, I'm glad that we don't have to, I'm glad that that's been patched up, I guess, enough that we can move forward on that aspect. 
personally, I think there's more. No, that we I can, think you're misunderstanding what I'm what I'm saying, Brady. I'm not yeah. saying that they are completely settled with everything. Obviously, yes, there is more that should be done. But this particular conversation is about reparations for African-Americans in this country. And what you just did is you did what a lot of people do is they start to bring in other groups. And I have separate discussions when we talk about issues for other groups where I talk about the class issue. This is why I've said before, a lot of y'all need to get on board with that whole idea that Andrew Yang had about a, a UBI, which actually came from Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King. Yes, we do need a living wage for people in this country. I totally agree with those issues. But this particular discussion is about reparations for African-Americans. It's not about everybody else. Yeah. It's not about so, indigenous people. So, it's about our fight and our flight in this country. And I went over a whole list of shit on my show tonight of the things that have been done to African-Americans in this country, which include past slavery, redlining, Jim Crow. Has, has anyone talked about red Joe Biden's crime yet. bills. Has anyone talked about red cobalt, that new book yet, though? And the slavery epidemic we're facing today, because it does involve Asian people. It, it does involve more than okay, black people. That is their fight, Brady. It's our fight, too. The blood's on our hands. That blood's on our Brady, hands. Brady, their blood that is on our hands. is not what we are talking about tonight. You need I can to talk stop about inserting other groups into this conversation. That is not what this conversation is about. Let me make it very clear. And I want to be very I'll specific here. Because there have been multiple times where, as a black person, I've been discriminated against by other people of color, by the same people that you just brought up in this conversation, by mm -hmm. Asian Americans, by Latino Americans, by indigenous Americans as well. So at the end of the day, black people are still at the bottom of the list, even when you include those other groups of color. That is yes. the point I'm bringing forward. That's I'm totally going to move true. on. That's, that's not up for debate. Yeah, I'm going to move on because Davis and Robin have been waiting. So y'all need to examine this Robin, book, Red Cobalt, that came out. Y'all need to examine this Red Cobalt book and take an examination of modern day slavery at the same time that we're doing this. We can walk and no one's at the saying same time. no one's saying we shouldn't do that, Brady. But the thing is, when you came into this discussion, you tried to deflect to another issue when what we are talking about right here, right now is reparations for African-Americans. It's not about no other book. It's not about Asian Americans. It's not about you know, Latino Americans. It's not about indigenous people. And here you come in trying to be their savior for these other groups. And this I'm is trying not to help. the conversation. It doesn't matter what color ahead, I am. Davis. I'm trying to help. Go ahead, Davis. What color yes, I am does not Sabi. matter. I'm trying to help. Uh, how are you doing, Sabi? I'm all right. Sorry about, um, you know, you know. <laughs> Uh, sorry about all of that uh, noise, but I'm going to keep it together and keep it classy and, and go back to my original point because I, you know, I can't uh, say what I really want to say to that guy. Um, so anyway, up, my question of <laughs> what's up, my rep, my question is uh, what's up, Roger? My question is, is um, in terms of reparations, uh, based on some of the comments that we've heard from, you know, some non-black people, just even in this chat, um, and also based on the general impression that I get from uh, non-black people of color in, in, in real life from interacting with them, I, I don't think that, in my view, that, that um, it, there's a viable path 
for reparations for black Americans uh, in this political milieu, in this political climate, uh, because anti-black sentiment is so deeply baked in uh, that it is now automatic, even in groups that aren't, you know, African like, or black, if you want to call it that. Um, and, and speaking to Roger's comments, I'm, I'm Kenyan, you know, I'm African and I'm well aware of, of the sentiments that a lot of Africans have with regards to African Americans. And honestly, I think it's just propaganda. Um, I mean, we African people, we have, you know, we're, we're susceptible to the same propaganda that convinces everybody else that America is this paradise. Uh, and then we move here and we get the rude shock. You know, so when we're back over there and we are just exposed to, you know, the movie version of America or the TV version, I mean, even black people look good in, in that version of America. I remember growing up, you know, I wanted to, I was wearing baggy pants, you know, with oversized t-shirt when I was like 15 years old, trying to be crisscross in, in Nairobi, <laughs> Kenya, which is like, a hundred in, in like 85 degree weather. Can you send us a picture <laughs> you know of that, saying? please? Huh? Can you send us a picture of that, please? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll talk to my brother. We have a family group chat. I think we, I, I think we just have like the, remember when you used to talk photographs with actual cameras and you had to take the film and develop them? Um, I, I have the album of that. It was a Christmas day present that my mom brought us. We all went out and, and bought baggy jeans and and we bought FUBU, you know, oversized FUBU T-shirts. We were looking fly as hell, and we were dying in that heat. But we did not care. You know what I'm saying? Because we wanted to be crisscross. Uh, so, and we are also aware of the the dark history of America. I mean, we wa I watched Roots in in you know back home, and it made me angry. Mm -hmm. You know, it made me all, it made all my brothers angry. Where there's five of us, you know, in my family, and we were pissed off. You know. So we come here. Uh, so there's there's like two battling tendencies. There's the the uh, the dream version, the American dream version. You know, the propagandistic version that America broadcasts to the rest of the world, um, which convinces people that well, America looks kind of amazing. So why are these black Americans struggling? You know, so that's where that comes from, and it took coming here uh, for me to truly understand you know, what the situation is like here for, for you guys. And it took me about uh, five or seven years living here to become even angrier than you <laughs> because I was crushed by, by the realizations of how deeply entrenched um, racism is in America. I, I honestly was crushed. I was blindsided by it. And you, I don't know if you know anything about psychology, but you know, the innocent child who gets a rude awakening is often like angrier and more deadlier than like the cynical kid who kind of knew what, you know, knew what was up from the beginning. Because I came in here with an open heart, you know, like I was ready to like, you know, live my dream and link up with black Americans and all that stuff. And, and, I have done that, but I'm also quite bitter and angry uh, about how intractable and seemingly impossible to beat anti-black racism is in this country. And 
my mm-hmm. path for reparations, uh, not that it's in my place to suggest, but based on my observation of American culture generally and the political culture here, I don't think there's a viable path really outside of the more um, revolutionary type of, of reparations, which demands that, you know, black Americans, not really demands, but if black Americans want to get reparations, they have to have some sort of leverage. Uh, because right now, the political parties, if they say no, there's really nothing that African Americans can do to sort of, you know, uh, punish the, the system because we, you don't have power. Well, we don't have power. I'm black now. I mean, I mean, I'm Kenyan, but I'm black still in America. So we don't really have the power to do something to, to this system if it says no to reparations. Right. We don't, like if we, we don't have any control over the systems in this country. And that's what people need to understand. These are systemic issues. As much as I complain about public education system in this country, that's just one piece of the puzzle. It's also the criminal justice system. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, there's so many different things that we talk about electoral politics that, again, we have no control over that. Look, we had a black president and look how well that that turned out for black people. Right. Yeah, right. So- Not well at all. I mean, you know, uh, Obama oversaw a, a huge drop in, in black wealth, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he didn't bail out African-Americans. He bailed out Wall Street, the cause of this mess. Well, the same Wall Street that was selling subprime loans to black folks, you know, knowing that they were going to default and then they would cash in on that. And Obama bailed them out That's right. and left African-Americans, you know, and other poor people out in the cold. And during the campaign, he couldn't stop talking about signifying his blackness. He talked about how he was a skinny kid from the south side of Chicago. I'm skinny but tough. I'm like, no, motherfucker, you are a Kansas boy. You are not from Chicago. Okay, (laughs) please. You are more Kansas than Chicago. And you have always been more Kansas than Chicago. And you will always be more Kansas than Chicago. Shut up. You know what I'm saying? He didn't even end up in Chicago until he started dating Michelle. Uh-huh, exactly. And before dating Michelle, he was dating some, like, mixed-race girl, you know? And and he realized that, you know, he's a very cynical political actor, that one. Before I realized how deeply Machiavellian Obama is, man, it took me a while to realize this guy is ruthless, ruthless political actor, right? He, like, did signifying with the basketball. He made sure, you know, when the cameras were looking, he would, like, dap like if, if like if, if people were of all races were in the lineup and he was greeting them, he would like shake the white people's hands and then he would like dap the black people. Right. Like and then black African-Americans and other black people would be like, that's my boy. And I'm like, uh, he's playing us. Yes. <laughs> he's like sending us this signifies like, look, I'm just like you while bailing out, you know, the same Wall Street that that caused a massive tanking in, in black wealth. So to me, Obama is truly truly a diabolical figure in the history of black people in the world. Well, let's, truly. Let, let's, let me ask you a question really quick, Davis. And then I want to bring in Robin here as well. You're from Kenya. Yes. What was it like for you coming from a country where see, I, I'm thinking about in efforts of fighting the class issue. I think the reason why we're seeing these uprisings in countries like Sri Lanka, right, where they stormed the prime minister's house and they're like, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you've been doing us wrong for a long time. The reason why we're seeing that in other countries is because those countries tend to be more monolithic. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering 
you coming from a place like Kenya, where most of the people there look like you. Mm-hmm. Coming to America, which is more of a melting pot, was that a culture shock for you? And do you think there could be some type of class uprising in the U.S.? Or do you think it, it has a better chance of something like that happening in your home country? Well, the, the unique thing about my home country is that Kenya is, um, uh, I've spoken about this before, Kenya is what you would call a coon country. Okay. What? Yep. Yep. Uh, I, I, Kenya is a coon country. If you, you know what a coon is as a person, if it was a country, it would be Kenya. Okay. And I'm not necessarily talking about the actual Kenyan people, but the ruling class, the ruling elites. Um, so they adopted entirely sort of the neoliberal capitalist mode of, of governance and, and commerce. And so what neoliberalism, huh? You got Larry Elder and Candace Owens ruin, ruling your country? Please. they Man, don't get me started. <laughs> Kenya is nothing but Candace Owens is and, and, you know, and, uh, and the other guy that you mentioned. Because Larry. we have two military bases in, 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 in our country. We have the MIC, the British system, you know, the, the British military um, organization, as well as the U.S., you know, military bases. Right in a black, what do you think? You know what I'm saying? So Kenya doesn't. To answer your question, Sabi, neoliberalism. What it does to populations is that it disincentivizes coming together, right? It, because capitalism, you know, it it breaks people apart. It creates social deprivation. It pits people against each other. And African countries have this unique problem where, you know, we are all different tribes. I mean, yes, we are all Africans, but uh, the, the tribal identity is the main identifier, uh, which is why Africans come to America and they are resistant to being called black, not because we're denying our blackness, but really it's because my whole life I was known as my tribe, right? So that's my identifier. Um, and also we don't live in, in uh, a melting pot society racially. So everything is just black. So we never really think about blackness, really. See, I mean, that's what I, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Sabi, I mean, I'm thinking I identify with black Americans. You know, I grew up listening to hip hop and rap and admiring, you know, black American actors because they looked like me. So of course there's the racial uh, consciousness there, but then we would like engage in American pop culture. I mean, growing up, Back then, the TV used to come on at 4 p.m. and ends at 12, right? So it wasn't like this constant stream of American propaganda being subjected to the whole world today. So we still retained uh, our African identities. I mean, you could only watch TV for like five hours. And like three of those was your dad watching news, which was so boring. And we just hated him for that. Of course, now I'm obsessed with news and I can't stop listening to news. (laughs) But at the time, we only had like a couple hours. So... The rest of the time we were outside, you know, speaking our languages and and just existing, right? So growing up like that, um, is it easy to foster class solidarity, perhaps in other African countries? But Kenyans, we we are the Americans of of East Africa. Uh, Tanzanians don't like Kenyans. Um, You know, Ugandans are, they just love everybody, generally speaking. Uh, so they don't mind us as 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 much, but Tanzanians cannot stand Kenyans, and I don't blame them. I do not. 
Uh, we are like the Americans over there. We think that we are all that, but really ain't shit. That's what we are. The Tanzanians have more of a socialist history. Julius Nyerere, as you well know, premier African socialist. So, of course, they were sanctioned to death, and their economy isn't as good as Kenyans, for example. But they have way more natural resources, right? So ask yourself, how? why did the Europeans choose to come to Kenya and set up base over there? Two military bases from former colonizer countries in your land, okay? So to answer your question, could there be class solidarity in Kenya? I'm not so sure. In other African countries, yeah, there, there could be. And, and the only... Huh? Uh, yes. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah, yeah. My bad. I was talking about customer, but no, I was. Oh, okay. I was. Just, I, I was just gonna say. Um, yeah, I never get got a chance to finish uh, talking because you know Brady kept kept talking over me. But what I was trying to say is, if you're going to be a black ally, don't tell us what we need. Okay. You listen to us and we tell you what we need and you support it. Now, that tepid criticism and he started talking about, oh, well, you know, I'm down for black people and this, that, that, this and the other thing. He made it about himself. Right here, bro. He made it about himself. So he got away from what I was trying to. uh, Yeah, you too, bro. Um, So he got away from. Um, focusing on us and he made it about no I'm the whitest guy you'll see or whatever and I'm down for you guys and blah 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 that's not what you're supposed to do okay if you are not black and you are an ally of us you you listen you play the back and you support us okay cuz you know like he, like that the, the 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 reaction that he had was oh you're coming after my character Oh, you're coming after, I'm, I'm not like those guys. And it's like, you just made it about you. This is not about you. This is about us, okay? We tell you what we need. This is for all white people. This is for all people who are um, not, um, who are not uh, uh, black or whatever, who wish to support black people. Just be like, all right, what do you need? Whatever it is, whatever it is that you need, I'll back you up on that, okay? Stop telling us what we need. We know what we need. I already said what we needed. I don't think he was on here when, when, when the thing first started. But I already said what we were looking for. Cash payments, um, the, free, the return, the reinstatement of the um, Freedmen Bureau, okay? And uh, an end to mass immigration. I know that's uncomfortable with, you know, a lot of liberals and progressives or whatever the case is. Um, and um, some other stuff I said. I don't got it off the top of my head. The main thing I remember was the Freedman Bureau, because you know how I, how I am on banks, okay? So I'm just saying, stop doing that. I just okay. want to make okay. sure. Okay, so Roger. Now. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't mean to I interrupt. Just, I just want to bring in Robin, too, because I know Robin was waiting for a while. Oh, I want to get Robin's perspective. Robin, you just have to unmute. Go ahead. Hi, Sabby. Um, okay, so I cannot give any additional information or perspective that will advance the reparations front. So do you want me to stay on hold? Uh, Because what I was going to talk about was uh, how the conservatives can force the vote in a situation that the 
uh, squad did not. So I'm more than willing yeah, to go ahead. hold up. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, everybody understood that whatever's been going on in the discourse about the reparations, I don't have anything more to add to that. So I'd rather speak to what's in my wheelhouse. So go ahead, Robin. Yeah, I talked about that earlier tonight. Go ahead about uh, Kevin McCarthy. Yes. So regarding why is it that uh, Matt Gates and everybody can get into and, you know, literally force the vote on, you know, whatever their demands are in terms of not voting for uh, McCarthy as speaker and everything. This situation has been a long time coming. And maybe many of your listeners or whatever may not, uh, you know, know some of this. But a lot of this actually goes back to the year 2000. And the reason why I say that is um, I remember the primary uh, between, in in the Republican primary between George uh, W. Bush and um, uh, what's his name from Arizona? Gosh, John McCain. And during that time, uh, you know, the the media was just loving on John McCain. He had he was on this bus called the Straight Talk Express and everything. And everybody was talking about John McCain is a maverick. He goes against his party and he has these principles and blah, 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 blah. And so, uh, you know, I voted for John McCain in the primaries during that time, you know, even though George Bush was my governor in Texas. I still voted for John McCain and everything. And I remember, and maybe some of your, uh, some of the people that are listening don't remember, but there was a rumor that came out that uh, had accused John McCain of being the father of an illegitimate black baby. And that changed the South Carolina primary. And it, and and that rumor didn't come from the Democrats. That came from Karl Rove and the Republicans who were backing George W. Bush. Oh. And they drug, they drug him and it sunk his campaign. So, you know, of course, not George Bush wins with the whole Florida thing or whatever. Uh, 2004 comes along, of course, George, you know, the 9-11 and Iran, uh, uh, Iraq war, I'm sorry, comes along. And of course, all the Republicans are behind George Bush and the Iraq war and everything like that. And then, of course, during that time, the war starts going south. You know, Republicans are calling me because, you know, at some point in time, I must have given to, I don't think I gave directly to George Bush, but somebody, you know, they're calling you know, asking for money for the Republican National Convention. And I'm like, well, what? I'm not giving you guys any money. Now, mind you, at this time, I'm working for Raytheon. So for me to be like, no, I'm not giving you any money, you know? And they're like, well, aren't you scared that Nancy Pelosi is going to become speaker? I'm like, no, she can't do any worse than whatever is going on here. I'm not afraid of that type of deal. I'm trying to get this story out. So, <laughs> so any event, of course, the you know the the Democrats come in 2006, sweep up everything and whatever. 2008 comes along, and here comes the Maverick John McCain coming roaring back. Right. So now 
John McCain, I vote for, did I vote for him again in 2000? I think I did. I voted for him in 2008. I remember they had Mitt Romney was coming up. And of course, it's like, well, you can't vote for Mitt Romney because he's a Mormon and I'm a Christian and Mormons are terrible. You know, that's what you, you don't vote for the Mormon guy. And so then, you know, the, the, the media is going all for the, the maverick and everything. The maverick John McCain gets the nomination. And as soon as he gets the nomination, the media completely turns on him. And he's they're saying he's old, he's racist, he's all of this other kind of stuff. And you're, you know, and so mainstream Republicans are going, what are you talking about? In 2000, you love this man. You couldn't get enough of him. And as soon as he goes up, you know, now all of a sudden he's this old man racist that, you know, that, that can't be trusted for anything. And it's just like, are you serious? And so, you know, there's a lot of, there were a lot of Republicans that were totally buttered about that. And it's just like, I can't believe they turned on him. And so then, you know, we felt a certain kind of way about that. And this is before I even realized that I was a libertarian, more of a libertarian than then, I guess, than I was a Republican. 2012 comes along. I vote for Ron Paul in the um, in the primary. Of course, he doesn't win the nomination. And now here we have, you know, Mitt Romney as the um, as the guy for the Republicans and everything. And so then again, once again, you know, most mainstream Republicans are looking at Mitt Romney as the most milk toast, lame old person you can, you know, but okay, but he likes, you know, everybody can, he, he doesn't make anybody mad. So how are they going to drag him? Didn't they drag him for filth for being racist and all this other kind of stuff? Well, it's like, well, damn, if Milt, Mitt Romney is racist, then I mean, of course, everybody is racist and it has just got to be ridiculous. And so then finally come along 2016 and then you've got, you know, Donald Trump coming along. And I think a lot of Republicans are just like, at this point, they're going to call you racist no matter what. They're going to call you racist if you're John McCain. They're going to call you racist if you're Mitt Romney. If you put up Donald Trump and they go, at this point, it's just like, whatever. Say whatever you want to say that we're just going to do what we're going to do. We're just sick of it already. When you, when the tea party came along in 2010 and stuff, you know, and that was a big move and everybody was dragging the tea party and calling them tea baggers and everything like that. Nobody ever understood that the, that the tea party, the tea stint stood for taxed enough already. So it was more of a libertarian bent as opposed to, racist whatever whatever thing that they were you know posting in the media and all of this other kind of stuff and so again you know you just get drugged through the mud and stuff and i really think that this this wing of the uh republican party that's the matt gaze and the marjorie taylor green even you know yes they they're big trumpers and all this other kind of stuff or whatever but i think they learned a lesson that maybe people from the squad in them did not learn. And even people like uh, John McCain didn't learn to the day he died. And even we would say that um, Mitt Romney didn't learn. 
is that these people, and I'm talking about both Republicans and Democrats, they don't like you. They never have liked you. They never will like you. They tolerate you. They will make you a useful idiot to get to their ultimate goal. But as soon as they, you are of no use to them, they will turn on you and they will call you every disgusting name under the sun and smear you for filth. And if you don't mind not being a part of the the party or being invited to the parties, if you don't care about that, then yes, you can stand up like Matt Gates and do what he did on the House floor right now. Because That's as right. long as you care about being invited to the party, yep. then they have you. Uh-huh. You say, no, it doesn't matter you know, what you do. They're, they're not going to like you. They don't like you. Yep. They, you know, and they talk about you behind your back, your back as soon as you walk out the door. Once you understand that, then yes, you can stand up and say exactly what Matt Gates said and do yep. what he exactly what he did. And that's all I've Don't got forget to say about, about the committee that. assignments also, um, Robin. But why exactly. is it Ryan? But Robin, I have to ask, how is it that 20 Republicans able to get on board? and not vote for Kevin McCarthy. So that means like 20 of them are like, look, I don't really care. Yes. Yes. Those 20 people, they are, they understand that they, you know, even if they play nice in 98% of the, you know, uh, the settings or whatever, they understand at the end of the day, the media does not like them. The Republican Party does not like them. The Democrats sure don't like them. So, you know, so they understand what their position is. And they understand that at the end of the day, they, the, their constituents back in their districts are the ones that are electing them. And they're okay with that. They're okay with not being invited to the Washington parties. But as long as uh, you're I, if worried I... about being, you know, being retweeted on Twitter and the Yas Queens and all of that and being invited to this Met Gala and that thing and this White House, you know, deal and whatever. As long as you want to be a part of that club, then you'll never be able to do what Matt Gates does. Never. Can I, if I can just jump in um, and because Robin, I really love what you're saying. Um, and that's what it, it, it's, it's really my original point about reparations. I, and I know that's not what you're referring to, but I would like to talk about the principle that you just mentioned, which is not caring if you are liked, right? Uh, not being okay with being unlikable and unpopular. And, and I wanted to, to suggest that for African-Americans to get uh, reparations for slavery. Since there is no path in the current political climate, uh, I don't think that it is possible to convince uh, the masses of Americans that reparations are due. They understand intellectually that, of course, reparations are due. They, un they understand the idea of a debt being owed, but I just think that anti-blackness is so deep and it is structural. It's not even a matter of opinions. It's at this point, it's structural. I mean, you have Latin, you know, Congress members in California talking so casually about disempowering black folks. That's right. right. Politically speaking, right? You, you gave the rated G version of that, but right. And, and, <laughs> yep. and every 
every black leader, well, not every, but sort of the mainstream ones were still going on, you know, black and brown this, black and brown that. I'm like, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and so for me, the path that I see for African-Americans is where you completely disengage from this country and its systems and you act as your own country. That that's the only way. And the only obstacle from from where I'm standing, from my imperfect analysis of you all as a people, um, is that there's a fear of not being popular. There's a fear that if you take that radical position and just completely not give a shit about anybody, mm -hmm. Democrat or Republican, and quite frankly, any other race, if you just decide to stick together and act as though you are a country and not, you know, American citizens, because you are not American citizens, let's face it. Um, if you just decide to kind of take the, the model of the Orthodox, you know, Jewish folks in New York City who get funding, millions of dollars of funding for their schools, and their schools are terrible, right? Like those Orthodox schools, they graduate like adult, you know, Orthodox Jewish people who can't read, who can who can't do basic math, right? And they still get funding in the millions of dollars simply because, you know, they get funding that other taxpayers who don't follow their faith um, put into the system simply because they act as a unit no matter what, right? And a point I want to bring about too, to chime off of what Robin said as well, when Robin said, Matt, someone like Matt Gates can stand up and make that statement because he doesn't care about being accepted so much by the party. That right there lets you know that even someone like Bernie Sanders cares mm -hmm. about being accepted by the Democratic Party, even though he's a registered independent. Absolutely. And, and, about. And, uh, Robin, and I want to also... ask you a question. Oh, yeah, I, I just want to ask you a question real quick. How did you feel and you would thought it would have been the democrats that did this but how did you feel when a lot of people forget this but george bush did something very very anti-republican or anti-conservative or whatever you want to call it under his administration the federal government grew larger than it has been in a while with the with the uh when he commissioned the charted the dhs I was you know totally what I mean? Against like, it. I was totally yeah. I was totally against the Department of Homeland Security. I was totally against the TSA. I'm still against all of those things. I'm still against, you know, the, the Patriot Act. All of those things were terrible. Now, I mean, I, I, I will say this. When it came to the Patriot Act, I was kind of riding the fence or whatever. And but then, you know, they kept talking about radical Islamism and and the, the war on terror and everything. You know, and at that time I was working for Raytheon. You know, and so you feel like, at the, you know, this is the height of right after 9-11 and you feel like you're doing your patriotic duty and you're listening to the propaganda and they're telling you that this is what they need to fight global terrorism and everything. And there's something in your gut is going, uh, but you just use like, Okay, these are the experts and stuff. And by 2006, I was done. I was mm -hmm. done with all of it because I just realized none of this was what they were making it out to be. And I felt duped and I still, it still burns me to this day. And so that's what a lot of that propaganda and stuff will do is that it will, it will make you 
second guess your natural instincts about mm-hmm. what is real and what is what is right and stuff. And so that's you know, so yeah, it was it was against my natural instinct to go for that. And like I said, I never was a big fan of the Department of Homeland Security. I never was a big fan of of um you know, some of that other stuff, you know, but then, you know, and the Patriot Act is like, oh, I don't like this or whatever. But, you know, you listen to it and you listen and they browbeat you and they browbeat you. And you okay, I guess I guess this is what we got to do. This is this is the new normal now. And you see a lot of this new normal stuff that they keep talking about when it comes to other things going on in our world. And I won't, you know, say what, but I mean, I think anybody can can look around and talk, you know, and think and and know what I'm talking about in terms of why we need to do X, Y, and Z things, you know, in order to, uh, to because of this new normal. And it's the same thing. And it's just like, no, 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 no. This is all wrong. So, yeah, yeah. I have big problems yeah. with that. That's a good point. I want to make sure we bring in Lance, too. Uh, Lance, you just need to uh, unmute. Cause I know you've been waiting a bit. Hey, hey, yeah. All I know is, um, if I was ever going to be a stand-up comic, I got to go on before Rob. And she's a treasure. You're just brilliant. You know, just what you were saying. You know, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, this is what I say. I was talking about living among Trumpers. It's like that. that my whole argument is what you guys are talking about is Trump hates you after the common ground stuff. We hate. We all hate. Yeah, we both hate Democrat, but Trump hates you. He treats contra- pays f- contractors fifty cents on the dollar. Folks like us uh, forces them to bankruptcy with uh, you know legal fees, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and and on the other point, right? Like these twenty Republicans, no different than like the Gottheimer ten or any ten of the blue dog Democrats in the House have no problem standing up to Pelosi anytime and every time, whether it's that salt sack. Or whether it's uh, anything, <laughs> you know, they'll they'll to get their way. So it's just so factless and pathetic on the, uh, you know, it's like you got right wing, left wing here, you know, you got everybody but the but the squad that uses their power, like Chris had just said. Politics is all it's all a game of fear. If they don't fear not getting elected or getting elected to the speakership or whatever it is, they won't get what they won't do what you want. McCarthy was basically in their deeds, if you know what I mean. I don't have to be vulgar, but he did everything. He was prostrate. He was doing whatever they said, and they still said, nope. So it's pathetic, right? Let me just add something here really quick because someone just asked me in the chat. I totally goofed, and I forgot to mention to you guys tonight that um, I will be on Glenn Greenwald's show tomorrow, so Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Rumble, his Rumble show. Sorry. Cool. Go ahead, Lance. Sorry. Oh, by the way, everybody, <laughs> Nolan, Roger, and Sabrina, and everybody, happy 2023. I hope everybody has a happy, healthy new year and gets just a little closer to fulfilling their dreams and aspirations. Thank you so much, Lance. That's really sweet. Um, what do you guys think? Like, honestly, this whole issue with Benedict Cumberbatch as well, like his family, I told you, is facing like the reparations fight. Um Someone put in the chat, so I'm, I'm trying to be more cautious looking at the chat now. Someone put in the chat that apparently Edward Norton also is being accused of owing reparations. I don't know if anyone else has heard about that. Let me know uh-huh. if you have. Yeah, I mean, I read about that earlier today. And the first thought I, I had was reparations must be institutional, uh, not personal. And 
of course, Benedict Cumberbatch and the other dude, uh, they can pay reparations, obviously. I mean, I'm not going to oppose that. They can, if they want to make restitution to black Americans in some way, in some personal way, fine. However, reparations has to be systematic. It has to be systemic because the devastation of black Americans was total and complete. Right? Yeah. They took everything from you all, everything. Names, religion, mm -hmm. culture, sense of self. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's written records of, you know, uh, was it a Belgian? I think it was Belgian or some, some British general who came to the continent of Africa for the first time and he didn't see any poverty, you know, mm -hmm. and he talked, he, he found it remarkable how he said the Africans are so generous. Um, they, I didn't see any poverty anywhere. Uh, and he said all these things and he said, you know, and, and part of the reason why African architecture is looked down upon is because it was so simple and, and people didn't have doors. <laughs> and the reason people didn't put, bother to put doors because you couldn't even think of stealing. You didn't need to steal. Because right. Wanna... Everything was provided for you. So that systematic wiping away of everything that happened to you, yeah. reparations will only work if they are also systematic and total and complete. And the only path to that is to, to, to turn completely radically away from this society and use your numbers and your presence and your existence as leverage. And, and, and you can be like, you know, like, like the Freedom Caucus. You can be like, listen, Americans, we are not Americans like you. But if you want us to join your little, you know, society over here, which sucks, you're going to have to do this and this. And if you don't, if you don't do that, then you can just fuck off. Right. I mean, Kevin McCarthy has failed to pass the, the, the speaker test three times. They voted three times and he still couldn't fucking get it. You know what I'm saying? And the Freedom Caucus are like, we do not care. The Freedom Caucus turned it to Shannon Sharp. They were like, I'm here to tell you right now that we do not care. <laughs> okay. We don't care. And, and I feel that that is the, and eventually, you know, what's going to happen? Mcarthy's going to have to give in. Right. Right. And you're right. right. He's going to have to give in. Wanna, one thing I want to mention, Davis, your point about taking everything. I want to give you guys uh, a little bit of history lesson here and how it applies today. Taking away birth dates. So slaves didn't know their age. Taking away their language. Taking away their religion and basically making them more acceptable to European society, right? So what people need to understand, when I even look at my family, after my great-grandparents, I have no idea who people are in my family before them. I have no idea. And part of that has to do with what happened during slavery, not keeping records of the families and the names, and not to mention that children were taken away from the parents and sold to other masters. So there's that as well. Anything that happened before my great grandparents, I have no record of, I don't know. I don't even know if I am a direct descendant of slavery because I don't know what happened before my great grandmother. You see, unlike Alex Haley, all of us can't trace our roots back. And people have tried and, I, and I've talked to people who have tried to do this and they hit a breaking point where they're like, this is as far as I got. One of the things that I've noticed, and I'm going to tell you how this applies today. Sometimes when I've hung out with my friends 
some of them would talk about like their ancestry, right? Like they would make statements like, I'm part British and Dutch on my mom's side and I'm part Native American on my dad's side. And they go through all this stuff. And it really struck a chord with me because it made me realize something. I don't know what happened before my great grandparents. I can't do that. And that's the case for a lot of African-Americans in this country. We don't know. We can't say, yes, technically my family came from, part of my family came from Nigeria and then part of them came from, we don't know. And so the most, the closest that people feel they can get to that is doing like the ancestry, like DNA tests and those kind of things. And I know people that are against that because they're like, I'm not giving my DNA to some company. And I totally understand that as well. But even with those tests, those tests don't tell you who your family was. So I want you to understand the idea of privilege here. When I went to college, I went to school with some people who were pretty wealthy and I was not. And some of them, they could tell you going all the way back, my family immigrated here from such and such country. Now I'm not that old. And they were able to trace it all the way back. I can't. And I think that's another privilege that white America has that black Americans don't have. Some people have been able to do this, but I'm just letting you know, most of us, we don't know. We don't know. Those records were kept from us. Anytime you're taking away people's birth dates, you're taking away like their heritage, their culture. I had a friend one time and you know, I I had to respond pretty harshly. I had a friend one time tell me in college and she was from, she's born and raised in America, but her parents were Nigerian. You know what she told me one day? We were at the club, so we had a couple of drinks. So just keep that in mind. She told me that black people in this country, that we have no culture. She said, we have no culture, no identity. We have no language. We have no, no nothing. And you know, I kind of snapped at her and I was just like, what the fuck do you mean we have no culture? And I really took that pretty hard. But what she was basically trying to say is that with her parents being Nigerian and they're from Nigeria, even though she grew up in the US, she still can, she still has her culture from Africa. The rest of us who are black Americans, a lot of us don't have it because we don't still have that connection with the slaves that came over here. That culture was taken from them. This is the big difference. Her parents immigrated here. My family did not, so far as I can tell, as far back as I can go. So her to basically say to me that black Americans have no culture, that really made me feel some kind of way. Sabrina. I, I mean, oh. I, I understand that. Um, and and I, again, that just, it, it really draws, you know, let, let me just draw a, a contrast here. Me, I'm Kenyan. My dad is from sort of the different regions that my, my dad was a different tribe from my mother. Uh, my mom is from the coast, all the way in the coast of, you know, uh, Mombasa, the coastal region. And my dad is more from like the highlands, more like the country. I have no idea how they met. 
my dad's tribe, you know, it's called, uh, they're called Kisis and they are totally different from my mom's tribe, who is called the Griyama people from the coast. And we used to go to my grandmother's house on my mom's side one Christmas, and then my grandmother's side on my dad's side the other Christmas. So I can go to where my dad was born and where my mom was born. And, you know, I met my, of course, I knew my grandparents on both sides. And I have like a ton of cousins who live in both areas. And if I wanted to do like a, an ancestry thing, I could, I could, all I have to do is just go pay them a visit when I go back home. You know what I'm saying? So compare that to what you just heartbreakingly, quite frankly, describe, you know, that tells you how much was taken from you all. And second of all, what reparations would ever make up for that? Yeah. So, so, Sabrina. Yep. So that's what exactly what I was talking about before. Um, now, also keep in mind, yeah, definitely uh, alcohol is definitely truth serum. Um, but <laughs> here's the thing. Okay, they can say we have no culture, but we created our own culture when we got here that a lot of them, with Dave's admission, they look at our culture and want to do what we do. Just like when Dave said he was in the crisscross thing, and I'm hoping to get him, get a picture of him in some cross colors and some fubu back in the early 90s someday. Um, but yeah, that's, um, you'll, uh, yeah, you'll find that. Well, uh -oh. they, they think that, they, that that's the case, but we created our own culture. Okay. And they look at us and they do what we do. Number two, you know, whether it's music or whatever the case is, um, number two, um, what do you call it? Uh, 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 but don't let Akon tell it, Roger, because Akon said recently in an interview that Africans know, were better performers than than Black Americans, and I was just like, "The fuck did come from?" Mister Mister Akon, born in Missouri. Everything cool in American right. culture came from Black people. Let's start with music and blues and rock and roll and jazz. Excuse me. I mean, intelligence, you know, sophisticated, you know, classically trained. Duke Ellington, everything, not just like, you know, oh my God. All of the culture that we have is cool came from Black people and writing. Right. So, so, so also, um, also keep in mind, um, it's also important for us, and I think Dave was making this point where where he had to say, Hey, I'm not those guys. I'm from another country. You will usually find that Nigerians are usually the ones, and I'm not saying the only ones, but are usually the ones that look down on uh, freedmen, uh, black Americans. And how I know this is because, now, funny story. I got two sisters with the name Robin, okay? Reason being, one is my mother's daughter, one is my dad's daughter. Okay, so when they got married, those were children from other relationships. Okay, so my dad's daughter Robin. So my dad in '85. Oh, can, oh, can you hear me? Yeah. My, can he? Oh, okay. All right. So my dad's daughter married uh, someone from Nigeria. Now I didn't know this until years later, but um, at the at the wedding. My brother almost kicked his ass because he said something real slick 
uh, about us or whatever the case is. <laughs> okay? But where he was just like, all right, I'm not going to ruin my sister's day because it's her day. But it was, it was just something real slick about uh, uh, some type of, kind of like the comment that you were talking about that your friend made. Um, you know, but that's what I mean. It's that, oh, we're better than you type of mentality. Yep. You know what I'm also, I want to ask this, you, Sabrina. You traced your your um, your lineage. Which one did you do? Your dad or your mom, or both? Well, I knew like my great grandmother was alive when I was a kid. On your so mother's side, I knew her on my mom's side. Yeah. Okay. Did Did you do it with your dad? Did you trace your lineage on your dad? No, my great-grandparents weren't alive on my dad's side. Oh, no, no, I mean... Oh, okay, I, I thought I meant, like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, going to some archives it's, or something. I don't know. It's hard. Like, I've tried this before because my family was mobile. So it's mm -hmm. like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, they didn't stay in one place. That's part of the problem. I see. Yeah, it, it's harder when people keep moving around. So it's just like, uh, and then there's the issue with the last names because yes. my father's last name is not his dad's last name because mm -hmm. my father, my father's dad, is man, it's confusing as well. But my father's dad didn't raise him. Mm -hmm. My grandmother married, remarried. And the step the stepdad raised my dad. That's where the last okay. name comes from. Got but it. My, my dad's father, I never actually met. Yeah, because on, on my um my the other ro sister Robin on my my mother's daughter, um she did a she did a lineage. I gave it like two thousand dollars a couple of years ago to like really like do the research, and we go back. On, at least on my mother's side in North Carolina, like I, th I think she might have said the 1700s, definitely the 1800s. But um, I think we were the the Cameroon. I think there's a country in Africa called Cameroon or something like that. She yeah. was able to trace it back there on my mother's side. But it's I, it's it's a mess because I'm I'm telling you like I don't know I don't want to do this ancestry thing. My sister did the ancestry thing, and that shit came back for, with some results. And my sister went to my parents and she was like, "You guys got some explaining to do." <laughs> that is exactly what. And of course, my parents don't know. Like my parents are just like my parents won't do the test. By the way, my dad's like, "I'm not giving my skin cells to some company. I don't know." Like, <laughs> but. My parents are just like, look, we don't know what happened before. Like I said, my great grandparents, like, we don't know what happened before them. We don't know. But my, my sister took it and she told me that I should still do it because even though we're sisters, it could come back a little bit different. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Um, but she took it and her results, like, first of all, there were some things in there and I said, I don't believe it you should do it again. So she's done it twice. And so when my sister said someone in our family has some explaining to do how we got like 30% French. So that's what came back on my sister's thing. And then part of it also was Spain. Mm. Right. Wow. 
Yeah. And that's not typical for like my friends who have done this, my black friends that have done this, when they trace theirs back, there's going to be some European ancestry, but it's usually like, uh, UK, like England, like usually like that area. Right. But when my sister did hers, it came back, uh, French and well, France and Spain. And then the rest was African. And so that's what I'm saying. Even to that point, technically, I, I don't know, like this went back. I think she, I think it went back five or six generations. So on the third generation, it was French, France and Spain. But you know, a lot of that could have come by way of Louisiana Mm -hmm. um, or the parts of the nation that had a heavy Spanish influence. And because the reality is um, the, the descendants of slaves were chattel and they were bought, sold, trade, raped and everything in between. It was a real atrocity. But, you know, when I think of reparations, we know that that peace, our cultural peace, cannot be restored. We can piece back together to some extent um, where our people sojourned in this country. But that part can't be restored. But the reality is the greater detriment to my thinking is that the descendants of slaves have been, and, and Davis speaks to this well, it has, because this nation did not new, do due diligence coming out of slavery, we compounded everything. And that's why early on I was talking about when we talk about reparations now, we're actually talking about upending the entire social order Mm. because who we are not is relevant to who white people are. And so when you talk about the the, um, economic piece, we're really the tile on the basement floor. And so when you think about equalizing tile to the rest of the room and the floors above it, it's a tall order. But I think to Dave's point, in terms of a way forward for reparations, I think there has to be some type of solidarity internationally, because the reality is what happens on the international basis sets the context for what happens in other countries. So there's the CARICOM effort to secure reparations for the um, Blacks in the diaspora who ended up in the Caribbean islands. And then you have the United States, you have a reparations movement. So those things, though separate and apart, they build a type of international momentum, including the efforts that people have made through the UN. Um, it, but it does have to be a um, global type of thing. And if we're able to, just like in the United States, when certain things are done on a statewide basis, if you get enough states to do it, just like the um, legalization of marijuana and things of that nature, it becomes more prevalent to do the whole thing on a national basis. So I think... Um, you know, in terms of Davis's idea about us functioning as a nation within a nation, similar to what the Jewish people do, 
um, I think a part of that fails to account for how much division has been sown within the descendant of slave population and through the conflation of the descendant of slaves with immigrant blacks and everything else, it becomes a more difficult proposition. And we have to deal with the fact when you talk about Obama and Kamala Harris and these people who really aren't descendant of slaves, to the degree that they have become the type of gatekeeper and they have used their skin color as a proxy for connectivity to the descendant of slave community that's really not there. And so black people have really been, you know, had a job done on us in this country. And a lot of times we can barely see our own way forward because of the pawns that we have made in so many of the games in America. Yeah. I think it, it is a cause that is difficult, but I think we need to pursue it because represents a wrestling with and a grappling with the truth. And the the unfortunate aspect, when you think of people like Davis and other Blacks immigrants who have come to this country, we're not generally dealing with the people who were at the bottom of their um, societies in their home countries. So a lot of times when we deal with the immigrant Blacks in the United States, They've come from the higher echelons of the societies that they have come from because not everybody can escape the vicissitudes of what it means to be an African in an African country. And a lot of times they've been educated in Europe and everything else. So there's a certain amount of um, enlightenment, if you will, but there is also a certain amount of elitism that attends them in some cases. And just like Davis also spoke to, you know, Africa as a continent still deals with tribalism. And as he indicated in his country, they have military bases from the colonial colonizers. And so even in Africa to this day in the 21st century, we still see it as a continent whose countries wrestle with the tribalism. And it was a part of the tribalism that led to the slave trade. And so, you know, it's just a big, um, it's a mess. But um, I don't know. Um, I don't know how I feel about a, um, about people who are, indigenous within one or two generations from Africa um, speaking to the current situation of the, the descendants of slaves in this country because again they come to this country seeking opportunity not coming to build solidarity and some of them find their way into solidarity but a lot of them maintain that closer identity to their um, national ethnicities. And so, right. right. Um, and I, I you know, that's a too, difficult thing. Yeah. I will yeah. say too, even my friends, like some of my friends, one of my friends actually is third generation. Is she third? Yeah. She's third generation. And she's still like, till this day, like she has that connection to her roots because of her parents and her grandparents. And so she still has that. And 
it's just it, it's it's very telling uh to me I, I think and i mean i don't even know if based on the results from my sister's test like i don't even know if technically i would qualify for reparations but even if i don't i still support it and i think that's the message that i really want to send across to people because i do understand like the struggle like i my parents went through it my grandparents went through it and what i want people to un- to know is that my my father his ticket out of poverty and i don't recommend this but his ticket out of poverty was joining the military that's how he got out because my grandparents were poor my great grandparents were poor and my dad and my mother grew up poor they grew up in baltimore maryland in the projects and there was no generational wealth not that was passed on to them anyway and so that was how my dad got out that was how he broke that cycle and that speaks to also the military industrial complex recruiting in low-income black neighborhoods because they know if they go to these schools and they tell these kids we're going to let you travel join the military you can see the world Join the military. You'll get benefits. You'll have health care. We'll cover everything. We'll pay for your housing. You know, that was hard to turn down back then. So my dad took that opportunity to get out of, of, of poverty. And because he took that opportunity, that's why I didn't grow up in poverty. But it shouldn't be that way. This is the point I want to make clear to everybody. You should not have to join the military industrial complex to have a decent life in this country. That's the problem. Go ahead, Lance. I saw you um, unmuting. Go ahead. Just have to unmute, Lance. If I could just add to what you guys, all three, were just so eloquently pointing out a little, like, here's so, uh, as far as like maybe a 20th century kind of historical additional thing, I think, uh, in in terms of reparations, uh, if I could throw that out there, I don't know, uh, see what you think of this white boy thinks about that, (laughs) which is as far as all these um, cities where they tore down so-called blighted neighborhoods, uh, I live in a Jim Crow North city, and they tore down real houses with real deeds, you know, not that that should matter. I'm not saying, oh, it's got to have receipts. Of course not. But in this particular case, this aspect, um, you know, and people, and so uh, there was plenty of other neighborhoods that were a more direct route, that were less uh, poor or no, equally poor is what I meant to say. Okay, but no, they went specifically to black neighborhoods to destroy those neighborhoods to put the city, the uh, highway through. Okay, so they, and this is something that maybe the folks like Brady need to just be schooled on about why it is a racial thing. Even among the white people minority that lived in those neighborhoods, they could pick up the pieces, go to any neighborhood they want and live wherever they want, pay rent there. They could get a job if they had the skills to, and there were a lot of jobs, factory or whatever jobs in any place in the city they wanted to because they were white. So even the ones that got hurt by the so-called, you know, urban renewal or getting their blighted houses, they could still pick up the pieces and move on and, and reestablish equity as bad as it was for them. But to be told, okay, we're taking away all your equity, people that own businesses, people that own the houses, you know, not, uh, okay, there wasn't a, okay, so no, we're going to put you in the projects. So instead of the stuff you had, we took it away. We, they took real equity away, put them in the project for quote-unquote free, right? But they have no future equity for generations since then. This is like I'm talking about the 40s, from the 30s to the 50s when they've reestablished themselves in the town I'm from. Uh, 
from being pushed out of one other neighborhood. Only the Jews would lend to them, interestingly. But uh, in any case, you know, so that's real equity with real receipts plus interest that they could, you know, I mean, you know, I, I would think should be part of the whole discussion, you know, among other groups as far as, you know, uh, Real neighborhoods, and, and again, and as I say, in the projects, you didn't have a house, you couldn't rebuild equity. But all the white, any white person that was affected, like these folks were trying to say, well, there are a lot of well, we're, we, they were hurt too. Yeah, they could go go right back into the community and at least have a chance to get some kind of job, and they wouldn't be discriminated against in the future. So right. it was like they took it away, and and, and f- any future equity was nicked. Right, and the point I want to bring home too, you brought up the projects. That's another thing. We got to go back to white flight. And I talked about this on the show earlier tonight that like, if you go back to white flight, when white families moved out of the cities and moved into the suburbs, black people were blocked from moving into those suburbs. So they were stuck in the cities. When the white families left the cities, they took their wealth and their money with them. So then what happened? The stool, the schools started to, started to decrease in quality because the schools are funded by property taxes. So the people who left in the city didn't own shit. So if you don't own anything, then you don't have the property taxes to fund the schools. And that is why we have the inner city schools that are underfunded and under-resourced even today. Because when the white families left, they took their wealth with them. And you got to understand the important piece here. The black families were blocked from moving into those neighborhoods. That was redlining, which still, in a sense, goes on today. There are still some, even in so-called progressive Massachusetts, where I live, there are some communities here where you will not be sold a home based on the color of your skin, regardless of what your, your, your title is or what your status is. And people really need to fully understand that. The real estate developer will tell you the house is off the market, and then they'll sell it to a white family. And it's not just Massachusetts. It happens across this country. Right. So what they are doing, in a sense, they are preventing you and your children They're preventing your children from getting that quality education by keeping you out of those neighborhoods. You shouldn't have to live in a rich area or an upper middle class area for your child in this country to have a decent education. So if you're stuck in poverty with the shitty schools and the crime ridden neighborhoods and the crime is going to be high because you're in poverty, people in poverty are going to be seeking other means to help their lives. So yeah. if you're stuck there, your chances of getting out of that cycle of poverty are very slim. Now, that is not to say it doesn't happen for some people, but those people Most are people- outliers. And I want to be very clear when I say this to people. Everybody likes to bring up Oprah Winfrey. Oprah huh. Winfrey is an outlier. And even Oprah had yeah. to change who she was but- to get the job that she got. People have to understand that Oprah used to work for the radio station in Baltimore, V103, I believe was the name of it, if I'm not, if I'm not correct. She worked for the radio station. She was her authentic self. In order for Oprah to move up, she had to change her hair. She used to have an afro. They told her she had to change it and get rid of it. That's how she got the Oprah Winfrey show, because she was willing to sell out in a sense and change who she was so that she could move up and get those opportunities. And that's the point that I want to make very clear. You shouldn't have to do that, period. Everyone deserves a decent education in this country, and this is done on purpose. The federal government could fund these schools. 
guys, I grew up in a military family. They fund those military schools. We right. had all these things. I didn't have to pay for my instrument to be in band. I didn't have to pay for my uniform to be on the basketball team. The federal government pays for it because your parent is serving in the United States military. So why can't they apply that to every public school in this country? They can. They choose not to. The reality is why some people don't want black people to have reparations is because if you get that money and you get that opportunity, that means you may be their neighbor. And a lot of them, even some of the liberals who claim they want equality, they don't want you in their neighborhood and they want you at arm's length. Yeah, it's like all things that are in it's probably the, the best book I never wrote, Divide and Conquer, because, yeah, the whole thing is, uh, hey, look, I live first generation suburbia and there were plenty of, you know, maybe they weren't burning crosses, but there was plenty of racist white folks. And I'm Italian. There was plenty of racist Italian, racist Jews, whatever. OK, but that said. The idea of divide and conquer first, literally, physically, just uh, destroy neighborhood by splitting it physically with the highway down. Then if there's two families out of a 100 or however many make up one specific neighborhood, you know, these developments from the old days, they have specific neighborhood names, whatever. Two families will let you have one. If you have a second black family out of 100, 200 families that are people of color, you'll nobody in the entire, you know, that entire zone will get insurance you know so like i said that's all oh, the white flight was just because they they put pitted people against each other but that that added to it you know whatever natural racism there was boy they said and not only that you can't get insurance all you white folks if you allow black families in your neighborhood and just help to exacerbate and or create just even more racism whether it existed or not and to add to that I want to make sure, Lance, I'm going to bring in, I'll go back to you, Noel. Lance, I'm going to bring okay. in Frank and then uh, Omar, Gator, and Ashura haven't had a chance to speak. So, but go ahead, Noel. I was, and I'll make this brief. I was just going to say that with white flight, a lot of those um, white people were able to get FHA loans when they were moving to the suburbs that, as you say, the um, black people could not and then when you think about it, white flight really um, gained momentum with the great migration of the descendants of slaves from the South. And so it's just been a constant type of rotating thing. And then you had the covenants that were a part of the um, mortgages and things that said you couldn't sell this house to a person of a different ethnicity or actually spelled out black. And so you have a whole lot of things going on in this country, but I think, you know, it all relates to capitalism and racism and white supremacy is so integral to capitalism to you can barely deconstruct one without deconstructing the other, which is why I think it has been so difficult to come to this reckoning with reparations because of what it represents to capitalism. Yeah, and I just want to add, like, we don't even hear the true history. People bring up slavery. They're like, oh, that was 400 years ago. We don't hear the true history when it comes to slavery either, because the, the history books in the schools don't actually tell you everything that happened during that time, how the women were treated, how the men were treated. They don't go into those details. So you have to understand that, like, 
They took the men away from the women. They took the kids away from the women. So the black woman oftentimes was alone. So this whole idea about when people talk about like, I hate when people make this comment when they say that like, well, these black men don't take care of their kids and they leave these women. Where do you think that came from? This goes all the way back to slavery. And then when the black family was actually strong, it happened again in the 90s during the crime bills and the war on drugs, where they took the black men out of the home again. So this is what people need to understand. Again, none of this is an accident. This is by design. They, there was no intention. And there was a white guy who talked about this one time. He lived on the south side of Chicago. And he put this so uh, boldly. He said it was never intended for slaves to become a part of the rest of the population. So when black people, when slaves were freed and black people started to try to have businesses and everything on their own, again, like I told you guys, they burned it down. When you see things come to fruition, like you get like a black president, what happened? They're like, we got to demonize him and Obama. I got many things to say about Obama, but going into it, it was not going to be accepted. Black people, when slaves were brought to this country, it was never intended for them to gain any sort of power. They didn't even want slaves to learn how to read, you guys. So this is where a lot of the hatred and all that stuff comes from. They were never intended to have any type of power. And people still have that mindset today that they want, they don't want black people in positions of power. You guys were talking <laughs> about the NFL earlier. The NFL is a perfect example. How many black NFL head coaches do you see? How many black, now there's more black quarterbacks now, but I can tell you when I was growing up, that was definitely not the case because they didn't believe that black men had the ability to lead a team. Go ahead, Frank. Um, yeah, the, the, well, I was just going to talk about the power structure and the, and the, and the intentional keeping out of black people from that power structure using professional licensing scams. Those, those things aren't for, for, uh, for public safety as the rich white people like to say, um, they are to keep black people out. Like I think I've said before that in the, throughout the country, more than 98% of all of banks are majority owned by by white men. Um, doctors, uh, th you know, 3.8% of, of, of all doctors are black doctors, and it's been that way for 44 straight years. So um, that seems really rigged to me at the MCAT, not allowing uh, black, black Americans into um, medical schools. So um, I don't without without those positions of power and uh, i don't think the reparations of just money are going to work because the money will just be sucked right back up to those white men that are in power and i, I really think it has to be about how to how to get uh, integrate black people into the power structure in this country and it in the same goes with uh, with other with other groups i but, agree um, i agree yeah, and so without that, in, in our in the our Colorado state legislature actually has laws to have that happen, 
And our, our state legislature is actually 48% women. It's 8% um, black when the population is only 4%, 13% Hispanic. And so there is uh, the identity politics are there but they all still take money from rich white men and protect them and violate the law to not not to so that they they those rich white men stay in the power positions so um i i i i just wanted to add that uh, you know we need we need to add um power into the professional licensing and, and you know developers and even even if we would we can't we can't go to socialism without changing these professional licensing scams it, it that's where the capitalism is locked in so yes. i really just wanted to that and um I, I will be coming out with a you know a few stories on this on my colorado people's news blog and uh i um in the near future, but uh, I've, I've been working on some lawsuit stuff. But uh, and I, I did just have a conversation with Roger uh, last night on Twitter about how Colorado, um, Colorado's courts actually blocked um, a ballot initiative for a public bank by saying violated um, the single issue law that's in the constitution that the legislature has to follow us. And it, the single issue Frank, is we want you? a public bank. Huh? Huh? Frank, that was you that I was talking that, with? That was me, corruption control on Twitter, yes. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. 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 I was just going to say, in reference to the banks, I know someone explained to me that Killer Mike uh, was starting like a black bank. That's yeah. nice. But the bank needs to be public. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. I want to bring in um, Omar. You want to unmute? Um, you're a speaker. I want to bring you into this discussion uh, as well. You just have to hit unmute. Hey. Go ahead. Um, so this this comment isn't meant to derail the conversation at all. I just wanted to throw in my two cents as somebody who is part indigenous, that saying that Native Americans have their treaties, um, I think that it's not in line with history because from 1778 to 1871, 500 treaties were signed and almost all of them were broken. So I think that we need to be precise in what we do we should have solidarity. I believe in reparations, and and then that's it. There's so many ways that 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 can be done, and I think that we still have slavery in the prison system, and these companies profit off of the people who are incarcerated, who are mostly black, and some brown people like myself. Um, but that's another source of of reparations to modern day reparations. We need to get rid of the 13th Amendment uh, clause as well. But just wanted to say that. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Omar. Um, when I said that, I just want to make it very clear. That's what was said to me on my show. So I did ask, again, I asked Delilah about this and I asked to colonize Buffalo about this. And that's what was said on my show to me. So that came from them. Yeah, those are two groups of indigenous 
people. And I mean, I think there's many, there's a diversity of opinions and needs. Oh, sorry. What were you saying, Omar? Were you saying Omar? Yeah, I, I mean, those... Oh, Davis. Somebody got going. I'm sorry. I had to mute Davis. Okay, okay. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I yeah, think that I think there that... is. Oh, there's some echoes still. <laughs> Frank, can you mute for a second? Thank you. Okay. Hello? Okay, there we go. Um, I think, uh, yeah, those are, I think there's a diversity of different opinions and needs in among Indigenous people. Um, and I think, you know, not one or two groups can't really represent just for like any other group. One or two groups don't represent the whole, you know, population and different tribes and all that um, that are in different situations. But, you know, this land was ethnically cleansed uh, and and that kind of provided the, the ground for slavery as well. Um, and I know that there's anti-Black racism is everywhere. Um, and even among Black folks that internalize it. So it's a problem. And yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Let me go ahead and bring in Gator. You just need to unmute. Just got to hit the unmute button, Gator. There you hey, go. Sabi, how you doing? Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, I've, I've got a question because I've kind of got um, uh, a concern, something that something that might be worth flagging. Just although it's although it's very far distant, I'm just curious about something. What would your feeling and anyone else in the panel be about their initial ideas of the source of the funding for reparations? Would people anticipate that it would be, say, for example, um, from private individuals who can be traced to have shown to be the beneficiaries of slavery, like the situation Dominic Cumberbatch might have fi be finding himself in? Or, or, or would that also possibly include private corporations? Because there will be many that that you can follow the genesis of, of of a slave plantation that then ultimately funded something and became something else in the in the latter day or would it also involve or perhaps be solely confined to government funding has anybody got any strong feelings about the, the mix or melange of of those kind of funding sources i think well, it should be <clears throat> i think it should be both um i'm sure if you talk to sandy darity or yvette carnell they can probably pinpoint which organization should have to pay it. But I think both, I say the U.S. government for one, because they did promise 40 acres and a mule. That was from General Sherman. That didn't happen. But I also say corporations because corporations definitely profited off of slave labor. Um, so I think it should be both. But I'll open it up to the rest of you guys as well. Feel free to jump in here. I think, Asheri, you were going to speak. Uh, I was just going to answer his question. I, I think both like the U.S. government has been the most major criminal in this. Plus, you got the slave owners. I mean, some of their businesses have profited and become larger firms or larger enterprises like today. Um, I think I think maybe, maybe some of them may have gotten broke and they've gotten down the poverty line. But when it comes to I don't remember, I don't remember who was saying this, but somebody was talking about how. 
when they were slavery, well, basically, do does 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 the race does poor people do poor people have to pay poor white people have to pay also for slavery, but the poor white people didn't own slaves. They were there to just do the same thing that the rich slave master did was basically denigrate the black people. So um, I don't see I don't know where we're gonna get the money. Just go after the rich people. That's what I would say. Uh, when it comes to the uh, David uh, Cumberbatch thing, um, I, I initially DM'd you that, but it seems like you got another article from it. And uh, uh, I don't know if it's going to be applied to other people like from the uh, where for Disney. I don't know if Disney may have some actors who have some people in their closets that have a plantation. I don't know if he owns a plantation right now, uh, David Cumberbatch. Um, so Benedict Cumberbatch, it was mentioned that it was his family, uh, that did own a plantation, um, on, at, at Barbados. They did own it. Um, yeah, you sent me an article and then I, I you know me, I dig. So I want to look. Yeah. Um, because if, if they don't, they don't no longer own it. So why go after the family? Because that money is probably all, all spent. So it's you probably not, would go. It's it's not. And and the other thing that was mentioned too is the fact that after slavery was abolished, they yeah. gave reparations to that family. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So what if the money was spent throughout the years, but the, the money, government the, the, the government is really is, the. No, nah, the money is still there. That's why his mother actually suggested for him to change his name and not use yeah. his real name when he became yeah. an actor so that wouldn't come back to bite him. Yeah, I read yeah, I read the article when the mom said that, but I was wondering like do they what 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 the what is uh what what's the family do exactly, the Cumberbatch name? You know what kind of business they have or is just they're just actors? I don't know. I have to I have to look into that. Yeah that's um, why I'm saying that. Like the, do they do they earn like a wine company or some big shit? Because you know what the thing's going with Ezra Miller, right? Because I didn't know Ezra Miller's family was rich. Yes. Um, well, someone pointed out earlier in the chat that also Edward Norton found out that his family owned slaves. But I'm pretty sure Edward Norton was, I, I don't know if he was a regular poor white dude, but he doesn't look like someone who who basically was rich from from birth. I know he wasn't poor. I, I do know that. Okay. Um, I would support reparations being handled by the federal government because a lot of this was, we're not just talking about slavery, the institution that forced the Africans and their descendants to work for free. We're talking about the several generations of Jim and Jane Crow that created an accumulated disadvantage. So it was the whole institutionalization of slavery and how it extracted and pinned the descendants of slaves to the economic floor. We're dealing with the massacres. We're dealing with the lynchings. We're dealing with being made second-class citizens in this country. And I think trying to move a reparations initiative through the corporate community would just be much more difficult. The government has the taxing authority. It has the infrastructure to deal with the distribution. And it is the place where we all equally 
to some extent contribute, you know, black people and poor people and everybody else pay taxes. And those, we don't get a voice in whether those taxes are used to fund the war department or anything else. And so the government should handle it because we are so far removed from the actual institution, but we're not that far removed from the social um, degradation that the descendants of slaves come to. And if you try and move it through the corporate community, you're going to get all of this backlash and, oh, this company bought that company and that company sold this. And But to your point, Asherah, if you stole money from me and then you go and spend it, that's not to say you shouldn't be pursued because you spent the money. Or if you stole, your family stole money from my family and passed it down to your generations and they were able to build wealth out of it, that doesn't mean that that's legitimized because you've had it. I mean, we look at the Jews who um, survived the Holocaust, their descendants were able to claim reparations, you know, through Germany and through Europe. So I think, and I no think that's why we have to look that. at this as a state-funded institution, because certainly slavery and the degradation that attended it were embraced by the United States government. Now, I do think on that term, Bernie Sanders' idea of putting a one or two cent tax on all the transactions um that are happening on Wall Street, his idea was to use that as a funding source to liquidate student loan debt. But when you think about it, that is a very good source of funding reparations because it would be almost transparent to the people on Wall Street because of the size of those transactions, but it would provide a huge source of income. And so I, I could support the government doing it and using that tax through Wall Street to fund it. But I think it should be administered and made available through the federal government so that it takes away all of the diversity of the different states and different companies and this and that and blah, blah, blah. So I just want to add in here, I want to answer your question, Ashura, because I just looked this up. So everyone listen to this about Benedict. His great-grandfather, Henry Cumberbatch, was also a diplomat who served as consul in Turkey and Lebanon. And his grandfather, Henry Carlton Cumberbatch, was a submarine officer for both world wars and a prominent figure of London high society. Cumberbatch is third cousin, six, 16 times removed of King Richard III, who okay. he portrayed in the hollow crown. So like so he, I was saying, the family got money. So he's like far, far removed royalty. Yeah, he's royalty. He's uh, yeah, uh, royalty, which we would have never known if, if it wasn't for you, Ashura. See? Uh, to my my other question was the the idea when people say, "Well, if you want reparation, how are you gonna pay for it?" I mean, the government could just roll out money <laughs> like it's like it's raining, like no tomorrow. I mean, they do it for war. They mm -hmm. just printed. They they basically took taxpayer money and sent it to Ukraine. At the same time, they did it at a drop. They they also basically printed money, not 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 with taxpayer funded money. They just printed brand new for Ukraine. So why can't you do the same to get rid of? 
uh, poverty or the infrastructure and just tell people when they're going to bitch about, well, am I, am I, am I tax dollars going to pay for it? Just say so you're just going to quit money. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, MMT. We don't even, you know what? So you don't have to tax. I, I know Noel, you're talking about like we can use this to tax that to uh, pay for reparations or whatever. Federal government doesn't even have to do that because Congress is a currency issuer. They just legislate new money into existence, just like that. Whether there's inflation going on or whether there's not inflation going on. And most of the time, there's not inflation going on and they're still doing it. They just got Republicans, conservatives, and yes, uh, um, um, Sabrina, uh, Ronnie the righty and Connie the conservative got us with these um, Cato Institute Heritage Foundation talking points of making us think that in order for the federal government to pay for something, someone needs to be taxed. And they got us in this in this thing where we've adopted it, where it's become part of our language. And we have to exercise that out of our language and start talking about instead of my tax dollars, just saying government money. That went somewhere, but not to us. Yeah, that that's the part too. When they say, uh, "Well, we'll just tax the rich. Why not just say you'll print the money and just exactly. get it?" Exactly. Because uh, the way I see it is like if you're gonna, when parents basically they want to make sacrifices, financial sacrifices, so that their kid can get out of poverty, they will pay. They will go into debt, pay the amount of money it needs to that kid to go to get a higher education and get out of the neighborhood. They don't want them to spend the rest of the days living in the ghetto. So I'm pretty sure the United States could just look it away as an expense for every person. Just say it as investment. Mm-hmm. Whatever it, 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 and just roll out the fucking money and just say, oh yeah, if we wasted $30 billion or $30 trillion, it was just an investment on the American people. Who fucking cares? I forgot who Savvy had her on her show one time talking about how the debt ceiling and they, the Republicans and Democrats always bitch about the debt ceiling. But I'm like, mm-hmm. why don't you just not give a fuck about it? Or why don't you just print the money to resolve the debt? I mean, you never see them talk about shit about when they're going to war and print money for the military and just the complex or the or the when they roll out the money to give them um like those uh, housing people and just give them the money. They give them bailouts. They give them subsidies, all that shit. Nobody talks about um where you're getting the money from. They like to say taxpayers, but you're rolling out some money on the side here for free. Uh, Sarah, I was on the call. Um, on- oh, sorry. I was just going to say really quick, when I brought on um, Fadil Kaboob, I did ask yes. him if other politicians in Congress are aware of minting the coin. And he said, oh, yeah, actually, Ro Khanna knows about it. I think, it, I think it, the guy you brought in was the guy I have in mind. I think it was the guy from Status Quo. I think he was Steve Grumbine. I brought him yeah. on too. Yeah, he was the one I remember that talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you I, know think, I think Pasta too. You know who else said that? Basura. Yeah. Chuck Schumer. Actually, he didn't say it. He 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 didn't dispute it when I said it to him on a Zoom call. Because I told him I called him out. I was just like, I was like, no, nah, don't give me none of this nonsense. You can print the money because the, it is. It is your purview. You are, you um, you are given that authority by the Constitution to print whatever money you need to pay for whatever it is, and 
And, you know, he said yes. <laughs> yeah, because there was a point of the, you know, financial verbiage. I didn't understand when uh, I think it was Steve Grumby when he was, on, he was on Savvy Show. He said you could just print a coin and that coin could be just unlimited amount of money to fucking just That's roll it. Yes. I'm like, yep. just the coin? Because the debt Just ceiling, the yes. Guys, and this goes for reparations too. The debt ceiling isn't even a real thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, and it's, that's it's, why it's, it's important to understand MMT. Yes. So, like, so, so, Sarah, let me let me just answer the, the thing, your question. Well, it's kind of a question. Article one, section eight, clause five, gives Congress the authority to mint a coin of any denomination um, assign whatever value it is that they want to it and target it and appropriate it toward where they think. Um, Also, I think it's, uh, I think it's U.S. Code uh, Section 31, U.S. Code 511 of the Constitution also gives that right to the Treasury Secretary to do the same thing that Congress can. Yeah, and my other comment was about uh, African-American roots. Um, it, it seems like you guys are really bothered by that a lot, like when it comes to you don't know where you come from. Um, I live in Haiti, so you basically, I used to live in Haiti, so basically I was born there. So basically, we never had to talk about that kind of stuff because we, we all know basically Haitian slavery, most of us don't really look beyond Haiti. We just focus on the now, which is basically the families that we've had over the years. So we, we, we can track that, but we never really go outside the country to see oh, where, where are you from? Are you from Nigeria, Uganda, whatever black country you could think of? But it seems like African Americans, when they think about it, I'm like, you guys rebuilt yourself a culture. I mean, you, you've done pretty much well for yourselves and you've been exploited by it. You, you basically revolutionized, revolutionized the music industry, the dance, the, the, the uh, I, I can't, I can't call it the dance industry. Basically, let's say the, well, the dance industry, the dance industry itself, but nobody gets any recognition for it. But yeah, well, I mean, speaking to well, a select it's few important uh, African Americans, the majority of African Americans as a community as a whole, we're still behind. That's the thing. Like, yeah, there have been some advancements or some success when you talk about music and art and and entertainment and things like that and sports as well those people those people are outliers the majority of of african-americans if you come to the u.s the majority of african-americans don't get that opportunity or that experience and the people who do get that opportunity and that experience most of them they don't hold the ladder up behind them to let other people come up the ladder they pull the ladder up with them like jay-z I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to say it. They put <laughs> with them and everybody else is just kind of, okay, I did it by myself. You have to fend for yourself. So there's no unity there. And I think, again, when you look at the history, a lot of that goes back to slavery. When you had the separation of black people, then when you had people separated based on the color of their skin, where lighter skinned slaves were in the house and darker skinned slaves were in the field. Uh, so the people who wanted to please uh, the master, so to speak, got certain privileges that those who weren't willing to do that didn't get. So, I mean, like what you guys see, like on the entertainment side, that's not the majority of African-Americans. That's the problem that that we're running into, I think. Yeah, in my uh, 
my last two comments um it was about the what the force to vote thing was going on <laughs> uh, oh my god like the republicans even though it's a it's a fucking show and we both know the republicans aren't gonna do anything good but the amount of energy i'm like where the fuck did they get this swelling of energy comes up when these republicans to fight is it is it a natural thing to just want to fight with people and the energy never goes away and it's just stored it sometimes expels but it gets backing again but the democrats or the left republicans are natural gladiators i'm like (laughs) i'm trying to learn from them (laughs) i'm like where the fuck is the energy coming they republicans always find no whatever bullshit they talk about whether you agree with it or not they always have the fucking energy and the numbers to back it up. But see, that's I'm trying to get us to that, be like um, them. That's the thing that Robin was saying. If you don't really care about, I guess, like being a part of the party, so to speak, then you can do those courageous things. Yeah, because I was watching Matt Gates. I'm like, fucking Matt Gates. He's got a fucking pedophile shit behind him right now. I'm like, he's putting all this energy out. And people were saying, what if AOC was saying that shit? He doesn't have that. And, <laughs> he doesn't have it anymore. Um, there's nothing they can hold him on. Oh, oh, I you guess he's right, but, uh, yeah. They can't hold him on it because apparently, like, it was inconclusive. Oh, okay. So he he can he can basically say that as an excuse. And the fact, the funny part about it, it was like, uh, you know, that music for um, I, I think it's called the com- is it Community, the one with the guy was was like Bernie Sanders' cousin, um. He says he's Jewish too. Like he was on SNL. Um, there's Larry, that weird, yeah, yeah. There's Larry that weird music. I think it was come from Community. And every time I saw the the thing about um, uh, McCarthy trying to be Speaker, first round, no. Second round, no. Third round, no. It's like that. That's the music that that that, that that's going in my head right now. That Community music, like yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Like da 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 that's like round one, same thing. Round two, same thing. Round three, same thing. He's becoming Boehner right now. He's he's having a headache on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, like, why couldn't the squad do that for Nancy? But here's one of the other Hopefully. things that we can't overlook when we talk about, you know, the Republicans bringing the fight and willing to fight and this and that. We have to understand that the Republican Party still relies very heavily on a white vote. And these state legislatures are drawing those districts wider and wider as far as they can. So they're very safe in their districts so they can afford. And if Matt Gates has, you know, beat this pedophile thing of course, he can stick his check, chest out and say A, B, and C and be ready to fight because they know the chances of them not being able to come back and be reelected through those districts is small. On the Democrat side, they have been relying on a more diverse base, less stable districts, and even though they gerrymander when they get a chance to, but um, it's nowhere near the comparison to what the Republicans are doing. And on the flip side, we talk about Republicans got all this fight and they're willing to stand up. But when Donald Trump was in that office and he was doing all manner of detriment, nobody was willing to just stand up then. And Liz Cheney came to the table late. So it is about their connection to their base. I mean, and so 
You brought up a good point where you say they're energizing their white base, but at the same time, the left has a white base, but they, they're more diverse. But why can't they beat the drums that have them marched in the streets? Because their diverse base are not on the same page. When you, when you have a diverse base, you have actually people like the Democrats are relying heavily on the Hispanic vote. They have the black vote corner there. They lean towards the um, well-educated vote. Those people are not always on the same page with what they want to go in terms of policy. So when, you know, the Republicans, they can push stuff, even though it may be counter narrative or counter to what their base needs. But as long as they're clear on a racial thing, they can count on them votes with the Democrats it's a less certain thing. And the other part is, you know, the Republicans have a just unabashed um, approach to capitalism and they know they're going to do whatever they need to do for capital. And they make it clear. The Democrats try and spin the narrative so that it doesn't look as if they are so capitalist and this, that, and a third. And they talk about diversity and they talk about these things is just talk, but they know they have to do that just talk. And then when they get in, they legislate a whole different way. So they have to do a different dance than the Republicans do because they're playing to a much more diverse audience. Uh, when I was talking about uh, I was talking about their base, I was talking about like the poor people because you both know the Republicans basically they charge up the poor people to go out and basically march the streets. I wasn't talking about the elitists in the Democratic Party, but the the poor the poor families, poor blacks, poor whites, even some maybe Indians, maybe Indians like people from India, Muslims, but just the poor people just galvanize them to uh, march the streets. Do you mind? I just, do you mind if I just interrupt for a second? Because I was, now that now that people have bounced around this idea of possible sources of funding, I wanted to try to just run this concern by people and just see if it makes sense. Really, it's a, it's an idea of a possible problem that could come later down the line in the reparations issue. That if you the only problem I would oh. say the reparation thing would probably be there's no there's no. Uh, there's no log to say where they got one slave over the other. I think so. Gator this is this is uh, sure. I think Gator was cut off. Gator, are you still there? I thought he was done. Well, his uh, his circle is lighting up, which means he okay. might be still talking. Um, okay, well, go ahead, Ashura. Yeah, I, I was thinking that the, the problem with the reparations things that. Is calling Grand Theft Auto with Roger? <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up, get in yeah, there. Yeah, because the problem with the reparations thing, it seems like there is no, there is no chart or some kind of uh, slave manifesto to say, okay, we got this slave in New Guinea, we got this slave here in Jamaica, we got this slave here somewhere in Africa, and I don't think, I think that's going to be a problem because. There's no fucking manifesto. There's no chart flight. No what, whatever the fuck to basically say we got the slave there to say that's basically where your roots come from. As you said, you said you didn't. You don't know where your family comes from. Like I said, I know where my family comes from. We don't just we don't we don't we don't fuck talk about basically where we come from in Africa. We just stay talk about where we from in Haiti. 
again, but to see again, Shira, you have that tie. You have that tie to where you come from. You know that you come from Haiti, right? And yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, like sometimes it is kind of like disappointing not to know your family history. And I don't really know. Like I said, like past my great grandparents, I don't know my family history. The funny and part so, you said, the funny so part that we're clear, said. when Sabrina says she doesn't know her history past her great grandparents, that's not the point that links to the reparations. In accordance with the ideology that Dr. Sandy Darity has put forward, um, before the Naturalization and Immigration Act of the 60s, according to the U.S. Census, the vast majority of Blacks in the United States at that point were somehow the descendants of slaves. Because when you think about it, in the post-slavery era, you wouldn't have had a lot of Black people um, immigrating to the United States anyway because we were being treated so horribly. So the vast majority of immigrant Blacks to this country have come after the Naturalization Act in the 60s. So when Sabrina says, well, I don't know, we're not saying that you wouldn't be eligible because you couldn't track your lineage back to a specific na um, African nation. We're saying you may not be able to track your full lineage back, you know, to where your people came from when the slaves came to this country. But what we do know from the census and the records that the slave owners kept, the vast majority of people, black people in the United States, post-Civil War and up to the um, 20th century, the vast majority of those were somehow the descendants of slaves, whether you could connect it directly back um, or not. So the reparations um, as an ideology is not tied to whether you can track that all the way back because the census how, gives us some insight. It's funny how you said uh, that you guys were, natu were naturalized up until 1960. So what, what, 1960s? So what were you guys exactly identified as? No, 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 Shura. She was talking about, um, I'm not sure if, you, if when I was on a couple of hours ago, when I talked about, the 1924 Immigration Act, okay. where it's where it said, okay, so the 1924 Immigration Act banned people from non-white countries. No, I know that part because I, yeah. okay. I, I thought maybe right. I thought so, it was, okay. so, I thought it was so because me, you're black in America, you're not rec you're not recognized as American because so, you're black. So, so, so all right, so just just like I was saying, how it banned people who were. Um, who were who were who were not white to come to this country because they based it on the 1890 census, right? And the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act lifted that ban. Um, so, in 1960, before five years before that passed, uh, black immigrants were less than one percent of the population. It was it was like 125,000. Um, so everyone who came here. Every most of the black immigrants that came here came after the passing, and everybody else of of you know non-white countries came here after the 1965 Naturalization and Immigration Act. Okay. Um, so that's so that's that's what she was that's what uh, Noel was was talking about. Yeah. And uh, it's me. 
essentially, if you could track your lineage back up before the 1960s and ensure savvy and most blacks can do that, then we know by assumption that your descendants were likely the descendants of slaves because the fact is the amount of black immigrants prior to that was, as Roger said, less than 1% or something like that. So you may not be able to say, well, we came from this plantation in Georgia and my mother came from that plantation in Tennessee, but we know that they were likely, for the most part, descending through slavery because we did not have a lot of immigrant blacks in this country at that time. Okay. And uh, my my last copy was to you, Sabi. You sure you're not, you know, a little bit Haitian inside you? Because you said that you're partly, the part of you is French and Spanish. That's like, those were the slave owners of Haiti, basically. That was my, um, my sister's DNA results, um, that came back for her and she did it twice. Um, yeah. I don't know, dude. Um, <laughs> this is why. Let, let me let me explain something really clear. Because I had a bone to pick with Elizabeth Warren. Okay. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth. Oh, if there's reparations, to she's gonna be the first this. to get it. No, I got a bone to pick about this lineage shit. Let me tell you something. When Elizabeth Warren says that she's part Native American, right? And by the way, she benefited off of that. She benefited off of it. For people mm-hmm. like, oh, he, she just said that. It didn't mean anything. No, bullshit. She got a job for it too. Off of it, right? She got a job for Harvard. DNA results come back, and it's like zero point zero two percent. Which, to be honest, a lot of us are going to have that, right? You're not Native American, boo. You're not a part of any tribe. And there are people who are. There are people who have that percentage point. And they like, yeah, we, I am a part of this tribe. Like Sam Bradford, who was a um, quarterback for the NFL, he's one of those people. Like, he actually does belong to a tribe. Like, you wouldn't know that. Like, if you just met Sam Bradford, you wouldn't think that. But he is. He is part Native American, and he has that that uh, tribe affiliation. But listen, Elizabeth Warren, so she get back and be like, well, that was up. that's what I was told by my family. And I, I do understand that part, because let's be real. And Roger can probably attest to this too. There's been many of us in the African-American community that have been told that we had Native American like ancestry and stuff like that. So I get that part. The problem that I have is that she benefited off of it. That's what bothers me. And then she get the test results back and it says, oh, it's 0.0 something cent, which is basically like the majority of us guys. But didn't so she is, didn't she double down on it and still want it until Trump made did. fun of her for it? She did. She did double down on it. That's the thing that really bothers me. But the other thing is this is the fact that here you have someone who is obviously Elizabeth Warren is not Native American. Okay? But she was able to benefit from it and profit off of it. And here's the thing. Nobody was like Elizabeth Warren needs to resign because she lied about having Native American heritage. Well, that was the red flag about her story because she said her great grandmother was was Native American, and I'm and I'm thinking about it. You're like maybe three generations down, so wouldn't your mom be half, and you'd be a, like a quarter Native right. American? You'd be a quarter. You said your great grandmother basically was a slave, married a white guy, but that would mean your mom would be half, and you'd be a quarter. 
But how come you're not the quarter? That means like far behind. Maybe she did have it, but that's like so fucking removed. Like maybe a hundred years or two hundred years behind. Ashura, she made money off of it. Ashura, she had a cookbook. <laughs> like this is the Cow thing. So don't don't get me wrong. Like George Santos is a fucking liar, and I told you guys. Like he didn't even try to do good lies, right? Like he tried to lie about things that people can easily track. But at the same time, like I told you, Elizabeth Warren, she lied about her background, too. And where was this push from Democrats saying, Elizabeth Warren, you need to step down from your Senate seat because you lied about Native American heritage? Where was that? The push was the push only came from Bernie Sanders. uh, uh, His what do you call that? Not misandry. Got the male version when you say it. They say he is a sexist. That's what it is. This is why we need to get rid of political parties. And here's an interesting point on reparations. According to Dr. Darity's um, methodology, you know, if you say, okay, the United States is to do reparations, you know, white people will come up out of the woodworks and be the first in line saying, ooh, I'm black, I'm a descendant of slaves. This yeah, yeah, and that. I was thinking the same thing. The, the, the white but people what, will be the first out the door. I'm half what, black, I'm this, I, I, need, I need it first. But what Dr. Darity is proposing is that we use the U.S. census, and if your people were registering and filing census data as white, then you are white. Because you have self-declared yourself to be white. So whether you are a Carol Channing who passed for white for all those years and avoided the accumulated um, detriments of being black because she looked white and she recorded herself white, then you white. And that's that. Because you have the additional, and that's just a, a backstop way you know, so it'll be a two-tier um, thing to determine eligibility. You know, it yeah. would not just be you being able to trace your lineage back, but also to use this, the census to say, well, how were your people being recorded through the census? How were you self-identifying? And if you were self-identifying as white for three, four, five generations, like some of the descendants of Sally Henming, then y'all white. You know, yeah. you said you were white for two or three generations, so you're white now. Mm-hmm. That's that's why um, uh, they're trying to get um, Friedman on the next um, census to delineate between uh, Black Americans and other other uh, Black people in the country. Um, but you know who who uh, who should have been on this call with us, oh. Sabi. Kim. <laughs> Which one? You know what Kim I'm talking about. Kim Iverson? Yep. I'm going to have to have this conversation with Kim. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to have the chat. It, it, yeah. Maybe Tim can speak some, some sense into her. <laughs> In case anybody don't know, I got into it with, with Kim Iverson some years ago. Oh, Kim Iverson. Okay. Again, she, I think it's one of those things where she might need to be shown the data. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's be real. I, here's, here's something we need to think about, guys. Okay. Mm-hmm. Prior to, and I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but 
-hmm. Prior to RBN coming into the space, you had how many black voices? You had Tim Black, you had Nico House, and then Bree uh, Bad Faith Podcast came after. That was after Bernie, right? Wasn't that after? Yeah, yeah, okay. it came after. Bernie. So that was that was after Bernie, right? Okay. So here's something to think about. You didn't have that many black voices that were a part of the progressive movement, so to speak. And so you got to think about that. The time that Kim was around in the progressive movement, most of the movement was all white men. So where was she getting her narrative from? You see what I'm saying? Like, this is why it's so important that you have other people in the space. So Kim might have been basing her logic on the other Living people in, who in the space. And let's be real. And I told you guys, all those other people that like Kyle Kalinske was against reparations, mm -hmm. even though, like, it's funny to me, the people pushing Marianne Williamson now, like Kyle Kalinske, I, I think him and Crystal were the first ones like, oh, Marianne, yeah, Marianne, which is funny to me because Kyle Kalinske said that Marianne Williamson was crazy when she was running in 2020 and that he was against reparations. So all of a sudden, I'm like, how the hell do you get on this Marianne Williamson train all of a sudden? You know, mm -hmm. you got to stop and ask these questions. Like, where did this come from? But my thing is, is this, at that point in time, when I was watching left independent media, those were the only voices in the space. Those were the ones with the biggest platform, the TYTs, the Kyle Kalinskis, the, uh, well, David Pakman at one point was a part of that movement. David, David Pakman been sold out and he lived in my state. I'll tell him to his face, but he, he sold out because he saw there was money going towards, if you go towards the Biden thing, that's where the money is. And he takes sponsorship. So David Pagan, I'm going to get paid. Um, so you had that, you had majority report and then you had also, damn, I'm forgetting people. This is bad. But, but the it's point I'm trying to, yeah, they, like you had like majority report and those people, but the point I'm trying to get across is that those are the only voices we had. Yeah, but uh, Kyle Kyle is a liberal. Like Kyle Kyle, if you think back, most of the, in 26, 20, 20, 2020, Kyle will say some shit that it sounded like he was he was a neoliberal masquerading but you're talking as a about, But see, you talking about twenty twenty. Most of us discovered him way before that, oh, and I, I, the rhetoric the rhetoric was different at that time. But, because but, I remember, I don't know if everyone remembers this, but I remember when Kyle gave uh, Barack Obama like a D. Yeah, that was after, yeah after he left. But like I like I, what I'm saying is, what if basically he was never a leftist? He was a neoliberal, and he talked like a leftist. There's that too. But he said he didn't vote for Joe Biden, though. Well, he also so said he's a libertarian, so. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember hearing saying him saying a libertarian. Uh, uh, he like when, when Trump was getting elected. When Trump was probably not when he was getting elected, he was basically talking about uh, putting tariffs on China, and he was basically talking. You know how fast he likes to talk. He basically says, "I'm a libertarian. I believe in tariffs." Once Trump did the tariffs and it backfired, Kyle Kalinske never said he was for tariffs ever again. Okay, I'd have to see that. I never remember him saying he was a. And in fact, I've seen him criticize libertarians. Yeah, he has some libertarian views. Probably on war, because he was 
calling out Obama during his time in office talking about the drone strikes. But he won't call out Joe Biden in reference to giving aid to Ukraine. Y'all see the split? Changed. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not really. It's not really a change. Well, he did change because he's marrying a. He's he's married to a forty-one millionaire right now. Forty-four so million dollars. I'm still trying to get over that. And, and he changed his hairdo, so people are calling him. Forty-four million dollars. I hate to tell you guys this, but he's a millionaire too. Is he and Crystal married? Not yet. Oh, she's Sabrina. probably going to dub him before the marriage comes in. She'll buy, she'll buy a wedding, she'll buy a wedding dress. She'll look at it, and then I'll just okay, Kyle, it's over. Guys, do you mind if I just um, finish off asking my question? I, I don't know if I got cut, cut off before. Uh, I, my phone, the the app, kind of locked up. Go ahead. Well, uh, did I was basically posing the reason why I asked where people feel reparation funding might need to come from is because my concern would be that down the line, if people felt that it should all be government funded, a skilled political operator could use that and turn it against the reparations movement because what they could create is a narrative in the public headspace that said, hang on, if only government funds are going to pay reparations to the victims, the, the, the descendant victims of slavery, that means that not only are all of those victims effectively paying a little bit towards themselves because public money is essentially socialized debt. But also, every one of the American public who clearly had nothing to do with being a beneficiary of slavery are also paying some of that bill because it's socialized debt. And then all of the people who are not qualified, um, you know, essentially that means that the reparations are basically being paid by the American public and many and it would be easily easy for a skilled political operator to foment discord inside the a significant part of the American population who would be saying hey why should I be shouldering the, um, the, the any of the reparations bill through my share of the American public debt now a way to defeat that early would be possibly to try to make sure that the funding sources and the reparations movement always takes into account three funding sources. So they look at clearly identifiable um, private entities or institutions who were the were the traceable beneficiary of slavery, and then and then and that could be the Benedict Cumberbatches of this world as well as other other entities, but also then corporations. And admittedly, as Sabrina points out, you know the corporations can and do have the money, the means, and the modus operandi to resist in court, but ultimately that could be overridden by certain uh, political um, tools such as executive orders and various aspects of legislation. So that doesn't mean to say that you couldn't make corporations sufficiently um, liable. And then the third fund being, the third source of funding being, yes, some money will have to come from government coffers. But that way, if the reparations movement can kind of come up with a credible mix of those three sources of funding, it would very, very significantly limit the ability for these skilled political operators to turn the American public against the payment of reparations if it was purely socialised debt that was the source of the funding. 
does, is that something that's worth flagging at this point in time, just so that people think about it? Or do you think that that doesn't really have merit? Um, not, to, sure. not to my thinking, because here's the issue. Um, the one point you made that is, I think, a little off the mark is that you seem to suggest that there are people in the American society to this day who have not benefited from slavery. And that's just not the case. It may not have been that your family owned slaves, but let's be clear in that slavery laid the foundation for the entirety of the economic um, economy of the United States. When they say capital, I mean, cotton was king, cotton was funding everything. And, you know, the slaves were building out, you know, the infrastructure of the nation as well. So when you consider the vast amount of immigrants that came to this country from Europe after the end of slavery, whatever you found as opportunity, slavery had built that out. So what we have to do is work on the education so that people realize that because this nation's economy was grounded in slavery, everybody has benefited. And just like you don't get to choose where your socialized debt payments go with respect to the military and this and that, reparations is no different. And we already have people who are fomenting the argument that you weren't a slave and my people didn't own you and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But that is so very superficial and so very inadequate with respect to the argument for reparations. Yeah, I, I, if I you definitely go get where back, you're coming from. And, I, and I if you go you. back and extract the um and and Sandy Darity's book from here to equality is a great book to read because he lays it out the contribution that slave labor made to the emergence of the US economy as an economic behemoth and if you isolate the contribution of slave labor to this country we are nowhere near where we would be today because mm -hmm. that money that was extracted through slavery was reinvested it was capitalized it went to build out all the institutions and yada 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 so everybody has benefited mm -hmm. and so that's the piece that people need to understand there are no people in this country who have not benefited we okay. have to understand that and another point that we have to point out as well two things even the medical industry has benefited from slavery and they well, yeah, owe yeah. reparations. Yeah, sure. And I point this out because of this, you know, when Marcus came on my show and we were talking about uh, the benefits of the medical industry when it comes to slavery. For all of you women uh, in the chat that, sorry guys, but for all you women in the chat, when you go to your, uh, your gyno appointments, that actually came from slavery because they actually experimented on black female slaves uh, gynecology uh, treatments without anesthesia. They had no anesthesia. And you have to remember what back in that time, the instruments were not as, <clears throat> as, as great as they are today. They were just experimenting with those women. Not to mention you have someone like a Henrietta Lacks whose family finally got uh, their just due but they took this woman's cells, and I know this because this happened in Baltimore, so that's my family uh, is from Baltimore, so I knew a lot about this. 
Wasn't they that a story in Law and Order? Yeah, like they took this woman's cells for cancer research because yeah. there was something different about her cells, so to speak. And they used her cells to implement treat treatments for cervical cancer. Her family did not know until years later that they took her cells and used it for that. And they had received no monetary benefit for it until they found out about it. And then it became like a public issue and there was like a book written about it and everything. But the medical industry was able to profit off of Henrietta Lacks cells when it comes to gynecology, uh, another black woman. But they experimented on black slaves for medical treatments for things to net today, like you would have to receive anesthesia for. So just imagine that, uh, so to speak, how the medical industry has profited off of that. And even today, when black women go to the doctor and they are pregnant, they are not treated with the same uh, type of endearment as white women are. And black women are dying from childbirth, even in 2023 today, because of those reasons. Uh, so you have to think about that, the type of pain that black people have endured in this country through the medical industry and the medical profession that allows you to get the treatments that you get today. And let's not leave out the accrued disadvantage that took place and was the experience of the descendants of slaves post-Civil War. I mean, you have to think about through the years, the massacres, the lynchings, the redlining, all of that accrued disadvantage is a type of extraction. When you redline me out of the community or you frame me out of the Homestead Act or you leave me out of the GI Bill or you fragment me through the Farm Bill, those benefits that are being withheld from me are going to build out your white middle class, which was largely European immigrants. So there is and that's the biggest fallacy around reparations for the descendants of slaves, there was not a stop gap in the prices that were extracted from the descendants after the official institution of slavery ended. The extraction continued. It just took different forms. Okay. And so what we're saying is when you look across the American society, black people have contributed, the descendants of slaves have contributed all along the way. And if it wasn't original, you know, zero pay slavery, you had the um, the extraction of labor at a discount through the, um, what is the, the, the name they call it? I can't think of the word, but it's the contract slavery. It's the criminalization of black life so that you can put them in jail and then use, you know, get slave labor that way. So there's a whole history of it that America at large is just unaware of. So they can so easily say, oh, you weren't a slave and I wasn't a slave owner. But okay, so but we look at the right. entire lineage in this situation. There are people who are very wealthy today who can track that wealth back for generations. And they don't say, well, you know, I should be poor because I didn't earn that money. My father and grandfather and great-grandfather passed that money forward. 
So it's it's interesting to me that when we want to talk about repair from and people want to say, oh, that's not possible. As many Americans sit here having inherited all sorts of things from generations before. And what people have to understand, too, is this, is that um, when we talk about repair? slavery being abolished. I want to talk about people, repair. One second, Dale. When yeah, we yeah, talk about you. slavery being abolished, what we have to understand is one of the reasons they didn't want to abolish slavery is because they said, well, then how will we have labor? So as someone who lived in South Carolina and I went to college in South Carolina, I learned a lot when I lived there about the history. And I went to Charleston. I didn't go to college in Charleston, but I went to Charleston one time and I went through the whole historical tour and all that jazz. One of the things I learned during the historical tour even after they were told not to bring over any more Africans to the U.S., Charleston, South Carolina was still bringing over slaves through the slave trade. It was the largest port for slave trade. And I'm going to tell you guys something that those of you in New England, if you don't know this, I'm about to drop a bombshell for you. Rhode Island was the third largest. So for people who think that slavery only took place of the slave trade primarily only took trace took place in the south that is false rhode island was the third largest slave trade port in the united states because rhode island was trying to export rum so they brought slaves in for that in south carolina it was rice so they didn't know how to grow rice. So they brought in slaves from Africa to grow the rice. North Carolina has cotton in the tobacco fields. It's different per state. But what people have to know is that even after they were told not to do it anymore, they were still bringing them in through the slave trade. And it was 100% for the labor and for capital. And that was the thing that was brought up. If we get rid of slavery, then we're not going to have anyone to do the labor. But how did they solve that problem? To Noel's point, the prison industrial complex. Let's still continue the labor process through the prison system. And that still goes on today. Yeah, uh, these are all fantastic points. I really appreciate um the, the the responses what, what one of my concerns though is that if i was a political opponent to reparation then i would be seeking to use d highly disruptive tactics now if i'm on this pro pro reparation side it makes sense for me to try to s secure as much broad scale public support across all racial divides for the principles that we're talking about here and the effects of uh, the, the wide scale effects of slavery. But if I was a political opposite of that or a, a opponent of that, then I would be playing a divide and conquer game. And one of the ways that I could do that is to ferment inside the minds of people that if the reparations only come from public debt, right, then essentially somehow the burden of those reparations are being unevenly attributed, right? Because because then you can even use quite sophisticated arguments while saying, well, you know, these people who want the reparations, they want every one of you to pay for it. But that's not going to 
you know, and you can sow some dissent. And then you can start slowing things down by saying, you know what, they're half baked. They should have looked at IBM or DuPont or something like that, because all these guys are actually clearly beneficiaries of slavery right back to day X, right? And then by by doing using that technique, you can actually end up delaying the whole reparations thing because you, you, you create two things. You potentially create a pseudo um, public, a pseudo public pushback in some people that could be echoed in the media, right? Which would then slow down the arguments. And also at the same time, if you weren't looking for corporate, some element of corporate reparation, then me as the political opponent coming along and saying, hey, have you not looked at, you've forgotten to look at obviously reliable corporations. You would then trigger potentially the work that should have been done, right? And then and then that would add even longer to it. And so that's, that, that's what my ultimate question is. If a political opponent can use these financial arguments against you, they probably will. And so is it worth being very aware of them now and defeating them before they get rolled out in the future. I mean, they can roll the attacks all they want. I'm pretty sure people will be savvy enough to counter them in the future because that part about saying, well, reparations, taxpayers have to pay for it, pay for it. I'm pretty sure people have now been savvy enough to say, we're going to go after the corporations and we're going to governments are going to have to roll out the money. Right, taxpayers would be paying for it. Yeah, exactly, Sabi. You, you just have to find a way not to touch a taxpayer because that, that that that's a very that's a very like a stinging issue. It's like you're stabbing someone with a knife every fucking time they say it. You say it, that's why people Democrats always shy away from reparations because they always bring that taxpayer money and people don't like that to use their tax dollars for you know giving it to black folks or they they call it like uh, what do they call it? handouts. I mean, just have the government roll it out, roll out the money, roll out the reparation money, whatever reparations it is. Uh, uh, if it's like the crime bill, roll out. How the are money. we going to afford to give money to Ukraine if we help out poor people, man? <laughs> Dale, what's up? We'll tax the politician. Hey, hey. <laughs> no, I have a burning question about reparations, and that is like, wouldn't the right answer be to like help society, help poor people in general? Wouldn't that be the best reparations possible? But that's not going to work. I'm pretty sure they've been breaking. How is not? I was helping people like not a good thing. Well, those are two different. Helping poor people is what I mean. Those are two different things. Really? Well, yeah, yeah. No, I heard some of that, and especially what you were saying, Savvy. Right. Um, it kind of broke my heart a little bit. Um, Yeah, those are two different things. Like, yeah, I think you're right. There is helping poor people where it to the point that like, yes, everybody needs to have a living wage in this country. I still think we need a federal jobs guarantee, which we don't have. We need housing for everybody in this country. So I totally get all that. The problem is, and this is the point, like if I ever had a chance to talk to Bernie Sanders, this is what I would say to him. The problem is, if you just focus on fixing the economic issues for everybody, you will still notice that black people will still be at the bottom because we're already behind. That's the problem. It's not gonna uplift us to equality. We won't be equal with you. We're not equal with white people now. We won't be equal with white people then. See, that's the thing that Bernie Sanders didn't fully understand, or maybe he did understand it, but he chose not to. Because like I said, he had no problem with signing off on legislation 
for reparations for his people. He just disagreed with it when it came to signing off on reparations for black people. And even Nina Turner tried to explain this to him. Cornell West, I interviewed Cornell West and I said, why didn't Bernie agree to this? Cornell West said he had this conversation with Bernie Sanders. So he wasn't going to budge on that. So the thing that I want to uh, address is the fact that, yes, everybody should be uplifted out of poverty. But those are two different things. Even if you uplift everybody out of poverty and pay everyone a living wage, Black people are still going to be far behind in reference to the way the racial wealth gap because we already are behind. We're still trying to play catch up. We've been trying to play catch up for decades. And a couple of people have been able to get there. Like I said, like some of the celebrities I've mentioned to you, some of the businessmen, that they're outliers. The majority of African-Americans, especially those living in poverty, do not get that opportunity. They are automatically discouraged or they're automatically basically cast aside because they're black, which is some bullshit. So what people have to understand, and I speak as someone who went to college, I went to undergrad and I went to grad school. So I have two degrees. Even when I was in grad school, I still had to prove myself 10 times more than my white counterparts. Even when I graduated from grad school and I went into the professional field, I still had to prove myself 10 times more than my white counterparts that I deserve to have that position. I still had to work 10 times harder just to be on the same level as they were, whereas they could come in and just do the bare minimum just to get by and they would get promoted. So this is what people have to understand. We are still at the bottom. We will not be equal with you. Even if you implement all those policies that Bernie Sanders was talking about, because he truly believes that if you fix the economic situations, that'll fix it for everybody. Bernie Sanders doesn't understand racial history, if that's to be. And I, I just and I, and I wonder about that because this is the same guy who marched with Dr. King. This is the same guy who was arrested for oh, protesting against the police during that same time. So Bernie Sanders, you mean to tell me you walk with 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 Dr. King? Dr. King was talking about universal basic income. Dr. King talked about reparations. Dr. King was trying to organize the workers in Alabama. These are the pieces that are left out of the history book. I'm really, so I'm really naive on this tell topic. Us about the fact that Martin Luther King just wanted to unify people and wanted everyone to get along. They don't tell you about the fact that Martin Luther King was anti-capitalist. Right that Martin Luther King wanted a UBI, he wanted reparations, he wanted all of those things, and he wanted to unite the workers. Those pieces are left out of the history books because if they put that piece in, then people will look at Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and say, well, maybe there really wasn't that much difference between the two. And the education system does not want you to do that. But here's the other point too. Um, and to me, I can't escape the the ideology that those type of questions really reveal how deeply racist this country can be because if i say i deserve repair because i have descended through slavery and what my inheritance would have been was withheld from me because 
people came from slavery and didn't get anything. But if you talk to poor white people and say, well, why should you be repaired? There is no answer. And the reality is they're saying, well, if you gonna get some and you not gonna be the bottom of the social and economic register anymore, then I have to get some. And what they're really saying is, we are resistant to anything that would change the social and economic strata of this country. So that if your people receive repair for whatever the reason, we don't care what the reason is, what we care about is at the end of the day, we are relatively in the same economic positioning. That is, we're above you and you're the bottom. And so we're, we're, so if you can articulate, if I am robbed and I go to court and say, this man robbed me of a hundred thousand dollars, then that is why I'm trying to get the hundred thousand dollars back. But make for my white neighbor was not robbed to come forward and say, well, I should get some money too. Why? You weren't robbed. You're doing, po you're poor and I'm poor. I was not saying anything like that. It's rooted in something different. No, that's not what you're saying, Dale. She's saying, Dale, I'm pretty sure she's saying for black African Americans. But she, talking she about sounded that, kind of like she was attacking me for suggesting no, she, she that helping you. all poor people not is where she's I would start. What I am questioning is why is it that right. people feel that when we talk about reparations, there must be something done for white people in this country who may not be faring well? I, I am linking the repair to the descendants of slaves to the degradation that they suffered through slavery and the withheld wages from the actual slaves that was never paid. That was a crime against humanity. We understand it when we see it in the Holocaust. When, when the rest of the world, the Western world said, okay, Germany, there needs to be repair paid to the survivors of the Holocaust and some of their descendants, Regular Germans didn't just come up and say, well, I should be paid something too. It, it, and that's what I'm saying. When we talk about reparations in this country, there is a knee-jerk reaction that I have seen uh, uh, basically from white America that's saying, well, what about us? And I'm saying- And, and it's never done to what to these other, I never hear anybody say when, let's say when Jewish people get their uh, reparations of Whatever the case is, I never hear anyone get in the way of that. I, or when these, they repair these, the Japanese yeah, from yeah, interned during yeah, World War II. And I want to be only. Go ahead, sorry. And I want to be very clear as well. Um, I do have friends that are Jewish, and this was brought to my attention like probably like eleven years ago. Some of my friends. We're like, yeah, I'm going to Israel for my birthright. And I was like, what is that? And so they had to explain that to me. And they're like, yeah, well, Jewish Americans, we get the opportunity to go to Israel. It's all paid for, for our birthright to learn about our heritage. All right, cool. I have no problem with that. Here's my question, though. Do Black people in this country get that same opportunity to go to Africa and learn about our heritage? No, we don't. <laughs> you see the problem? Yeah, I wonder if that part of the heritage is going to talk about the Palestinians. 
don't get me started on that one. I mean, like, like my friends, like they, they totally understand. Like they, they do not, they're not Zionists, so to speak. So they're not, they're not on that train, if that makes sense. But I, I think the point that we need to, like what Roger and Noel was just saying that we need to get across is the fact that nobody has this type of sentiment when it's other people of color. And let's talk about people of color for a second, because I'm going to go there, you know, I have friends of all different races, but there's something I've noticed, son. And one of the things I've noticed is that they seem to fit in to predominantly white spaces where black people do not, no matter how much education we have, no matter how much money we have. So my Asian friends can live in the white communities, the white suburban communities with no freaking pushback, no type of intolerance from the community. But let me show up. And then people have questions. Yeah, they, 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 there goes the my, neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. Like, yeah, even, exactly. Even some of my Brazilian friends, they can live in those white. Because you got to understand, there's a difference between, you know, this term "people of color" and black people, because yep. some of those people of color, they are white adjacent, meaning that they they, they get a pass. They get a pass. They don't stand out the way that black people do and i've seen this and it's not just where i live in massachusetts and boston i've seen it everywhere i've lived and i've talked to some of my friends that have lived on the west coast they'll tell you the same thing they're like come to seattle come to portland oregon come to uh, uh los angeles california and you'll see the same thing whereas some of those other people of color they can kind of blend in to those white communities because they don't stand out the way that we do. And I think that's something that we need to talk about as well, because when people say people of color and we're talking about Black Lives Matter and criminal justice, and we're talking about police brutality, let's be real. Even my Asian American friends will tell you they're not getting beat up by the police. Mm -hmm. They're not being shot by the police unarmed. They're not being questioned by the police. That is happening to black people so I yeah. want to be on, on very of, clear yeah. about that when people say, well, it's a people of color thing. Nah, bruh, we not all on the same page. And I say mm -hmm. this as someone who has worked at some of these institutions where there are many people of color. I worked at MIT and there's plenty of people of color. But what I noticed even working there is that when it comes to people of color, the other people of color, the Asian Americans, the Brazilian Americans, the Latino Americans, they blend in. The black students there really struggle. They don't have that type of community. They are outliers and they are pointed at and people do try to make an example out of them. Yes, even at an MIT, even at a Harvard University, which if we wanna be real, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, Harvard, Uni Harvard University participated in eugenics. Does Harvard talk about that? And that's where Adolf Hitler got uh, his idea from in terms of exterminating Jewish people. He, they said it at the Nuremberg trials when they was, when they were, uh, before they put those, his uh, Nazi soldiers and generals to death, that they got the idea from, they saw what America was doing to black people in terms of the eugenics program and said, Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do it uh, to Jewish people. 
But I want to also piggyback on what you were saying just now um, about people of color and so on and so forth. Politicians, society has has put non-white people in the same boat. So they're afraid to say the word black, you know, and they definitely don't even know what Friedman is, but they're afraid to say the word black anymore. So they'll say, okay, back in the days you could say minority and people of color because back then black people were the only people of color. Yeah. Okay. The problem is now you can't give a pizza pie to okay to 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 uh to to, to people of color. Because what this is what I end up seeing, just like how you was talking about with um uh, white women receive are the beneficiaries of affirmative action or whatever the case is, what you will usually see is when you know, whether it's Karen Bass or Biden or who, whoever these people talk about, uh, oh, yeah, we, we got uh, opportunities for uh, minorities and we have opportunities or people of color. Like, no, no, no. We want to know what black people are getting, because usually what you will see is out of all the people of color, black people end up getting the short end of the stick. I was like, oh, what do you mean? We we gave we we supported minority businesses and and people of color and people, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, we're, we're black people are always getting the short end of the stick when it comes to other people of color, whether it's Asians, whether it's Spanish, whether it's uh, what's, what's, um, um, a Middle Eastern, whatever the case is. So when, when we start hearing people of color and, and like, oh, we're going to give you these opportunities, whether it's people of color language and minority, that's a watered down version of what is meant for black people and we got to train these politicians and 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 you know people banks or whoever the case is and say no you say black don't don't say i'm not part of them a lot of times from what i understand a lot of other non-whites don't want to be looked at as people of color they want to be looked at as who they are whether it's asian or middle eastern or whatever the case is clear roger is it people Mm -hmm. of color when it comes to some type of benefit and is it white when you're filling out an application and and, and I want to be clear about this uh-huh. as well and I say this because I had to say something to a friend of mine about this she was like yeah I'm a person of color I was like vogue on your admission applications on your job applications you check white <laughs> so let, let me get this straight are you white or are you a person of color? Are you only a person of color when it benefits the situation at that time? Uh, Savvy, may I give my perspective on this, please? Go ahead, bad cook. All right. Um, as a Hispanic individual, you know, I don't really, I don't have the perspective you guys have as African-Americans. But as a Hispanic, I can tell you that we are also not welcome in those neighborhoods unless you behave in a certain way. Uh, the term I like to call it is you got whitewashed. You know, you if you behave like a quote unquote white person, you get accepted into that community and, and you, you're more integrated into that community. And um, I don't know if that happens for black folk as well, but I noticed that if you bring an immigrant Hispanic family into a neighborhood, they're going to get hated on too and they're going to get disrespected too. I don't know if it's going to be at the same level. But I can tell you that it does happen. That, that's all I want to say about that one. But um, bad cookies. Aren't there Latinos that are 
more white. I know there are Latinos from black, black and white because of uh, what happened in slavery, but majority of Latinos I've seen are basically white. Uh, if you're speaking uh, more Spaniards, uh, Spaniards don't even consider themselves uh, white themselves. They consider themselves Latin from Latin history. So they don't even consider themselves white unless, like Savvy said, they're going to put it on a piece of paper, in which case they don't want to market Latin because there's nothing to put Latin there. They don't want to consider themselves Hispanic because they don't consider themselves that they don't consider themselves the same. So they put white. It's not the same. It's not the same deal, Roger. Okay, and uh, to answer Dale's question, I don't think there are people leaving people out, Dale. I think the if you really want poor people to be helped, I think that's the government that abandoned you. The same way the the government abandoned Native Americans, they abandoned uh, Black African Americans by taking away their land and basically let them go through Jim Crow without any form of uh, reparations or an apology. I forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> you well, also like left out our immigrant black friends who come to this country and get in on the people of color minority benefit train. Oh. And the issue is, you know, when white people hear those yeah. accents, they recognize them as not being the descendants of slaves. And so they find them more appealing to deal with, yes. you know, yes. so that's a part of the problem, you too. Me. You reminded me what I was going to say. That, that's what I was going to say. Um, hold on. Hold on one second. Oh, Frank, Frank, are you finished? Because I, I want to get to Nestor because I know he's been waiting a while, too. Um, so, Frank, I'll just I'll invite you to speak and I'll add Nestor as a caller. So Nestor, you're on the mic and we also have Roger and Shardall, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, this is a great conversation. Uh, Noel, man, you are like 100% on everything, man. It's, it's incredible. Like your wisdom is just uh, something that uh, we need to really uh, uh, pay a lot of heart to. Um, I just wanted to add, you know, like, uh, the, the I think a lot of the U.S. citizens, their their problem is the the sheer willful ignorance of this country and and uh, how it began and how it survived. Uh, without black slavery, the United States might not even exist. We we might not, this might not even be a country. You see, like the first, when the Revolutionary War started, there there was only one third of the population of the colonies that wanted to separate from England. A lot of the population didn't want to separate. Uh, and a lot of this one third was all the landowners, the plantation owners, the people of wealth. They're the ones who wanted this revolution to happen. And the only reason they got the, the rest of the population in is because, you know, England, they, they fucked up. They did the Homestead Act where they would, you know, force people to uh, uh, house their their military, their mercenaries in their homes, and a lot of people turn against the British crown for that, and that's how the revolutionary war, you know, got more support from the populace, and, and another point is that the British were using mostly mercenary troops. The United States was depending a lot on the French and the Spanish to supply them with arms and funding, 
to fight the British. And this became even more apparent like in the War of 1812, where the British nearly wiped us out. If it wasn't for Napoleon running uh, rampant in Europe, the uh, United States would have lost that war, would have probably been, re um, re I guess, repatriated into the UK, to the British Empire. And in a lot of the way that the U.S. got the funding to fight and resist the British invasion in 1812 was through, through slavery, right. through, through the backs of the black people. And if it wasn't for, for, for slavery, the United States would have never recovered. We have never been able to industrialize because, again, remember, the colonies didn't have, uh, they were not industrial colonies. They were all agricultural, they were all plantations, they were all, uh, they were all based on, on just, uh, you know, farms and, and whatever the crops, the, the cash crops like tobacco, like coffee and whatever. So the United States depended heavily on black slavery to get that money, to get the technology to build the factories, to industrialize. And when the Civil War happened, that was all just about economics. It, was, it had nothing to do with they all of a sudden felt bad that, you know, uh, there was slavery and that they wanted to get rid of it. You know, th that was just a punishment because the South succeeded. They, 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 they split from the Union. That was just a punishment against them. I, I think, what was it, like five states that remained in the Union were able to keep slavery for another 10 years after the Civil War. So, so you know, it, it has a lot to do with the people who don't know this, this fact that without the black community, the United States would not even be a country. You would have never been able, the United States would have never been able to conquer the, the from, from East Coast to West Coast. They would have never able to be what it is today. Right. So they, what it owe, is today. Right. So they owe everything to the black community. Right, because the trades came from came from Africa. Like I told you guys about Charleston, South Carolina. They didn't know how to make rice. They got that from the Africans. So they brought them into Charleston to get them to make rice. It's a it's a different uh, product for each state. So North Carolina was mm -hmm. tobacco and cotton. Um, South Carolina was rice, heavily rice. So just keep that in mind that when it comes to some of the products and goods that you have in this country, that was already a deal in Africa. And they saw them making those products there and they said, let them bring someone you should listen to if you're into hip hop is Nas. Nas has a song called I Think I Can. And in that song, Nas talks about the fact how Africa was robbed. So this idea that Americans have that Africa is this poor continent is bullshit. Africa is not a poor continent. Africa was robbed, just like a lot of other countries where the United States came in and stole their resources. So you have to understand a continent like Africa was rich in certain resources. There's another movie that you should watch called Blood Diamond. And it talks about the diamond mines in Africa, how they were basically going into Africa and they were taking children, not even adults, but they had children to dig for the mines, to give, to dig for the diamonds, to give to the U.S. government, to bring back over to the United States, to sell the diamonds. So 
Africa is not a poor continent. It is rich in resources. And I've had people come on before. I'm going to bring them back on to talk about the resources in Ethiopia. Why do you think there's a crisis right now with Ethiopia and the U.S. government? Because there's resources there. This is what the U.S. government has been doing for years. They have been going to these countries. They've been stealing their resources so they can be the dominant factor in the world. Go ahead, uh, Roger. Um. I just have to, sorry, have to go back in a little bit on on, on your compadre, um, Kim, for a second. Um, so going by what, what Noel was talking about before in regards to um, they rather deal with uh, black immigrants than us because they know that they came here by choice and they don't owe them anything. Their reparations was coming here, Okay. So apparently there's a, a lot of Nigerians in Idaho, okay? And, you know, a couple of few years ago when me and her was going back and forth on Rockfin, um, she, she was famous for using, she loved using LeBron James and Oprah Winfrey up as, well, they made it, why not you? And... She said, well, I asked some people from, uh, 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 who are from, who live here, they're from Nigeria. And I asked them, do they, uh, is, do they feel that they're being uh, racist toward or whatever? And they were like, no. So then she just shrugged her shoulders, which means saying, well, it must be you guys. It must be something wrong with you. You know what I mean? And I said, I also said to her, um, I broke down everything that we just talked about in terms of the criminal justice system, redlining, the whole thing. And she's like, I just don't think racism is, is institutionalized. It's, it's, it's remnants. It's remnants. You know what I mean? So I'm just saying, talk to your girl. What I want to say is that I'll have to have that conversation with her at some point. But what I want to say is that sometimes black people regardless of what country they come from, may not feel as comfortable to admit that to someone who is not black, especially if you immigrated here. That's another thing. You know, for friends of mine who are immigrants, they're taught from day one, they need to be thankful that they're even in this country. So the last thing they want to do is try to jeopardize that and to be like, oh yeah, in this country, it's this, it's this, is that, I hate this and da, da, da especially if you're trying to get your citizenship, right? If you're trying to get your papers. I have a personal story about this. When I lived in New York, I lived in Brooklyn and my roommate, one of my roommates was from Sierra Leone. Now, if you don't know much about Sierra Leone, I will tell you that she was living there during the time when Sierra Leone was raided and her house was raided. Um, she lived in a hut and her mother said, get out of here any way that you can. She met a, a, a white guy who was a missionary there in Sierra Leone and he fell in love with her and they got married and he brought her back to the States and they were living in Texas. But he was one of those guys that worked all the damn time. So he was never really at home and she was left at home with his family who was not really accepting to her even though he was his family was still very much racist. And they did not like the fact that he brought home not only someone who was is black, but someone who was from Africa. 
And so she had to deal with that. She went through the divorce. When I met her, when I was living in New York, she was already divorced. He still would help her whenever he could, because he really did love her, but she could not deal with the family. Something I want to point out that happened was this. Our landlord, who was also uh, an immigrant, she was from India. She was talking to my roommate one day on the phone, and my roommate had her own speakerphone, and she did not know that. And my roommate was like, shh, be quiet. She said, I don't trust her. Listen to what she says. You know what this woman said on the phone to my roommate? She told her, keep in mind that we both got the same complexion. She told her, you can't trust these black Americans. They're criminals. They're dirty people. You and I, we're on the same page because we're both immigrants. And that conversation ended. And she looked at me and she was just like, I don't understand people in this country. And I had to explain to her how even, even though she was the same you know, skin tone as me, we're both black technically in this country, that because of the fact that she was an immigrant and she was not an African-American in the sense that she was born in the U.S., she was held to a higher standard than I was who was born here. Even though at that point in time, I had way more education than her, she was still held to a higher standard because she was not born in America. And that is something I want people to really get through their heads, that our landlord, who was from India and she was an immigrant, she said to my roommate not to trust me and, and there's another roommate we had, too, who was also African-American. He was from Portland, Oregon, not to trust us because we were black Americans. What kind of bullshit is that? And I want to bring in um, Shardal. Shardal, you have to unmute uh, to speak here. I see you as a speaker, but you have to hit the unmute button. Just got to hit unmute. I don't know if it's working for you, but I'll go to Davis in the meantime. Go ahead, Davis. Yeah, um, it's good to be back again. This app hates me for some reason. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, with Indians, <laughs> you know, I'm Kenyan, okay? So uh, we have a lot of them in, in Kenya, and th that story tracks. You know, it's tr it tracks. And a little bit of the history of Uganda I don't know if you know about uh, Idi Amin, who was an African, you know, a Ugandan dictator from um, the 70s and 80s. He instituted a mass program where he basically kicked out all the Indians, right? Like he kicked them out and the Israelis as well, because they were trying to make Uganda, you know, what Palestine is today. And because he kicked the Indians out, um, in 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 those decades and it is an indian people will talk about this event uh like it's traumatic and and all of that which it must have been i mean a lot of them were uprooted from the lives that they had built in uganda but idi amin because he was not politically correct and he knew he could tell what kind of people they were he was like we can't let them dominate business here you know because he wanted africans to dominate business not um indian people because, you know, their attitude and their racism towards black uh, Africans and dark-skinned people in their own community is well-documented. 
and and they are virulent about their racism. Like Indians, holy shit! If you don't have to deal with them, avoid them. Is what I would say to you. Um, and and because they have an entire system, a caste system that is centuries deep, right? So it's gonna take forever to to sort of unlearn those things on their side and. I fully, I fully am not surprised that she would say that to you. Dave, it's too late. Um, we got a so, vice president. Yeah, uh, I don't know about that. She's only Indian because she's, she's the vice president. If she had lost, she would be black. But anyway, um, yeah. So with immigrants, it's always, this is why it's always going to be a tough call. Everything you said, Sabi, was on point. Like literally everything. The entire thing about how um, a lot of white Americans will prefer uh, us because they don't sense the same resentment and anger, um, uh, which is so fucked up. But at the same time, most African immigrants eventually come to realize the situation. And, you know, and, and I was, I, I remember when I first moved here myself, um, I, for some reason, actually never had that like desire to, because I always admired black Americans Um and so I was never really like looking to distance myself. And I came here when I was a young man. I wasn't really with my family. I was alone. Uh, the only other person here was my cousin, you know, in, in, and my uncle was a Marine Corps in Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. And they didn't say any of that. They didn't tell me to avoid black Americans or anything like that. Right. Um, so, but I, I understand that attitude because, you know, a lot of immigrants come here and, and and this is like, it really is the shining city on a hill. It really is the land of opportunity for, for us. And so we don't want to rock the boat, so to speak. Right. And, and again, and this applies to all immigrants, not just African ones who you would think we would kind of be more with you guys based on, you know, obvious things like same skin color. But again, we don't grow up with white people. You know, we, we don't grow up having to deal with racism white from white classmates, classmates or, or, or white, white teachers. teachers. It's like Baby. a friend like of mine told me um, that I wanted to point out, like a friend of mine told me, she said, you have to understand, Sabrina, if you were to ever go to my country and she was talking about uh, Nigeria, she said, like, everybody looks like you, Sabrina. She said, there's a couple of American expats that are there, but she said, for the most part, everyone looks like you. I mean, like you go to the bank, everyone looks like you. You get on the airlines, the pilot looks like you, the flight attendants look like you. She said, you guys, a lot of you in America, black Americans, you haven't really experienced that. Even, even those of us that have grown up in like all black neighborhoods, we still at some point have to leave that neighborhood, whether it's to go to a doctor, a dentist, whether it's some of the schools, whether it's to, to go to work. But here's the thing for white Americans, for some of them, actually a lot of them, they don't really have to deal with the black community if they don't want to. We have to. And so that was something that she said to me that really made me think, no, I've never experienced that. I've never lived anywhere where everyone looks like me. I'm talking about, I'm not just talking about the people I go to school with. I'm talking about all the businesses are owned by black people, the airlines, the banks, the restaurants, 
the schools, all the teachers look like you. No, I've never experienced that. And most of us who are black Americans in this country have not. Yep, and, and that is why I always, always, always recommend to all black people, if you can, make your way to Africa. Even just, just, even, just go to, you know, you don't have to, like, try to prove something by going to, like, you know, a place that perhaps is not, I mean, you can, you can be bougie about it. That's what I tell black Americans. You know, if you want to go to a well-developed, you know, for example, Ghana or South Africa, because it has amenities and hotels and facilities that you're used to do that, right? If that's what it takes for you, if that's your entry point, which will make you more comfortable for the next trip, then do that. But you got to find your way to Africa because I am telling you right now, it relax. It's like a massage. It's like a mental and spiritual massage to just be around black people all the time, all the time. And it relaxes you without you even realizing it simply because you're dealing with different stimuli. I mean, literally not seeing white people relaxes you and you don't even realize that. Right. You don't realize how anxiety, how much anxiety there is in Well, you do, obviously. But I think that if you. It's tricky for me because, again, I grew up in the military community and it wasn't until my adulthood, actually, because growing up like my childhood, adolescence and my teenage years, like I grew up in diverse environments. Like I didn't go to an all white school. I didn't go to an all black school. Like it, it, we had everybody. Like those of us that are part of like the armed forces community. Like I went to school with everyone, and I mean like every different type of nationalities. We had teachers from different countries. Like so, to me, that was normal. It wasn't until I grew into adulthood and I started to move around, and that's when I realized like what the fuck is this, Davis. Davis. Hello? Can I chime in real quick uh, about, like, because uh, I have friends that are from. <laughs> I, know, I know too well how, ahead, uh, how it can be. Yeah. Uh, you know, you uh, the way I, I always talk to them is like, cause, you know, they will have so much smoke for, like, uh, Africans or they will have so much smoke for, like, Chinese. And they, they're so vivid about it, you know? And I'm like, Bro, the British killed over 150 million of you over 40 years through starvation. And on top of that, through the 200 years that they rule over your nation, they probably killed more 100 million. So what? why do you not have that same smoke for people who have actually committed genocide against you? And and they always get quiet because that's, that's the stone cold fact. Like you, you got so much smoke for people that basically have not done anything close to that, any anything close to the atrocities that have been committed to you by the Europeans, and yet you still want to have smoke for other people. Like you, you got to get your priorities straight. And I think a lot of people they 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 lack that. They lack the the foresight and the and the, and the integrity to admit to themselves like who is your real enemy. I got a little taste of the smoke here. I don't mind a little taste of smoke either. I mean, I got a little smoke myself tonight, and I'm saying, I'm no skin off my back. Like, I'm okay. 
but I, I would like. But, to but can I? Can I? No, no, ready. Just hold on one second. Can I ask Nestor something? Nestor, can I talk to you for a sec? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, so you are? Are you referring to like who? Who? Who has smoke for who? Like Africans have smoke for African Americans or, no, or Indian? Like Indians from India. Oh, they have smoke for who? Africans or African American? Chinese. They're, they're very racist. And the people who got colonized by Britain. Oh, saying, I see. Like, why don't they have smoke for Britain, but they have smoke towards black people? Well, because it's easier. Yeah, and yeah, it's easier because you know the British put that in their brain. They 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 completely took away their culture. They took away their not only wealth, but they took away their identity. And and we have to remind ourselves like. Why do, you know, some people like to, you know, wonder why, you know, hey, why is this Vietnamese person so racist against black people? It's, it's because the, the U.S. and, and the, the British, the Anglo sphere, they've been putting that into people's brain that somehow the people that are them are the bad guys, but the guys who are colonizing are the good guys. And that's, and that's part of the propaganda machine of, of the world. I'll give you another example, too, with a country like South Korea. So my dad was was, uh, stationed in South Korea for a year. I had two uh, colleagues of mine teach in South Korea um, for a couple of years. And then they were like, fuck this. I'm coming back to the U.S. Because if you go teach abroad, by the way, like oftentimes you're paid more money than you are in the U.S. And they pay for your housing. That's why my friends went to go teach in South Korea. And one of the things that all of them said, not knowing each other was that in South Korea, which is one of the most monolithic countries in the world, uh, they like black culture, but they don't really like black people. And that came from a friend of mine who was white, a friend of mine who was black, and my dad. And so it just, this is a global issue. This is not just a problem in the United States. And I wanna make that very clear as well, because I don't want people to think that this is just something that happens in the U.S. It's not. My uncle was also military. Uh, he was stationed in... Um, Roger, could you mute for just a second? Sorry. He was stationed in um, Thailand. He's traveled a lot. And I think he's back in Thailand now. He said, even in Thailand, if you watch TV... Most of the actors on TV are lighter skin. But in Thailand, the people, most of the people are not. So he said it's like, they kind of like try to find a way to use colorism to entertain the masses. And I talked to my friend Susmita, who is also from India. And she said, India has the same issue where if you watch a lot of the Bollywood movies, a lot of the actors are lighter skin. Whereas the region where she is from in India, she said, nobody looks like that. So why is that? And this is why I say to people, it's not just a problem in America. It's a global issue. My sister is a big fan of the K-pop bands. Okay. She got me into this shit. I was like, what in the world is Disney rapping? She did. I was like, what in the world is an XO? Like back when XO was good. And I was like, what in the world is a BTS? I asked that question. I shouldn't have. 
She oh. introduced me to the whole thing. And then I was like, I really like these songs. This is actually good songs. So I, I really do like some of the songs. But even my sister told me in the K-pop culture, they have to have lighter skin. If they don't have lighter skin, they'll put on the makeup to make their skin look lighter. And plastic surgery is a big thing. So it's a point that I had a student from South Korea who told me that they couldn't go back to South Korea to get a job. They had to get a job in the U.S. because they weren't pretty enough and Anglo looking enough to get a job in South Korea. I have to tell you, working in higher ed at the schools that I've worked at has really opened my eyes to some of the issues internationally. That someone who is from South Korea doesn't feel comfortable going back there because they don't feel that the way that they look is going to be accepted. So the whole colorism thing, we talk about colorism in the black community, it's not just in the black community. You see that shit in India, you see it in Thailand, and you see it in South Korea as well. It is all across the board. And you see it in the Latino community, because let's be real, a lot of the times when people say someone is Latino, they expect, oh, I expected them to look like J-Lo complexion. There are Afro-Latinos too, but you usually do not see them represented in Hollywood when we talk about Latino roles. Am I wrong or am I right? It's usually people- Same with like Jennifer Lopez. Go ahead, Lana. Oh, uh, I was saying like with Mexicans and like people descended from Los Aztecas, um they don't get a lot of representation like central america no and i brought this up before the fact that and don't get me wrong here i think that uh zoe uh saldana is a great actress but zoe saldana don't look a damn thing like nia simone and the fact that out of all the actresses in Hollywood that they could have chosen to play Nia Simone, they chose someone who obviously did not have the complexion, so they had to darken her skin and they had to give her a nose uh, prosthetic oh. to make her nose look different than... Den Why didn't you just pick a black woman? What? This is some of the problems that people face. Go ahead, Lana. I actually wasn't going to ask that. I was just uh, mocking like this, that they forget Black women just happen to exist. No, uh, one thing I will thing. say... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh. I was going to say one thing I will say. One place where I've not experienced racism or colorism is Hawaii. I can see that. Um, Hawaii is actually the the most, make sure I check this right. Yeah, Hawaii is the most diverse state in the US. So oh. that could be part of it. Some people go there on vacation and they become permanent vacationers. <laughs> That's part of it. But I wanna bring in John. I see you um, as a speaker, go ahead and unmute. So I can hear from you. Hopefully, you can. Okay. Hey. Yeah. No. Uh. uh no worries. I don't want to get too. Uh, everything is great. Everything is great. 
if, if there was any brief interjection that any of you, any of you would give, uh, Lana included, about uh, how this derives from religion, uh, Christianity, Judaism. Oh, I could go on about this. Brief, but go ahead. Way off topic, <laughs> you know, just to say, just see if you want to, I I'll mute, y'all go for it. In my humble opinion, I feel like fascism and like colonialism as we know it today has its roots in like, I don't know if it goes back to earlier civilizations, but definitely like the Greek and Roman empires and uh, the beginnings of like orthodoxy, Catholicism and Christianity, like begin though right uh, oh my god you can like i i mean <laughs> i don't know if you guys actually want a history lesson but like in my head i've connected the, the dots between how those brutal ancient civilizations were and the beliefs they held and like how currently were were modeled after them and it, like not much has changed um in the Roman, I mean, in the Greek Empire, there was, like, colorism and stuff, and there's, I can't remember which philosopher it was, but uh, someone wrote, like, there are people who are just meant to be slaves. Yep. These, of course, were darker people. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so you're probably talking about, um, we were, um, sometime in history, they said that, uh, we were made to be slaves because our skin made us the mark of Cain. That that we, yep. we had the mark of Cain. I see someone's been reading around but here. I think, Which um, Lana is talking about either Socrates or Plato, because I remember when I read the quote, oh. I was stunned. Thank you. Yeah, it's shocking. When it just blows your mind when you realize, oh, this is actually like two thousand years old, not five hundred. Oh, it's older than that. 100%. And I think we also need to consider, too, the Moors, right? So a lot of times people talk about Italian heritage. We need to also talk about the Moors, which were also that a part of that same region. Huh? Oh, no. Never mind. Hmm? Oh. The Mo- I don't know where Moors. that is. The Moors, I- I'll put it in the chat. The Moors, because it can come across... Um differently the moors m-o-o-r-s the moors they were also a part of that region as well and they were black and again you don't learn about that a lot of times you don't see that shit in the history books either so i think it's important to talk about the moors community as well that were also a part of that region so when people make statements like once upon a time there were black italians they're talking about the moors yes It's okay, John. Go ahead. Don't. I see you being a little oh, no, shy. No, no, no. I just. I love listening. You're good. I love the info. Keep going. Yeah, the Moors, man. I'm. I'm trying to tell you guys. Like when people say that, like, well, there were no black people around during that time. Bullshit. Oh, yeah. The Moors were there. I think part part of the issue is that um, the more sensationalized aspects of black history are the ones that get the most coverage. Um, 
which is why you have movies like 12 Years, 12 Years a Slave, but we've never had a movie about the Haitian Revolution. Oh, right? snap. Because it portrays, you know, Black African people as being powerful and capable of shaping their destiny. Whereas 12 Years a Slave, we're just getting whipped and everybody gets to feel sorry for us or guilty, right? So that that's part of the, and I'll never forget what, was it Napoleon um, who said that, you know, or some French, you know, dipshit talked about how we must crush the spirit of the black man forever, right? He said that, I think this was after the, the, after the French sort of uh, hit back at the, at the Haitians, after they, they expelled them and then proceeded to uh, impose, you know, sanctions on them to pay them back, which is so, so just diabolical. Or the, the, was it the Belgian, I think it was a Belgian general who went to Africa and said, you know, the Africans have a well-developed system of religion. They have their own language. They have their own culture. And, and we cannot beat them if we, mm -hmm. if we take them at their game. So we have to teach them to hate the thing about themselves that makes them respect themselves. This is a white man saying this. We have to destroy the thing that makes Africans respect themselves. And so, of course, that was our own religion. We had a highly developed religious system that was not irrational, right? We didn't have, for example, the devil. There is no devil in traditional African religion. There is none. That was introduced by, uh, by you know who, who brought yes. literal, they, they like, they came to Africa with slave ships named Jesus, literally Jesus. Yeah. Right. So, and, and, and again, and of course we are still tagged as the savages and they, of course, they, they destroyed all records of African history and, and a lot of African history was oral. It was passed down through generations because we are a very communal people. Yeah. Uh, a lot of African history was also written down, but that was mostly by Muslim Africans because they could write in Arabic, right? Um, and, 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 and some ancient like Ethiopian people who, who had their own uh, alphabet. So we did, I mean, African civilization, you have to understand that the What was the last period of My headphones died. Oh, I, I, I forgot. Uh -oh. I'm, I, 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 I'm sorry. Davis, I want to ask you a question. Hello? Go Davis. Ahead. Yes. What was the last thing said? How far? I think... Okay. Go ahead, Roger. How far? Because you mentioned um, Idi Amin before. Right. How far? You were talking about um, hip hop. How far do you go back? I know you mentioned um, crisscross. Mm -hmm. Do you go back farther than that? <laughs> Let me think about that. Uh, in Kenya, we had we had a weekly uh, music shows. I mean, daily music shows. And so Monday, I think was uh, I don't know what genre was on Monday, uh, but I, Tuesday am was. Am I glitching out or is it him? I'm, I think I it's you, Roger. I can hear Roger clearly. It's you, Lana. Uh, everyone else you. can hear and find I think it's just you, Lana, because we can hear you. Oh. We can hear everyone else. Oh, okay. Let me yeah, so, but I was I saying... Um, speaker, Lana. Go ahead. Yeah, we had... Uh, Tuesday was, I think, Reggae Day, and then Wednesday was Lingala Day, which is... Lingala is, you know, Congolese music. Um, and then Thursday was hip-hop and rap, right? 
So we had 30 minute TV shows to catch up on all the American I music. Think and I can hear now. I remember we can hear you. The Brat. I remember I remember listening to Functified and listening to it okay, endlessly. So I remember okay, Jermaine so Dupree. I was very into So So Deaf. I love Jermaine Dupree as a producer. 90 uh, what? Early, earlier than that, uh, let me think. Who who or do I have? I think I remember listening. <laughs> The doggy style, uh, the Snoop Dogg. Yeah, nineties. And so, I had friends that were into Mob Deep and Wu Tang, but I didn't really. I was still kind of, you know, I was, I was. I, those were more like uh, rich, uh, okay. rich right. Kenyans. They had right, access so to that stuff. Wu Tang, right. motherfucker, Wu Tang. You guys yeah. remember so, Dave Chappelle hit when he said Wu Tang? Sorry. <laughs> so I'll be honest. I've never listened to Wu Tang. I don't know what that is. I I've seen the symbol. Listen so, to what? So uh, okay. just give it a, shot. a few, you know. So, um, so the reason why I asked. Uh huh. Was, one second, Roger. Oh, can anybody? Oh, sorry. Okay. One second, Ashura. Yes. You've never listened to Wu Tang? Nope. I've seen. I've seen, I've seen people make the symbols. No triumph. No cash rules, everything around me. The only thing I saw about you Wu Tang, other than the symbols I've seen, is uh, Dave Chappelle making a skit. Oh God! <laughs> I sure a homework plan. Listen to it. Listen to Wu. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate Wu Tang Clan now and Mob Deep now, but at the time, I think they were maybe too deep for me. I, I couldn't get the New York City references. They have very specific references in their music, and you just have to oh. be from the area, you know. So, um, so I was more like into those types, and then I remember listening to the era of like Puff Daddy and Mace, and you know the right. whole um, uh, when Biggie died, and then Puffy like you know capitalized on it, which disgusted me at the time. Um, yes, thank you for saying <laughs> that, Davis. Can I just say this really quick, and I'll pass the mic. Sure. Sorry. He definitely did capitalize on it, and I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one that feels this way. Uh huh. Because how you make a song? Let, let's be clear. Okay, let's think about something. Why was Puffy around? The same night Tupac got shot, Puffy didn't get shot. The same night that B.I.G. got shot, Puffy was in the car behind him. B.I.G. got shot, Puffy didn't get shot. And then Puffy makes a song called I'll Be Missing You which he sampled off of the police, um, I'll be watching you, the stalker song. Uh-huh. Somebody make this make sense to me. Now, I don't know if you guys saw that show on Netflix where they talked about the whole puffy Tupac thing. God, I can't remember the name of it. Roger, you may know. There was Who a show. Biggie and Tupac? Who killed Biggie and Tupac? It was, it was a show. Episodes? It was originally yes. on A&A. Yes. It was like 10 episodes again, and I followed that shit. And after I watched it, I started to do my own research because, you know, I fell into the rabbit hole <laughs> and I started Googling the shit. And I was like, no, we're going to figure this out. And apparently the officer who was investigating the case, excuse me, the detective who was investigating the case, that detective died. And then there was another back. person who was involved with the case who was still alive. And he still said till this day that, he knew who killed them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, listen now. 
I'm not trying to turn this into a hip hop conversation, but I find it to be very strange that y'all motherfuckers can catch Bin Laden, but you can't catch who killed Biggie and Tupac. (laughs) You you did it, Savvy. Let me me just say this. Ladies and gentlemen, for people who don't understand, who didn't grow up during the 90s, this was a big thing. Biggie and Tupac were huge. And I loved both of them. Like both of like their songs, their music, love them. And I'm an East Coast girl all the way. And I have to let you know that number one, I still got questions about Puffy. And I will always have You're not the only one. That motherfucker is suspect. How it is that you had both of these incidents and nothing happened to you, not even a scratch. Everybody else, Biggie and Tupac, they're killed, but you're present at both events and you leave with no scratch. Somebody make this make sense to me. Then you capitalize off of B.I.G.'s murder. Because let's be real, Puffy is not a good rapper. Okay? Puffy is known for making beats and producing shit. Puffy is not a good rapper. The rappers were Biggie and Tupac. And sometimes I wonder if Biggie and Tupac were still alive today. Would we even so, have some of the rappers that we have who are popular now? Because Biggie and Tupac were some of the best. Let me make them they were the best to me, okay? You had Biggie, you had Tupac, and you had Nas, and Eminem, he's in that table too. But when you look at the rappers today, they don't even compare. They don't compare, they suck. I told you guys, this is why I don't like listening to new music. New rap, forget it. I've tried it. My <laughs> sister said, listen to Migos. Listen no. to so-and-so. Listen to, no. I listen to all these people. They don't stand up or hold a candle to what I grew up with, with the 90s rap. It's not the same. So, all right, so, so, so let me no just- No reparations just, or culture. Well, so let me just say this quick before anyone can- All right, so Davis. The reason why I asked you that was I wanted to know if you knew of a group out of Brooklyn in the 80s called Stetsasonic. Okay? They were they called themselves the the first hip hop band, even though they didn't play instruments, but it was it was like five of them. It was uh it was Prince Paul, Daddy Yo, Fru Kwan, D Light, and I think I'm missing somebody, right? But anyway, they made it they made a song called Africa and went A-F-R-I-C-A Angola, Zoweto, Zimbabwe, Zanzania, Zambia, Mozambique, and Botswana. So let us speak about the motherland. And then they was going into different people in Africa or whatever. And that song was the first time I heard someone named Idi Amin. He's like, Idi Amin, he's playing heads too close or something, something like that. I didn't really get all the lyrics or whatever the case is. So when you had mentioned Idi Amin, I thought of that. That's when I first heard of them was back in in the late '80s when we had hip hop right before gangster rap took over. Was going through this pan Africanism, back to Africa, Afrocentric uh, thing, or whatever. Um, yeah, and someone yeah. asked me, "Take in me the, to in, another place. Take me." To I think we need to mention Toby Nwigwe right now. We got to give an honorable mention to Toby Nwigwe. And someone mentioned asked me. Plan. 
And someone just asked me, uh, I think it was Bryce or someone just asked me what was the name of the Netflix thing? It was called Who Killed Biggie and Tupac? Yes. Yes, Who Killed have Biggie and Tupac? Have y'all heard God, Toby Nguigwe yet? Y'all heard Toby yet? Toby Nguigwe from Nigeria? No. No. Is this the rapper I stopped listening. Once, once he's from Nigeria. He's good. Yeah. The only reason I can't get all the way on board is because he's kind of got a little bit of the Yahweh stuff going on. And that's the only thing about him, but he's a really good rapper. I I tried new rap. Um, I want to make sure I bring in Karthik. Karthik, you want to unmute? I know you've been waiting a bit, so you just have to hit the unmute button. But yeah, I don't, I've tried new rap, you guys. I can't, I try, I can't. Me neither. I've not tried Toby Nguigwe yet. Listen to I'm Dope by Toby Nguigwe. It's about the time that Erica Badu told him he was cool. It is like the cutest song. It is, he's so good. You cannot deny the talent of this man. He's one of the most talented entertainers we have these days. And he happens to be from Nigeria and an ex-football player. From- I'll try. I'll try. Go ahead, Carthay. Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, so, uh, in terms of school, I, I'm Indian, so I, I, I know all about the uh, colorism there. And, like, in terms of, like, the uh, movie industry, like, you know, all the Indian films, pretty much, like, all the Indian actors are, like, uh, way lighter than, like, like, the average Indian, let's say. And in terms of, like, the cosmetic industry, like, I, there's obviously, there's many, like, sorts of color, like, I mean, um, what's the term? Skin whitening products? Yeah. But I know, like, two of the most, like, popular products or brands, I mean, is this one called, like, Fair and Lovely, you know? So it's kind of like oh if you're fair, God. that means you're a lovely person. And, and there's this other brand, like, this isn't the exact name. I, I'm forgetting it, so don't quote me on this. But there's a, another skin whitening pro- popular brand, I think, called, like, uh, Clear Girl or, or, or like, Pure Girl. It's, it's very, um, it's very disturbing. Ew. Listen, love your love the skin you're in. Like I don't, I I never understood that. Like this is one thing I will say, is and I will say like when I was growing up, like some of my friends like did have issues with colorism, um. But I will say this is one space where like I never had that issue. Like I never felt like the complexion of my skin was an issue, and. I don't know. Maybe that's because like the parents I had, like my parents were just like, my mom always told me, I, I told you guys this like a couple of nights back that like, or actually on RBN tonight earlier too. I told you guys that like my mom would not let me get a relaxer when I was, when I was younger, even when I was in high school, my mom said, no, <laughs> I was like, mom, that's not fair. Like everybody has one. And my mom said, there is nothing wrong with your, that it is. My mom didn't have one. And is that an airstream? I got picked on. I got picked on for not oh. having a relaxer. Like you guys can understand different times. Like natural hair is cool and popular today. <laughs> it wasn't popular at that point in time. And my mom was just like, no, there is nothing wrong with the way your hair is. And so it what was interesting though, because as I got older, I realized my mom was right. So I think I think like you guys see my hair really straight, but I don't have a relaxer. I just blow dry it and I use a flat iron. But the chemical shit, nah. 
I can't oh, rock with that. I told you guys about the fucking yes. chemicals. Yes, I told you about the chemicals. Don't do that. Bob was right. Well, since you have uh, some detective skills, Sabby, maybe you can tell, you, you can help me out here. What the fuck was wrong with Michael Jackson? Was he had, Did he have a skin disease or did he actually bleach his skin? I think it was both. There's a couple of things going there. Go ahead, John. Go ahead. Other people can elaborate on that. Yeah, I I think it was a little bit of both. Um, Quincy Jones, so I don't know how much you guys know about Quincy Jones, but Quincy Jones, like, kind of spilled the beans in an interview Mm -hmm. uh, like a year or two ago. Me and JB talked about this because he let everything out the bag. Like, it wasn't just about Michael Jackson. He talked about Marlon Brando and who people (gasps) slept with and everything. But... He said in his interview that he didn't like the fact that Michael Jackson lied about mm-hmm. the skin coloration thing mm-hmm. and the plastic surgery. So I think it could have been both. I think that there was a skin condition, but mm-hmm. I also think that Michael Jackson bleached his skin yeah. to even it out. Yeah, because yes. people were saying was Levitigo and... Yeah, I think it's Vitilago, and that doesn't that doesn't that it's not it doesn't go even it's usually patches it doesn't like all at once it's usually in patches i think yeah but then, yeah then michael kind of escalated that shit to something else you know the surgery yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he escalated the surgeries and then janet got into it and i think janet stopped when she was like she looked like oh my nose looked a little bit too fucked up i'm not going to do that anymore <laughs> michael jackson became I don't know yeah. what the fuck that was. Like, I don't know if he was a man or a woman. <laughs> but listen, but listen, I got to tell you something about Michael Jackson um, as well in reference to, well, actually, what Janet said. I did watch the Janet documentary on Netflix. And obviously, like, she was very close to Michael. And... um it appears that Michael Jackson, and this actually, this is, I'm piece, piecing together different pieces of information here. I'm sorry. But there was an article that I read that like said that Michael Jackson actually idolized Prince. And you guys know, like, I love me some Prince. Purple Rain, Purple, all the whole damn thing. Okay. I saw Prince live in concert before what? he. And I saved up every penny I had at that time to see him. And then he came to Columbia, South Carolina, and the tickets were like 70 bucks. And I was like, well, damn. Like, I had been saving for a while. And I was like, 70 bucks? Oh, shit, I got this. And so I I saw Prince before he died. And he's definitely much shorter in person than I would have pictured. Short dude. Big heels. Ain't he 5'4"? Prince was shorter than me, and I'm 5'5". So, um, anywho, apparently from the article I read, like Michael Jackson actually had a great deal of respect for Prince. And that makes sense because Prince was a child prodigy, you guys. Look, I could do a whole show about Prince, okay? But when he was Michael a child the same prodigy, thing? he knew how to play seven instruments when he was a kid. So he was incredibly talented and underrated because people were so focused on his sexual nature, right? Mm -hmm. So all you got to do is listen to the song Purple Rain. Prince was freaking phenomenal. 
So the article that I read said that Michael Jackson actually wanted to make himself look more like Prince. And oh. that's where it came in. But then also, uh, Joseph, who was Michael's dad, Joseph was very critical about Michael Jackson's appearance, especially about his nose. So he mm -hmm. made comments to him when he was a kid that he had a really big nose. And it's really yeah. sad. I don't like when you hear that type of comment from other black people. Like when you hear it from white people, it's shit too. But when you right, hear it right, from right. your own community, it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, that's why Ma Michael and most of them looked so fucking awkward. Uh, they say it's because like they got bullied by Joe Jackson, and uh, Michael was the one that takes more of the brother because he was more the bread earner in the family, and he didn't got to have a childhood. Yeah, so it's so what do you call it? Um, if you saw, what was it? Um, if. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember. I seen I seen Prince in concert during his, only one time. Well, you know, I would call it one and a half time. The the half is okay. They did this. He did this concert where you would you'd have to go to the movie and see it. It was live. This is it. it. Was like, uh, what what happened? It was called This Is It. Oh, oh, oh okay. wasn't he yeah. dead? Uh, and and he this is like the, I guess it was streaming before the word streaming came up, but he was streaming like a live concert. To it wasn't movie that great. Theater. I have I'm pretty the, sure I have the DVD. That, that was a movie theater like a, like a few months after he died. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. I, I remember. I have it. the DVD. It wasn't that great. I'm just gonna be honest with you, you guys. Like You're Girl, better off. Is better. You're better off watching Moonwalker. By the way, if you want to see a phenomenal like Michael Jackson movie, and I've loved this movie since I was a kid, you need to watch Moonwalker. That shit is lit. Because it starts back from the beginning when Michael was with the Jackson 5. And so you start off with like those kind of songs and stop the love you say may be your own. Baby, take it slow. Yeah, I mean, yeah they had the, uh, yeah, I watched the, the Jackson 5 cartoon when I was a kid. But um, mm -hmm. the uh, the the what do you call it? He had um, yeah, yeah. But I did see him live at Madison Square Garden though, as an actual concert. And you guys are so I, lucky. And what? Oh, how's this for luck? I saw somebody at the end of the concert that I've not seen since high school. I haven't seen him since this musicology came out. Now I graduated in '88. I saw someone at the concert, this dude, Tim. He used to he used to do nothing but crack jokes all the damn time. I was like, yo, what's up? He's just like, yo, I got I got uh some extra tickets to the to the after party at BB King's. I was like, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, uh, my date that I had with me, you know, like we went, but Prince is Prince. He acted like royalty also because the date that I was with, she wanted to go over there and talk to him. He wasn't trying to talk to him. <laughs> Nobody. No. So I ended up I ended up chilling with somebody else. You, know, so I, you go over <laughs> was there. Was he like kind you, of a butthole? 
Yes, right, exactly, right, right. So he he was he wasn't trying to talk to anybody, whatever the case is. He thought he was too good to everybody, whatever. I was just like, I right, fine, whatever the case was. He did. He but didn't jump on any couch. He didn't do what? <laughs> He jumped on the couch and said, oh, he jumped on the couch and said, fuck yo. Are you talking about Rick James? Rick James did that. He was like, fuck yo, couch. No, he doesn't. No, I think it was like a basketball. Yeah, it was basketball, I believe that was. Shirts and blouses. Yeah. He was over there in the corner. He was just like, you people, you know what I mean? He had his bodyguard, you know, guard the thing or whatever. So I was just like, whatever. Roger, I'm mad yeah. you didn't tell me that you met Prince. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Sadly, I'm friends with his nephew. I, I know his not... nephew. His nephew's a trip. I, I did his not nephew meet is him. a 32nd degree Freemason. Oh, oh, God. Wait, so Roger, you didn't meet Say him? One more time. The, what happened was it was an after party. And there was he was in a roped off session at BB King, and he was he was like beyond the velvet rope, like over there sitting in the corner, okay. And there was a velvet rope like around the area. He had his own area, and then there was dance floor. So I was over there at the dance floor, okay. I, I saw what it was. He's over there. He ain't trying to talk to nobody. All right, well, fuck him then. I'll, I'll be over here. I was like, oh, you want to go and talk to him? I right, yeah, go ahead, but good luck. She ain't never get to talk to him. She, she, she did a big switch and, and left or whatever the case was, and then she wanted to go. I said, no, you could go. I'm dancing with her. You know what I mean? So He changed, whatever. like, over the years. Like, for those who don't know, like, Prince became a... Um, you know, I Jehovah's used to think Witness. that B.B. King was something yes. that you say before getting Jehovah's punished Witness. on the playground. Yeah, yeah, you guys didn't know, Jehovah like, Witness. Prince became, like, later on in life, and yes. this was before I saw him in concert, later on yeah. in life, Prince became a Jehovah's Witness, and so by the time I saw him in concert, that was 11 years ago, he would not sing certain songs, like, he would not do Darling Nikki, mm-hmm. he wouldn't do it, like, there's certain songs he wouldn't do because he was now religious and all that yeah. kind of thing, so he had kind of throwing those out and like my my like one of my best friends like she was just like she was pissed because she went to see him at the same time in North Carolina and she was like he didn't do darling Nikki I'm pissed and I was like well he's Jehovah's Witness now so he's not gonna sing that song. <laughs> that yes, how do you explain that last time to that about. religion right? Oh oh how do you guys feel about that? Wait, what did you just say? I didn't get that. When you uh, when the he became a Jehovah's Witness, which is I think it's a derivative of Christianity somehow. Forgive me for not exactly remembering, but he wants to be pure. It just it start it starts to just degrade the culture. What do you guys feel about that? I saw the concert. I had a good time. He he didn't really do when doves cry. He kind of did it, but didn't really go Mm -hmm. into it. But I was happy with the concert. I kept it moving. <laughs> Wait, so he can't yeah, sing no. about sex John was, or John's on to something, though, guys. John's on to something, because I know Prince's nephew, and he's a 32nd degree Freemason, and he's got some kind of creepy connotations that go along with the Freemasonry thing, too. He's told me all kinds of strange things throughout the years. And I think there really is something the to the cult of Yahweh. Let's just be clear on it. <laughs> 
it's degradation of, of like the arts and situation like that. And yeah, I don't think it's a good influence on our, on our things. And that's an important point that John brought up. Actually, I think that we would do good to start to kind of question the cult of Yahweh and its role. It plays in a lot of this stuff and Freemasons too, kind of looking at that cult as well. They're all connected, you know, with the Vatican and um, they play a large role in our art world and dictating what art gets promoted, what art does not get promoted, all this kind of thing. And uh, like I said, I, I want to love Toby Nguigwe so much. He's one of the best new rappers we have. But the, the, the Jesus stuff just kind of turns me off a little bit. Quick, quick question, Lana. You said you never heard of B.B. King? Yeah, like when I was growing up, you would say B.B. King and then punch somebody if they didn't say B.B. King back fast enough. And yeah, B.B. King, King was a famous um, blues singer. Um, he had a guitar, um, called it Lucille. He was, he was, uh, he died some a little bit yeah. while ago, but he, he was a famous, he was a famous, uh, blues singer. That, uh, just, yeah. just, you know, just Google him. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, I did Google him. And he has a, he has a, he has a, he has a, uh, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't know since the lockdowns, if it's still there, but in Manhattan and near like 42nd street, uh, he, he had a club called B.B. Uh, King's Blues Bar and Grill. I, um... Check him out, yeah. Savvy? I'm oh. in Nashville. I saw... Well, not him. I went to that club in Nashville. So it's in different cities. Oh. Yeah. I think he's from Tennessee, isn't he? I think so. But I, I saw him... I saw that, um... And I saw him... I saw B.B. Uh, King's. We went there in Nashville for my friend's wedding. We went there the night before. It was pretty cool. It was a blues club. It was. Hey, Seth. Mississippi. Um, sorry. Um, I just. Uh, I, I really did have a question about reparations, and it's getting kind of late, so I wanted to ask it real quick, if you didn't mind. Please do. Boy. Thank you. Uh, no, all, it was a real quick question about how there's always an argument against reparations, like saying, oh, you know, how are we going to fund it? How are we going to pay for it? Would giving a number hurt no. or help the situation? No, no. I'm pretty sure Gator gave, Gator gave like three suggestions. I think uh -huh. we agreed on two. One was the rollout of the money, and the other one was basically taxing corporations that have benefited even from the past and now from black black slaves to American slaves, descendants of American slaves, and black people in general. Right, but my question is, if you gave them a finite number, would that help the argument rather than uh, would no, it hurt no. it more? If you, if, you give them, if you give them a finite number, then you'll come back with a new number, and then they'll say, yeah. well, didn't you give me a new number I last see. time? Yes. Okay. I feel like you could say $1 and they would still be against it just because they're that racist. Don't give them a number. <laughs> Bad. I get that a lot. Thank you guys for answering my question. Thank you guys question. for answering my question. Isn't that kind of I, I, I just want to be clear. None of us... Oh, oh, I'm hearing myself echo. None of us here are... Um, what's that word? Um, yes. Experts. Okay. Experts. Or, I mean, I know we're black and everything. And, you know, some of us are Freeman and all that stuff. But none of us really are not experts on on the subject of reparations. I mean, if you really want to, you know, uh, uh, talk to somebody, I know Nico had, 
had interviewed Chris Locks, Locks, L-O-G-S-O-N some time ago about it. Yeah, like, and, I mean, I'm on the reparations like, committee in Seattle. I could just, like, ask ask lawyers in the bar association I'm in. No oh, you just reminded me. Yeah, you um, really need to listen to people like Sandy Darity and Yvette Carnell, um, Tone, uh, Locke. Like, you need to listen to them. Like, I... You can find them all on Twitter. You can also find them on, well, at least Yvette Carnell and Tone. Um, you can find them on YouTube. Like, they're experts with this stuff. Like, I'm not an expert either. As Sabby, I forgot to, I knew I forgot to mention something because you mentioned South Carolina before. Um, do you know where the, does any, do you know where the bar exam came from? Uh, history? I can tell you. But I don't know if you want. To okay, I right, hear that. I'll see. I'll see if it matches. If what it matches what I. <sighs> the bar exam saying... literally exists because one Harvard Law School dean and like I can't remember if it's 1910 or 1920, but he was literally so racist that when black people started to get into the law school and graduate with their JDs without more obstacles in between them, he's like, oh no, if we start having more black lawyers, then they're going to amass way too much power and capital in this society. That's they're going to kill, kill us all. And so he literally invented the hell test. Yes, that's it. I don't know if it was me that was that's breaking up. Yeah, that, was, that was you. Okay, can anyone hear me now? Yeah, yeah. so that's where the bar exam you know, that- came from. And the other thing, too, is that it's not just the bar exam. It's standardized tests. Those yeah. are also inherently... The LSAT. Yeah, it, well, all standardized tests in public schools, they're also inherently racist. It's the questions that they ask. is how they ask the questions. It's the time limit that's imposed on these tests. Like, they're inherently racist. And, like, even Malcolm Gladwell had pointed I got to read that. time limits especially. Like, I have ADHD, and I feel like the timed exams are meant, like, specifically to punish me for having ADHD and being black. Like, (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah. Someone left a Malcolm Gladwell book in my car, and I have yet to read it. They, They left it, like... A, a year or so ago, and someone asked me, "Oh, you got that Malcolm Gladwell book?" I was like, "I'm a little left it in my car." <laughs> is now a good time oh, no, to read that new book, the new Cobalt book? She just had an it's interview on Joe Rogan. Gladwell. Y'all can check out, and it's fucking good, dude. It's so pertinent. It's not Malcolm. Let me see what this the name of this book is. Okay, ah. It's been sitting in my car. Well, wait a minute. Everyone else, if you're not speaking, let Brady go ahead and speak. The Bomber Mafia. Dude, this guy, and he goes off on the modern-day slave market, man. It's nasty, guys. It's way worse than we thought or imagined. I mean, we all kind of knew it existed in Nike factories and whatnot, situations like this. But especially in the modern tech industry, and this is electric vehicles, this is cell phones, um, it's really bad. Um, really, really, we're talking like mothers working with children on their backs in a mine, open mine. That's always This stuff is not supposed to happen. 
it's not supposed to be happening. This is illegal what's going on right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, capitalist countries are guilty of it and socialist countries are guilty of it too. We're all guilty of it. it this blood is on all of our hands. Um, not my hands. There are immediate things. Oh, if, if you got a cell phone in your hands, there's blood yeah, on, on your cell phone. We've actually talked That's what about I'm saying. this on RBN multiple times. We've talked nice. about this multiple times before, about how even the cell phone industry, like this is all, it's all exploited labor and child labor. And by the way, if you shop at stores like H&M, or excuse me, H&M and Old Navy, they're complicit in it. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone. It's so many, even our sugar industry, our sugar industry is still based on the old plantation model. These people are stuck on an island. The sure. only job is working on the sugar plantation, and there's a company store where they have to buy their food. They can get <clears throat> charged, fired, arrested for growing their own food. Yeah. Today. Hello, capitalism. Yep, but it's also socialism as well. I just want to add- Socialist countries are guilty as well these days, so we're all to blame. I mean, no one's perfect in this in this situation that we have going on right now. I just want to add, so- we have problems like that here in the U.S. too, in the sense that when we talk about the products and the goods, like I told you guys, Crumble Cookies just got exploited the other day, or they exposed the other day, about child labor. That's crumble cookies. That's a chain. Like it's in a lot of malls and things like that. Like it's not just in countries abroad. Some of these labor uh, practices are happening here in the United States as well. So I think. In in fact, if it says made in USA in the label, you can bet it was made in a prison, actually. Right. Like this goes back to the whole prison labor system. Like it just. Amendment. Slavery. Yep. Sounds right. Exactly. Everyone needs to look up the 13th Amendment. But that's why we talk about late stage predatory capitalism, because we've gotten to the point where the markets to exploit are decreasing and the the whole capitalist ideology about extracting is is just bringing us to the a natural end. I mean, there's only so much extraction you can do. And when you think about it, there has to be a better way for the human species to cohabitate and live other than trying to get more, get more, get more. That just isn't, you know, ideologically and philosophically, that makes no sense. We need some wealth. You know, spiritually, you can increase greater and understand but this physical thing of having more, more, more is just not going to lead us to anything that's good. And I was thinking of a way to mitigate child labor today. I think the best way to mitigate child labor is to ensure every child has the option, at least, to go to a good school with good food where they're taken care of. They have that option. <laughs> but in order, you think capitalism going to give you that motherfucker? But in, I don't think capitalism is going to do it, John. <laughs> But in order to democracy could give us that. In order for that to happen again, you can't have property taxes fund public schools. And this is what I point back to before is that the federal government, the same way they fund the schools for 
uh, kids who are are their parents are in the military the same way the federal government can do the same thing for all the other public schools in the U.S. So as long as you have property taxes, fund the public schools, we will always have this issue. Yep, brilliant. Good place to focus on. That's um, but worldwide for for kids around the world outside the U.S. Even I think about them, and I think that if if we could just let them know that they have the right to school, make that a global Man, message to children. Just stop killing those motherfuckers. Maybe they'd be all right. Um. Some of those kids, like I, I will say, I can speak for some of the European countries, they have free lunch. Like in yes. France, there is no you come to school and you pay for your lunch. They have free lunch. And by the way, the lunch that they have is actually real food. Mm-hmm. It's not that cardboard pizza that I got when I was in school with that fake ass milk carton. Yeah, and those fake-ass fish sticks, with, which isn't even really fish, it's not that kind of food. They it's eat actually exactly. home-cooked meals for food. The school food got worse. When I lived in Germany, and we went on a field trip to the German schools, they didn't eat the food that we had. They had real food. That's what I'm trying to say. Is like This problem is inherently an issue predominantly in the United States. If you go to the other countries and you see the food that the kids are eating, they are not eating cardboard, like cardboard food like we are in the US. So this is a problem. That's why people make fun of us. And they say that we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Like China is like, I think has surpassed us by net worth. But we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world and we're feeding kids like cardboard food. Whereas like if you go to a country like France and Germany and they're getting real food. The ruling yeah, class says that to keep us hungry in order to make us work, that hungry people are motivated to work harder. And so that's why they're trying to attack our food sources and make our food uh, scarce. With us. We're going to work harder. Yeah, hungry people work harder. This is a scientific fact. I mean, I just kind of um, want to give the fuck up. It's enough to make you really angry. The reason that people are so hungry around the world today is because of the simple reason that hungry people work harder. Um, and if uh, people were didn't weren't, weren't weren't starving, they would have more leisure time to you know hang out. They might take a few like more vacation days. They might have more, more rights. Can we talk about the fact that white people refuse to work so hardcore that we're at this point in the whole globe? Like, is this not crazy? Say that one more. Like, white people in the ruling class refuse to work so hard that we're here. We're here. It's a non-working class, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, I don't think the uh, I don't think forcing the the white fo- or, uh, white black any color of the poor, the working class, of the slavery into hunger. I don't feel. I, I can't comprehend how that drives them into wanting to work more. I, I feel like that well, makes them want to kill form. more. Yeah, you would I, think, I feel but, like uh, survival just makes them want to kill and maybe eat the kill, which is the rich folk in this case, which is fine with me. I just can't see how, oh, I got to work harder just to be able to eat. I don't understand that if somebody wants to clarify. It's more it of more like being held at gunpoint. Like, you will go to work... Or you're gonna fucking die. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. It's that. I'm just going to either die or yeah. going to shoot that motherfucker myself. So that's why I don't understand. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. I have a different... Yeah, the birth of access to access to technology is also an issue for these people. people to starve. This will have a big backlash, and it always comes mm-hmm. back to the ruling class. People are going to be hungry so much that they're not going to care if they lose their life. That's going to motivate revolution yeah. more. It's not going to stagnate or make people work harder. Work harder for what? To starve more? Like what crumbs are you working for? <laughs> yeah, to you starve your house, more. You don't own yeah. anything. Where, where, where are you go? Where, where are you going to work for? You have no future. Not, not yeah. gonna, gonna, it's, um, it's, it's actually like, Thanks. guys, it's like three o'clock in the morning. So, um, Ooh. I'm going to close out, uh, closing comments from people. And then I'm heading out. I just want to say good morning, everybody. <laughs> good morning, <Roger>. everybody. <laughs> Roger. Oh, um, pressure, 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 pressure. Uh, you said mm-hmm. something about, oh, um, the, the, those weren't, uh, fish sticks, Sammy, I was eating? I mean, that, that weren't, that, that wasn't fish I was eating? Invitation fish. Oh my God. Invitation Also, also, um, I thought I hated pizza and it was because of school. That pizza was terrible. It took a friend of mine. It took a friend of mine to drag me over to the to uh, to the local pizza parlor to 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 get me to buy some pizza, and I realized I like pizza. That's my closing comments. Awesome. All right, guys, I'm heading out. Um, guys, you know tomorrow is Wednesday, so I won't be live tomorrow night on YouTube. Um, but I will be on Glenn Greenwald show at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time um, on his Rumble show. So check me out on there. Other than that, guys, I'll be back on YouTube uh, Thursday. And have a good night. Good shit. As Rome said, death to America. I think that's...